Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, welcome along to this bonus episode of Seeds. This is Stephen Moe, and today we get the chance to listen to the full content from the Impact Summit 2019. This was a day-long event which was held at the University of Canterbury and organized by UCE, which is the University of Canterbury Center for Entrepreneurship. And the way it's going to work is that in the show notes, there's an index of each of the sessions. And what you can do is if you want to listen to a particular workshop or main stage speaker session, then you can find the hour and the marker that's listed in the index and then just scroll through to listen to the bit that you want. The day was really fantastic. There was plenty of amazing speakers. And so I talked with UCE about making that content available to those who are not in the room. And the result is this podcast episode. If you enjoy this, then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes of Seeds as well, because this is the 130th episode. And generally what I do is talk with people about their lives, where they're from, what's led them and shaped them into who they are. And then we talk about what they're doing and why they do it today. And there's a bunch of content at the website, theseeds.nz, so you might want to check that out. And if this is the first podcast episode of Seeds that you've listened to, then why not hit subscribe? So without further ado, let's dive into the day-long session of the Impact Summit 2019. Kia ora, everyone. Can I hear a bit of noise for Impact Summit? Cool. I love it. Amazing. Kia ora. Um... Uh, tēnā koutou katoa, um, ki te mana whenua, nai tuahuriri, tēnā koutou. Um, ko Tarawira te maunga, ko Nongatahe te awa, ko Arawa te waka, ko te Arawa te iwi, um, ko Amanda Rawa, ko uh, Aaron, ōku mātua, ko Tori McNeau, tōku ingoa, um, ko au te tumuaki tuaroa o te rofu ākunga. Kia ora, everyone. Um, so my name is Tori McNeau. Um, I have had an amazing privilege of being asked to open this amazing event um, called Impact Summit on behalf of UCSA because you're here in Haereroa today. So no Mikey Haereroa, let's hear it for Haereroa. <laughs> cool. Um, it's so awesome to have you in this space um, because we really, it's, it's really new for us. Um, and it's really important that um, it remains student-centric um, and you guys are absolutely um, the, the, the pinnacle of what it means to be student-centric. So it's amazing to have you here today. Amazing to have your creative brains here today. Um, and I'm actually going to start with a karakia for us um, because I think it's really important that we start today off on the right note. And um, thank you, UCE, for asking me to do this, particularly you, Hannah. Cheers. So Etu Koto, we're going to do a karakia together. Cool. Perfect. Cool. So if we all look down, um, I'll say it. Um, and then at the end, I am going to say amene, um, homie, huie, and then together you're all going to say taikia. Should we practice first? Cool. Homie, huie. Oh, you can do better. Come on. Come on. All right. Homie, huie. Beautiful. All right. All right. Here we go, team. He honore, he kororia. Maungaro ki te whenua, whakaaro, paie, ki ngā tangata katoa, akiake, amene. Haumie, huie! Kia ora, team. Cool. Um, enoho, enoho. 
The last thing I just wanted to say today was that um, as much as I'm here in a capacity of um, the UCSA and to welcome you into the building, um, I'm also like the number one fan of UCE. Um, and I love it because it's, UCE really flourished who I am here today and I know that I wouldn't be standing on the stage without them. Um, in, particular, in particular, being able to be surrounded by people like you guys. Um, and I left here last year really challenged about my ideas um, and about who I was. Um, and I really encourage you to feel that way when you leave because um, it's really hard to challenge, I think, liter your literal character. Um, and I was uh, talking to, to Bridget yesterday, who you'll hear speak today from um, Beat and Proceed, and she was saying, you know, as young people, um, we're often just learning how um, all of these kind of red flags and red tape gets put in front of us, and it can be quite discouraging. Um, and it's places like this that help us learn um, to ram that red tape down, because that red tape sucks. Um, <laughs> and it's important that we are able to challenge the ideas um, uh, ideas that exist in our societies today because we are the people who have changed those. So um, I really encourage you to think about that when you're when you're out here today. Um, and thank you very much for being here. It's amazing. And thanks for having me shortly, uh, quickly this morning. Kia ora. Cool. Nick, our theme music, please. Oh no, he's dancing before the music starts. That's awkward. Who knows this tune? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Who knows how to shuffle awkwardly? This is the part where you move. It's okay. You can close your eyes if you're embarrassed. We're not gonna stop until everyone's dancing. Okay, you know this? Alright. Thanks, Nick. <sighs> Round of applause for a Radna. Are we awake yet? Yeah? It's funny, because you're saying yes, but it's like, yeah, no, we're here, man. That's cool. We're awake. Are we awake yet? That's a bit better. Awesome. Uh, kia ora. Good morning. Are we feeling good? Yeah? Good. Thank you. I don't know which one of you said that, but I know it was one of you. <laughs> Uh, my name is Jason Pemberton, and uh, you're going to be stuck with me on stage for a little bit of today, uh, emceeing the events for today. Now, we've actually got some boring stuff that we have to do and some interesting stuff. So, should we start with the boring stuff, get it out of the way, and then do the interesting stuff? Does that work? Excellent. So, let's do that. Now, who was here last year? Cool. That's a pretty good sign. So, those of you who weren't here last year, why did you come here today? Or how did you hear about it? A friend? Podcast? Yeah? Social media? Someone said free food, free coffee, and you're like, sign me up. <laughs> I was a student. I know what it's like. <laughs> huh? 
Word of mouth. Nice. What are we looking forward to about today? Free food, free coffee. Yep. Word of mouth. Jason, well, you got that. Here I am. Well done. You can go home now. <laughs> Please don't. That would be, that would be tough. Uh, uh, I'm kind of taking the piss, but I'm also kind of serious. Because I think it's really easy to come along to events like this and you show up and you have a really good time and then you walk away and nothing changes. And kind of what Tori was saying just before is that's not the point, is it? So I want you to think, in your, in your uh, bag you've got a wee notebook and you've got a pen. If you're the sort of person who writing helps, then get out your notebook and your pen right now. By the way, aren't these swag bags super boss? Like, super boss. We're going to hear a bit more about them shortly. I want you to think to yourself for 30 seconds or so, why are you here today? As in, what do you want to get out of this? What are you hoping to learn? Write some stuff down. Now in a few seconds, you're going to look around and find someone that you don't know. And you're going to go up and you're going to introduce yourself. You can introduce yourself with you know, the customary high five, maybe a fist bump, a handshake, hug if that's your style, if that's both your style, consent is king. And, uh, and you're going to talk about what you're trying to get out of today. Because at the end of today, I'm going to ask you if you got there. Kapai. So you got five minutes to have a bit of a yarn with a new friend. Have fun. Thirty seconds. All right. So does anyone, uh, maybe a couple, one, one or two volunteers, anyone feel like sharing what they're hoping to get out of today? Yep. Personal development, which turns into a ripple effect. Nice. So sending more and more out. Awesome. Who else? One more. Now we're talking. Yeah. All right. Don't worry. I'm 31 and I'm still like. Mm -hmm. It'll happen one day. We uh, uh, both of my. Uh, my, my whole family is from South Canterbury, from Geraldine, and a couple of years ago we lost my grandfather at 99 years old. He was just like a rounding error. Um, and uh, at 98 he said to me, yeah, I think I'm starting to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And I was like, attaboy, that's the way to do it. So, yeah. Who feels like that? It's like, oh, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Yeah. I see a bunch of our speakers are doing that as well. So you are truly among friends. So I've got uh, two objectives today, personally. Um, one, I want us all to walk away from today with a better idea of some of the things that every single one of us can do every day to make a positive impact. Because often I think we think of impact as this big, amazing thing that's out there. But it's not always. I mean, it is out there, but it's also right here. So that's one objective, is for us all to walk away with more of a sense of that. And the second one is that we all walk away feeling a little bit more confident 
in ourselves as people, as leaders, as volunteers, as workers, as humans. So if we achieve both of those things, then yeah, we're doing that. How do those feel to you two? You two. How do those two feel to you all? Good? You can sign on board with that? My words are like not good yet. It's, you know, it's not noon. I don't know. No excuses. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm dangerously close to coming late. Well, actually, I'm late now, so let's just keep moving. So, our first speaker for the day uh, is the charming Alana Chapman, who, along with her husband Pete, founded 27 Seconds, which is a wine company that directs awareness and profits towards ending the plague that is modern-day slavery. Please make a lot of noise and welcome Alana to the stage. into it. So our story starts in Calcutta. It was a Christmas Eve and my husband and I were visiting some friends who run a social enterprise called Freeset. Freeset offer alternative employment to women in the red light district of Sonagachi. Sonagachi is Asia's largest red light district. They estimate that there's between 11 and 15,000 sex workers who work in this area and they live there with their families. It's about the size of two square blocks, so as you can imagine, it's really crowded. It's full of narrow roads and alleyways which are separated by multi-story brothels. And um, uh, it was Christmas Eve and our friend said to us, there's not much to do on Christmas Eve, why don't we go visit one of the employees who you've met who still lives in the district? And we thought, yep, sounds good. So we were making our way to this woman's house and how it works there is the women line the streets and the thousands of men pass through every night choosing from the line who they wish to purchase services from. And our friend said, hey, we'll just take a shortcut through here. And it was a darker and quieter alleyway. And I can still see it. There were about five or six girls around 16 years old and they just looked distinctly different from all the other women we had seen. And I remember asking, why do these girls look different? And our friend said, it's actually really sad. They've been trafficked from Nepal and sold into prostitution. And I remember asking, how on earth could that happen to anyone? And our friend said, well, actually, it's easy. They're there under a lie. Some guy from the city will come up to a rural village in Nepal and say, I have a factory and I'm looking for some rural girls to work in my factory because the city girls, they're lazy. I really want the rural girls because I know they're hard working. And I would love it if your daughter could come work in my factory. She will earn twice the amount what you can earn. This is her a chance at a decent job, her, her chance to step out of poverty. And I can imagine these parents thinking, oh, you know, will she be safe? And the guy says, don't worry. I will treat your daughter as if she's my own daughter. And now, now this girl is standing in an alleyway in another country, surrounded by a foreign language, 
deeply ashamed and she's selling herself for someone else's profit. And it hit us in that moment that we had just passed by modern day slaves. Today in the world, the Global Slavery Index estimates that there are 40.3 million people in slavery. That's more slaves than in the history previous. In 1850, the average cost of a slave was around $40,000 in today's terms. Today, the average cost of a slave is 90 US dollars. And I think we would often feel, what can we do? I, like many of you, studied here at Canterbury. I did a uh, Bachelor of Commerce. I really, really wanted to do, am I, is that me? Turn that one off. There we go. I was wondering, I'm like, what is that noise? <laughs> awesome. Cool. Uh, so I, like many of you, would wonder, oh, oh cool, thank you. Yeah, I need that. Um, wonder what can I do to make a difference? And I study commerce, like many of you. I actually really wanted to do uh, a commerce degree in marketing, and then I found out that you had to do second year statistics. I was like, nah, that's not for me. I'll major in management instead. Uh, so I majored in management, and then I graduated, and I got a job working at a bike wholesaler as a sales and marketing assistant. And it in no way was a dream job. I actually got so bored so many days. Uh, but I learned so much in that job. I left that job after three years and I started working for Hagar. Hagar is an organisation that works in Afghanistan, Vietnam and Cambodia with survivors of slavery and severe abuse. And amongst us all, I met my husband-to-be. Uh, this is us. Um, and then, uh, this is just for fun, I put him through FaceApp. This is my, my future, so it's looking, it's looking bright. <laughs> uh, so Pete is the vineyard manager for Terrace Edge. Terrace Edge is an uh, organic vineyard up in North Canterbury. And I think after this experience in Calcutta, Pete himself would feel it even more so. What can I do? I grow grapes and I make wine. Uh, but a number of years ago, he came up with a solution. He came home, he's like, Elena, the Riesling is cropping really high. We have more than what we need. Why don't we make a wine where we give 100% of the profits away to Hagar? And I thought, Pete, this is one of your better ideas. So we, uh, we started off with Riesling, and it was just going to be a one-off fundraiser. And then Pete was like, oh, well, Riesling, you know, it's actually just a really small part of the market. We need a Pinot Noir as well. So we added Pinot. And then a couple of days later, he's like, well, we only have two. Like, if we want to do this seriously, most people drink Sav. Let's add a Sav. And then after that, about a week later, he's like, rosé is really on trend. We really need a rosé. Let's have rosé. So sort of in between all of this, we decided it was no longer going to be a fundraiser. Why don't we try and make this into a business where 100% of our profits go towards helping end modern-day slavery? So then we thought, what do we call ourselves? And we thought of some terrible names. I think the worst was perhaps hungover for a cause. Uh, and we, we, we scrapped that pretty quickly. I mean, that's why, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done marketing. Um, but then we thought of the UNICEF statistic, and they estimate that 1.2 million children are sold into slavery every year. 
And when you break those statistics down, that's 3,300 every day, 137 every hour, which works out to be one every 27 seconds. Now, I remember being so excited about this project. It was like all consuming, it was all we could talk about. And then I remember the night when it just, when it, it, all my excitement turned into dread. And I remember lying in bed and asking Pete, so how many bottles have we made? And Pete was like, oh, I did some calculations. I think about 9,000. I remember going, adding up our friends and family and the people who we knew would buy it, even if it was just because they felt sorry for us. And then just like freaking out at the huge discrepancy in numbers. Um, but from there, I needn't have actually worried because within a couple of months, we sold out of our rosé and salve, which was wonderful. Um, to date, we've donated $25,000. We've been going 21 months and our sales this year compared to last year are up by 185%, which is just wonderful. I know, it's, it's great. And people, people often tell me, they're like, oh, Elena, it looks like 27 seconds is doing really well. I'm like, yes, yes, it is doing really well. But my goodness, in the short 21 months, we have had so many failures and disappointments. Uh, I really like this slide here because I think it sort of encapsulates the truth of running your own business. I also would like to add this one in here, late nights, hundreds of late nights. Uh, so... We, um, after that, I think what keeps you going when you have these late nights with no pay, disappointments and failures is knowing your why. And that would be my advice to all of you, is know your why. Your why will make you push through. It will make you do things you never thought you could do. It will make the light, late nights and sacrifices seem worth it. I want to leave you with one example where our why pushed us out of our comfort zone. So we decided that we needed to be in the supermarkets. At first we thought we'd just sell direct to the public and therefore give away more margin. But then we found out that like 70% of New Zealanders still buy their wine at the supermarket. So we were busy rebranding, coming up with a, with a bottle that would actually sell off the shelf. And uh, we came across this competition. And it was a competition that God himself had made especially for us to win. It would see our wine in all South Island New World stores with their backing. I was like, oh, wonderful. Except when we looked a little bit closer, the competition had not only shut weeks ago, they were announcing the semi-finalists the next day. And we were gutted. And then we had an idea. I had the idea. <laughs> and I, um, I thought, we need to show them that we are serious about this. And what better way to show anyone that you're serious than to make a video? Now, I have to say, we had um, our, ba our second child was like four weeks old, and I was most likely sleep deprived, so it sort of explains a little bit more as well. <laughs> I remember pulling Pete out of bed and saying, we're gonna make a video. And he wasn't too impressed with the idea because he had a bad head cold. He was like, okay, because he knew the why. He was like, I'll do it. 
And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just get dressed out of my dressing gown and, you know, put makeup on. He's like, no, if we're doing the video, we're doing it right now. So um, that's why I'm, I'm in my dressing gown. And he here we go. So it's 5 to 11, Monday evening. We've got a newborn baby. Why have we set a phone up on a stick in our living room? <laughs> well, uh, we have just found out about the competition called Food Starter, and we honestly believe that this competition was made for us. But unfortunately, I know that entry closed like last week, and you most likely already decided who your final five are. But please, 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 can you consider us? Because the impact of you choosing us would be felt around the world. Quite literally. Just let us make an entry, please. We're 27 seconds. So essentially the video goes on us like desperately pleading to be let into this competition. <laughs> and so we decided to post it on Facebook thinking, oh, maybe one or two people might share it. And then the next morning Pete comes into the room. He's like, Lance, you won't believe it. It's gone viral. And I'm like, why didn't you let me get dressed out of my dressing gown? And then he... Um, it didn't go viral and perhaps what big business would turn viral, but for us, it totally went viral. We had hundreds of people emailing them, messaging them, saying, can you please let these guys into the competition? And they didn't announce the winners the next day. So I'm like, oh, we're in with a chance. And they didn't announce the winners the next day either. I'm like, ah, oh, we're definitely going to be in. And then the next day, they're like, oh, well, actually, we can't let you guys in. It would be unfair to all the other contestants which totally made sense. But out of this, um, we, got a, we landed a deal with Henry's, which saw our Sav and Pinonois docked across the South Island. But perhaps bigger than this, it sort of kick-started this consumer movement, whereby our followers took it upon themselves to get our wine into the supermarket. And they did this several ways, mainly just asking the liquor manager to stock the wine. Well, my favourite story is this girl down in Mosgill. She'd like use the consumer suggestion cards, but like write in different handwriting so it appeared like more people were asking for the wine. And it actually worked. We are now in 29% of all South Island New World stores, plus 18 other shops, which is just incredible. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. But I think the reason why this has happened is because our community have also identified with our why. They also don't want to see any girl standing in an alleyway selling herself for someone else's profit. Thank you. That's the, that's the end. <laughs> Keep it going for lines. Uh, something you said about knowing your why. Does everyone know what Lana means by know your why? So the why being like, what's the, what's the thing? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? The, the passionate driving purpose. And actually, for a lot of us, it's really, really hard to put our finger on that thing myself included, and I've been trying for a long time. So I totally agree. It's like you got to know what you're passionate about, but also don't beat yourself up if you don't know, because that's okay as well. Kapai?
Wonderful. We're going to keep rolling on through. Next up is another absolute epic girl boss, Shannon Thompson. Welcome to the stage. My name is Shannon, extremely nervous Thompson. Uh, whew, I am the menswear designer, owner, and creative director for Out of Comfort. Um, super stoked to be here. So awesome to uh, share the stage with some pretty amazing people. Um, so. Uh, on a timer, counting down, right in front of me. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'd just quickly cover how I got to this point here with you all today. Um, a bit about my brand, Out of Comfort, and thought I'd leave you with a film I created and a bit of advice that um, I've learned in the industry so far. Um, so rewinding back, uh, to where I began. I learnt how to sew when I was five. My grandmother, um, a seamstress herself, taught me, um, which I was extremely lucky to um, be saturated by her creativeness and inspired by her gorgeous gowns and uh, beautiful old Vogue magazines was uh, pretty amazing for me. So um, eventually I annoyed her so much she taught me how to sew some pyjamas and it was at that point that I thought it's really cool to have an idea and you can make it into a reality. Um, and that really stuck with me until today. Um, I just always remember that. Um, yeah, so um, she literally planted the seed and um, I have forever been, uh, I guess, learnt that creativeness from her, and um, I've never, never wanted to do anything else. I've always loved clothing and creating, and uh, luckily it's worked out so far. Um, so I grew up in a really small town called Arthur's Pass. Uh, basically, you just pass through it on the way to the west coast. Um, so I am a country mountain girl at heart, uh, which I'm really grateful for. Um, yeah, big ups to not growing up with an iPad. Um, yeah, fast forward to 2012. I graduated university in Auckland studying fashion design, uh, which is where my love for menswear started. Um, a year out from graduating, I was feeling really unfulfilled creatively and just wanted a bit more of a challenge. So I took a bit of a leap of faith and applied for internships in London. Um, and much to my surprise, I was offered an internship uh, with a company in London. So uh, six months of applying for visas, saving up money, packing up my life. I booked some flights and flew to London, um, which was terrifying, didn't know anybody. Uh, it was literally a big leap of faith and belief in myself 
that um, I could make something out of this, make it work. Um, so yeah, I started straight away, moved there, started my internship, and fast forward five months, I was offered head of menswear for the company. Um, and um, um, yeah, I guess running, running a team of people and designing collections for London and New York Fashion Week was um, pretty mind-blowing for uh, this small-town country gal. Um, and yeah, I was really lucky to be able to gain that sort of experience um, internationally. Uh, yeah, so eventually I had to return home, dragging my feet with an expired visa. Um, but uh, in this moment, I kind of realized I was designing collections for um, an international company for, new, uh, for fashion weeks um, around the world. I realized I could be doing it for myself. And uh, it was always a dream for me to be able to start my own label one day. Um, and I was coming home uh, to my beautiful family, but no job, uh, nothing to rely on. Uh, and it was, so it was just me, my experience, and my savings. So it was a now or never moment. I decided, if not now, then when. Um, I landed home. 2016, I went back out to my grandparents uh, in Hamner Springs, where my, all my machines were from Auckland. My nana had, still had a studio. Um, and I said, uh, we're doing this, keyword we, with me and my grandmother. You are helping me, and we're going to do this together. Um, so it was really special for me to share the beginning with her. Um, and launching my first collection in 2017 uh, with her by my side. Um, so that is when Out of Comfort was born. Um, so Out of Comfort is about <sighs> stepping out of your comfort zone, um, really, and just uh, not conforming to, um, I mean, challenging conformity and just being really honest and holding integrity with who you are and what you want to represent in the world. Um, everything is made here in New Zealand. This was really important to me, um, to be able to support local makers, suppliers, and um, producers. Um, so I've been really lucky enough to build some really long-lasting relationships um, with some beautiful ladies just here in Christchurch who work for me and help me keep this brand moving. Um, I source ethically and or as, as ethically and sustainably as, as I can. Um, I only use fabrics that have um, basically remnants from big international companies that have come to New Zealand instead of landfill, um, which is surprising to me because it's like hundreds of meters um, and ideal for me as a small business. So um, I truly believe that slow fashion is the future. Um, I think that um, that will forever continue to be the base of my brand. Um, we really do need to change this fast fashion system. And I think that um, 
me having a strong voice within that uh, is really important. Um, so I've been really lucky to be able to work with some awesome people in the industry. Um, and I was invited to show my first collection at Vancouver Fashion Week. Um, this was my first year in business, so it was a pretty massive milestone for me uh, to show on an international platform. Um, yeah, and I guess it's brought me to where I am today, um, doing, living my dream, taking risks, failing, taking risks again, failing, and then getting it right amongst, amongst it all. Um, so I thought I would just leave you guys with um, some advice and tips that I've learnt along the way. Uh, number one, point of difference. Um, for me, uh, it's about finding your pivotal point, your muse, um, your core DNA. Um, there's so much fast fashion in the world. It is, it is really important to have a difference in something you always refer back to um, amongst the craziness, just always coming back to your core. Uh, focus on building your brand. Uh, this is about, for me, quality product and quality relationships. Building relationships is everything in business and especially in the fashion industry. We, um, we have, or I have, really lifelong relationships that I want to keep throughout my whole business. And um, so, yeah, it's really important to um, just support people around you and, um, yeah, create those those relationships. Uh, leave your ego at the door. This one I learnt big time in London. Um, the fashion industry has copium, copious amounts of people with large egos. Um, it's really bloody tough and you will be challenged every day. Um, and I'm not saying tough isn't good because it's actually really good and it's, cha it's challenging for you. Um, but there is definitely a clever balance um, between it. And I think, uh, just to put it really simply, just don't be a dick. Be just nice. Support each other, encourage each other. Um, uh, be kind. Uh, I think we all have to start somewhere. Um, and I carry this through with my interns. I think that it's always about a team um, environment and we're all wanting to grow and win together. Um, don't grow too fast. This one um, I learnt massively in my first year, uh, just to be patient, um, be kind to yourself. Uh, the fashion industry is really fast moving, there's a fashion calendar. Um, don't be intimidated by what other people are doing. You have every right to be where you are and um, being really patient with your process is really important. Um, keep learning. This one is massive for me even today, right now. I'm here to learn, um, to grow, to share, and um, uh, I am really inspired creatively, and I was stepping into a world of business that I knew nothing about. Um, so for me, it's important that I do short courses or 
Um, there's things about zero I had no idea about until now. <laughs> um, so that's fun. Um, yeah, so my last one is, it's not easy, don't give up. The stress doesn't stop, it's 24-7, uh, it carries on, but it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and saying that, it's really important to find your balance, uh, find what uh, keeps you really happy, um, because the long nights are on the way. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I uh, would like to leave you guys with a film I have created um, with a cinematographer named John Ross. He's a legend, look him up. Uh, Christchurch-based dude. Um, this is my latest collection. I've uh, recently dropped uh, my second collection and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Thank you. What a boss. What a boss. Ah, so many things to say, but we have to keep moving, so we're going to keep moving. Next up, we have Burris and Sabah, who are supporting the establishment of 51 micro-businesses for 51 capable individuals in Afghanistan in honour of the 51 lives lost in the Christchurch mosque shootings. Please give a very warm welcome for Burris and Sabah. Are you feeling good? Good. <laughs> Salam, Kriyabra, uh, and greetings, everyone. My name is Sabah Fresyabi, and this is? Maris Shakir, everyone. We love to talk more about ourselves, but because of the shortage of time, we want to talk about our project. So at the end of the year, my husband and I, we both are going to Afghanistan to start micro-businesses for 51 peoples in the honor of 51 lives that we have lost in the Christchurch mosque shootings. So what is micro-business and why we, are choose, why we are choosing Afghanistan to go? Afghanistan has been rated the most dangerous country in the world according to a BBC 2019 survey. It is a country that has been waged war upon for over 40 years. War has left breadwinners not being able to provide food for their family, send their children to school, or even provide basic health care. Although Afghanistan is the most dangerous country in the world, this is the exact reason why we wish to implement our project there. We wish to big, begin from a country that is having the hardest time. How will we do this? By establishing 51 micro-businesses. An example of a micro-business is what you see up here. A business on wheels, also known as a Karachi. We will build Karachis for certain individuals and we will also equip them with two weeks' worth of goods. This puts the individual ahead in life by over two weeks, a good enough start for them to be able to save money, gather themselves, and create an impact not only in their family, but in their own community as well. Will this impact only be in Afghanistan? Of course not. When we're over there, we'll be vlogging their entire journey. We'll be 
recording the empowerment process of each individual. And we will bring back this footage here in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and we'll compile a documentary. This documentary we are going to film, uh, we are going to premiere on March 2020. With this film, we're hoping to reach young people here in Aotearoa, to give them the, the feeling, to inspire them to see the blessings that they have here in Aotearoa, the blessings that we have, the opportunities that we have here. People in Afghanistan, or places like Afghanistan, have nothing. They're waged war upon every single day, yet they still are staying resilient. Unfortunately, here in Aotearoa, we've been dealing with mental health, and it's really on the rise right now. And that's something we wish to tackle as well with this project. We wish to bring back the stories that we get from there, the inspiring stories, bring, back, bring it back here to our own youth here, and inspire our young people to own where they are and to create impact amongst, them, uh, amongst their community. Um, thank you very much. That actually took a lot shorter than we expected. <laughs> we got one more minute kill, so I'm going to crack a few jokes. Um, <laughs> this is actually our first time ever um, presenting to uh, everyone together, which is quite challenging, but humble that's good. How do you feel? You feel good? <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Um, see you guys soon. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go straight into a Q&A with these four fantastic humans. And Lana, do you want to sit next to me so we can share a microphone? And Shan, do you want to jump down the end there? So um, who's got the clicker? You do. Can I grab that off you? Thanks, mate. There we go. Thank you. So uh, is anyone familiar with Slido? You open a browser, uh, open a browser on your phone, go to slido and punch in that number and you can ask a question. It pops up on my phone and you can up and down vote each other's questions. We're gonna be using it through the day. We might not have time to get in, into any right now, but just so you know, this is what we're gonna be using for the rest of the Q&A panels today. So uh, I have one question that I wanna ask each of you because when you were speaking, it was really clear that you're all, you all really care about what you're doing. There's, there's like this passion in you. And I'm wondering, what was the first step that you took down the route of that passion? Does that make sense? In 2012, um, I actually visited Afghanistan. Uh, I was there for over four months. I was having a hard time in New Zealand, so I didn't really know what I was up to. I really struggled growing up. So when I went over there, I met a lot of people um, that had the resilience that I was lacking at the time. Um, young people, ages eight, nine, um, some 12 as well, working long hours after going to school. You know, when I met people like that, um, it gave me perspective. And when I came back here in Aotearoa, I started seeing all the opportunities that were present um, that, I, that I previously had neglected. Uh, so it just opened my eyes and gave me perspective when I watched stories of other people and how they were struggling, but they were still so resilient. Um, I think that's where it is, just seeing stories of resilience. 
I can really identify with your question earlier this morning to the audience of, and how many people raise their hands when you say, what on earth am I doing with my life? And I totally felt that for so long and so many jobs I had, I was just like, what am I actually doing? Like, I don't feel like this is making the world better or anything like that. But I think, uh, touching on what you said, we are so privileged here in the West, and the fact that you have a university education, even just the mere fact that we live in New Zealand, puts you in such a place of privilege. So I think recognising that and always holding on to it as, what can, how can I use my privilege to help? Uh, yeah, so don't dismay if you are stuck in a job where you feel, what am I, you know, I'm not making a difference, but just hold on to that. I have privilege, how can I bless others with that? Yeah. I spent my 21 years of life um, like a refugee. Um, I guess I can say like invisible person. But when I went back to my country, Afghanistan, things that I witnessed, things that I saw, uh, those things always, uh, they stuck with me. I can't ignore those things. I can't, um, like right now I'm living in a peaceful country, but I can't feel peace um, inside because of those things that I witnessed. So this project was always with me. Um, I really wanted to do something for the people out there, uh, not just in Afghanistan, but as well to those countries that's being forgotten by the world. Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess for me, starting was trying to pinpoint what I wanted to represent. Um, I remember starting and kept asking myself, who am I, who am I, who am I? And um, I think it's really important to not put that pressure on yourself. And um, I started with a really clear message and, um, and that really came from me just disconnecting from everything and going away. Um, for a while, staying with my grandparents and just tuning into myself and, um, yeah, just don't f feel like there should be any pressure. You are doing something that you love and that you want to do. So, um, yeah, I think listening to yourself, being patient with yourself, and um, that was really what got me to take the leap of faith and, and really um, pursue my dreams. So. We've got heaps of questions rolling in here, which is super awesome. Um, uh, there's a few just really specific ones. Where can you buy out of comfort? I think your mic is on. So. Oh, uh, uh, all online, uh, outofcomfort.co.nz, um, and also do sales through Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. Yeah. And um, a few questions about honouring lives. Uh, where, where, can you, where can the audience follow your vlogs, and how do you fund itself, and how can they help? Oh, yeah, cool. Um, so we started a Give a Little uh, page that's already, um, the deadline has already reached, and we have reached our goal of $20,000, which um, we did in just one month's time, which was amazing. Um, how will you be able to follow us? We're going to start up a, a page that we will update frequently um, some of the stories that we cover, but we want to keep all of the stories that we gather um, bring it back here and then show it all at once. Um, we don't want to take away anything from that. 
Uh, but you will see, hopefully, follow my, follow our Facebook page. No. Is that the best, the best way for people to track you down, is following your Facebook page? Yeah, to be honest with when we will be back to New Zealand, we will announce the day, the time that we're going to premiere our documentary. Um, so, yeah, just through our social media and through media as well. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Lance, a bunch of questions here, about 27 seconds. Um, how are your profits distributed to survivors of slavery? Uh, so, at the moment, we just give it all to Hagar. Uh, so, Hagar work in Afghanistan, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Uh, I once had someone tell us recently, well, why do you give it to the organisations? Because you can't control what you're doing with the money. I'm like, yes, because I haven't got a degree in development studies, and I'm not going to say I know how to do development best. So we give it all to Hagar. I really trust Hagar. They have wonderful practices. Uh, they're really held in high esteem in the developmental world. So at the moment, it all goes to Hagar. And in future years, we would love to give it to other organisations as well. But Hagar, just for now. So it's a really common model that you see in sort of mature social enterprises is where you have a really complex, gnarly problem and someone's figured out what they can do to help. And so other people gather around them and say, all right, well, what can we do to help you so that you can keep tackling the gnarly problem? Does that make sense? And so in this case, 27 seconds is up, cuddled up next to Hagar. Um, do you sell 27 seconds in goon bags? Oh, right. <laughs> I don't even know what those are. <laughs> no, we don't. But um, hey, I know if, if there's a market and people will buy it, then hey, we'll sell anything. anything. And if, it, if it sells in boxes, then why not? <laughs> uh, and that got a bunch of upvotes. I love that. So many people are like, oh, yeah, that's, I'd, I'd buy that. Love it. Um, there's another question here that uh, sort of any or all of you may choose to answer. How do you stay connected to your why and maintain your passion? How do I stay connected? Um, it's interesting because I just asked myself that um, about a week ago. Um, I think it's really important for myself that um, I, well, I tend to feel that I get really caught up in, um, in the workload and what I'm doing to my day-to-day, -day, um, my deadlines, um, production, um, just wearing many hats, you forget to um, bring yourself back to my, your core. So for me, once a month, I just always make sure I sit down with myself and remind myself why I'm doing this um, what is the message that I want to portray and what is the change that I want to make. Um, so I guess that's how I connect in with myself. I disconnect from everything, I turn my phone off for a weekend, um, I'll go for a walk, I'll just draw for a weekend. I think I just hone into my creativity and um, yeah, just make sure I'm always checking in with myself. Um, this is actually our first project together. So. Um, and it's only about four months old. So we haven't actually questioned our why at all uh, throughout this whole time. We actually have conversations about it, about our project almost every two seconds. Um, but 
if we were to come to that stage where we would, where times are so tough that um, we do start questioning why we do it, uh, I think it would be just to revisit the videos that we capture or uh, revisit the stories that we've had um, shared with us while we're in Afghanistan and just hold on to those. And I'm sure that that would be a motivating factor for me and um, sure for Sabah as well. Uh, for me personally, there's two things I do. One thing is to connect in with the reason why we're what, what we're doing. So I think in, sometimes you can feel so overwhelmed by these issues uh, that you just you pull back and you stop thinking about them. Uh, but for me, I purposely expose myself to, I guess, I have Al Jazeera and BBC and I'll, um, I'll be looking for stories of slavery. I know uh, last year I was just watching this video about a woman in Afghanistan who had to make this terrible decision. Does she sell her daughter or does she feed the rest of her kids? And I think I just sat there and just started crying because that's just a terrible decision to make. And I don't think that we can stand here and put any judgment on her. Poverty takes away decisions. As you can see, I get quite choked up about that. And when I read that, I was like, we just need to sell more wine to make a difference. It's an odd combination. So, yeah, connecting in with the issue. But then uh, I really hear what you're saying as well. Just, like, taking time out. I, um, when we first started this, I was just working every day. And I just found myself so tired uh, and worn down and felt like giving it up. And that's when I decided I'd take Sundays off and just not do anything. Uh, completely disconnect from work to recharge the batteries. And that has, I think, sustained me in this as well. You know, when you jump on an airplane and they're going through the emergency procedures, they say in the event of emergency, ensure your oxygen mask is affixed before supporting others. Yeah, that's what I always think about in this sort of stuff. It's some of the best advice I ever got was, you can't help anyone if you burn out and fall over. So slow down. That's, yeah. uh, there's a bunch more questions here. Um, we don't have time to get to them. If you're asking about uh, fast, fast, fast fashion, about the profit distribution or those sorts of things come up, I can actually answer a bunch of those questions quickly for you. Please put your hands together for our amazing speakers. Hi everyone, um, welcome to the Xstart fireside chat. <laughs> um, it all feels a bit intimate to have us sitting down um, on chairs and um, a pretty tidy group. So looking forward to sharing some of our insights around demystifying commercialization with you guys. Um, just wanted to kick off getting a bit of a sense of who's in the audience. Who is already running some kind of business or venture? Coolies. Who would like to run some kind of business? Ooh. Um, who's been there, done there, and doesn't want to go there again? Because that's legitimate. <laughs> no? Cool, okay. Um, so I just wanted to give you a bit of an intro on Xstart, in case you haven't heard of, of that program, um, which is the, where the panel's come from today, um, who we all are, and then what we're looking to cover today. So firstly, Xstart is a program that is run out of the university um, in the Centre of Entrepreneurship. It's very specific 
um, in that we target later stage companies. So of course UC does some incredible work with early stage, with their summer startup programs, entree programs and what have you, but it starts very firmly focused on that next space of scaling up businesses that have already got um, a product in market um, or already has some validation completed. Um, there's a few of us that run the program. Um, Mads to my left, who will introduce himself shortly, um, is a peer and colleague. Um, Matt is one of the companies that's currently in the program, and then Chelsea um, will hopefully be in the program shortly. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of an introduction so you know who we all are. Um, and then in terms of what we're going to cover, I want to try and keep it really, really simple. The reason we're here is to demystify commercialization. Even the word itself is pretty kind of, I don't know, a bit, bit stuck up. Um, so we just want to break that right down um, into a very manageable, um, achievable process. I think what you'll find is that none of this stuff's rocket science. It's already in here. So it's just helping you guys to pull it out. Um, so yeah, if we kick off with some introductions, we'll start off with Matt down the end. Cool. Thanks for uh, the invitation today, Olivia, and the chance to come and talk to the group. Uh, so I'm Matthew Jones. Um, I've been lucky enough to work at all stages of uh, the commercialization process, uh, especially around uh, developing technology coming out of universities. Um, so about 10 years ago, I worked here at UC. Um, I'm trained as a uh, biotechnologist and um, was lucky enough to be doing some research that was commercially focused. And at the time, um, there was a big push about encouraging entrepreneurship in, in the biotechnology field. So we set up a startup company, uh, and that startup company called Calpane Therapeutics uh, is still running today, so something I'm very proud of. It's uh, been running for 10 years uh, and uh, is currently doing clinical trials with some, with some uh, novel and exciting technology over in Australia. Um, since then, I've also been involved working in technology transfer offices at uh, universities in the UK and with venture-backed businesses, uh, uh, again, uh, in the UK. Um, in the recent times, in the last five years, I moved back to Christchurch, uh, where I was working as an analyst for a local uh, venture capital-based company. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to receive um, investment and government grants to start the company that I'm running today. That company is called Certus Bio. Um, so Certus Bio... Uh, increases the sustainability and productivity uh, of industrial food processing. And we do this to end avoidable food waste uh, right at the beginning of the food production process. Um, we work with um, food processing companies to connect them to their suppliers and their customers uh, by reducing environmental impact and preventing food waste. Cool. Thanks. Chelsea. Oh, thanks, Olivia. So I'm actually still a current student at the University of Canterbury. And in my time here, I've been involved in the Entree Exec for the past two years. And I think being in that space and being surrounded by people starting businesses, and especially at our age, um, made it seem more achievable. So I was always kind of looking for that opportunity for me to branch out into that space. And um, start of last year, I was reading an article about um, a girl that had moved from China to Australia and was making 90k a year just buying um, Australian products on the weekends to send back to her family. And I said, oh, there could be an opportunity here, if it, you know, and looked into demand for New Zealand products. And with that, the UCE offered an opportunity for a few students to go study at Fudan University in Shanghai, um, spe specifically studying e-commerce Chinese consumer behaviour. So I was lucky enough to get that, and then I think my journey really started from there. I noticed a really big opportunity for New Zealand companies to sell their products. However, a lot of barriers in terms of cost and understanding existed. So 
I came back into the UCE Summer Startup and created New Zealand and Beyond along with my co-founder Millie. And yeah, so what we do is we create an online marketplace on Chinese e-commerce sites like Alibaba and to help sell our products. And we also have an exporting and marketing solution for our New Zealand companies. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Chelsea. Oh. Okay, um, so uh, let maybe start from scratch. A strange name, I'm from Denmark, uh, grew up in Denmark and uh, worked in, in big companies in Denmark like IBM uh, and Computer Associates, um, uh, where I was involved in, um, in both commer commercialization of products, sales of products. Uh, Solutions uh, was also part of a lot of acquisitions um, in IBM. I think it was 11 different com acquisitions uh, of other companies, uh, and uh, Computer Associates the same. So uh, I got a background of commercial selling, uh, commercializing products, but also understanding the mergers and acquisitions, particularly big companies uh, who has this need for innovation, uh, product extension, and and, and offering new, uh, effectively their sales teams new products to sell new solutions uh, to keep growing uh, according to shareholder value. So um, again, my background then developed during that, but also uh, since then to sort of entrepreneurships, I've, I've sold and traded um, 12 companies, but have uh, also sort of started probably close to 30 companies. Some of them are still alive. Uh, uh, some of them are still smoldering away. Um, but I got sort of that mixed background of, of big companies like the site saying IBM, uh, Computer Associates, uh, Google, uh, Vodafone, all focusing on, on doing sort of complex business-to-business -business, uh, selling. Um, so in the last 10 years, I've been in New Zealand, uh, where I've worked for a number of sort of classic Christchurch-based uh, tech companies, help them commercialize, uh, sell, get international, uh, also done three startups um, here while, while I've been living here. So. Cool. Um, so hopefully you get a sense that what we've tried to do is bring together a really diverse panel um, in terms of experience and industry. So um, we'll take a bit of time to, to run through some things that we think, but I've also allowed a fair bit of time at the end for Q&A. Um, so please do, even while we're talking through some subject matter now, um, be jotting down your questions that we can, um, that we can take later. I'm not sure if the slide is going to be happening for us, but if it isn't, nothing quite like a hand raise. Um, so just a, a quick um, intro on myself as well. So you get a bit more diversity um, on your panel. Um, so I'm um, born and raised Wellingtonian, only been in Canterbury for a couple of years, um, but it was very cool to be working in the startup ecosystem in Wellington and then be able to use those connections to come and get um, a pretty cool role down here in Canterbury. Um, what I was doing in Wellington was mostly working in youth entrepreneurship and running a program called Venture Up. And the reason that I wanted to share that with you in particular is um, the experience of working with students, um, and in particular, high school students before they go to uni. Um, and I think it's a really, really sweet spot that a lot of you are in. Are most of you guys uni students, or of that age? Okay, cool, some aren't, that's, that's equally cool. Um, but, but what really um, crystallized for me during that experience was, um, I guess, a couple of key things. One is the problems that we face today, um, and how commonly, or how well understood they are, how commonly understood they are because of the nature of the information that we have around us. But the third thing and the most exciting thing is the um, interest and the level of capability to, to solve some of those problems. So um, I guess from my background, it's, it's working with youth um, and a genuine belief in the ability to solve problems. So if you sort of bring all of that um, experience together, hopefully on the panel today, um, with you guys thinking about what you want to commercialize or what it even means, there'll be different ways of looking at that. So to kick off, I just wanted to um, 
said a bit of a precedent or a bit of a premise that when we talk about commercialization, it's very much a process. So it's not just an end goal. Um, and there's a lot of elements to that process. Um, as much as I said before, it's not rocket science. It can take a long time and it can take a lot of hard work. There's a lot of testing and validating. Um, validation is a word that you're going to hear, no doubt, a couple of times um, as we're talking. But what I want to do is really demystify this because it isn't rocket science. And if we focus on four areas today, um, the four areas are going to be the problem, your customers, the value, and selling. And I really do believe that those are the four key areas. There's, we're going to break those down further, but if you can get those things down, you're really on your way to some pretty solid commercialization. So, you know, the start is a good place to start. I mean, I was talking with Chelsea earlier about um, some areas to touch on. Something that she said really, really resonated for her and hopefully would for you in the audience, and I've actually already heard it today, is where do I start? What is the starting point? So we'd like to suggest that the starting point is the problem. Um, and if I start with Chelsea on that problem identification, um, it would be good to hear your thoughts, Chelsea, on the value of starting your commercialization journey with being really, really clear on the problem that you're solving. Yeah. So that was definitely a big one for us because studying in, when I was over there in China, it's easier for me to see this opportunity and for me to think, oh, New Zealand companies would love to do this, but I like you need to test it to see if that's actually what they want to do and actually figure out if there's a problem to solve. So that's a lot where that word validation comes in, where you have to take your idea but actually go out and research, talk to your potential customers, talk to your potential suppliers and say, hey, if I did this, is it something you'd actually want to be involved with? You know, because our target market is smaller New Zealand companies who, if they're extremely busy in other international markets, China might be the last thing they want to think about. So that was really good for us at the start of our journey, was actually getting out there and talking to them and explaining the problem we found and also the problem from their end as well. So we can have that understanding and then coming up with a solution that fits, yeah, what they're facing. So I was just going to say, um, and Matt, just heading down your direction, the work that you undertook in the earlier stages of, um, of commercialising your technology and that, that um, articulation of the problem that you were solving. Yeah. I think it's just about meeting as many people as, as you can in, the, in particular industry that you're focusing on, and then it's really trying to get their attention so that you, you know, you'll get them talking. If you, can get, if you can get your customers talking, telling you their pain points, and, and asking a series of questions about identifying you know, somebody's problem. That allows you, you know, at that point you can, you can almost, one of the best pieces of advice I've been given is just to be quiet. You know? Silence is good when you're talking to your customers, you want to get, let those guys talk as much as possible. Understand pain points, and then you can use those pain points to your advantage uh, when, you're, when you're formulating your, your value proposition, which we'll talk about later. Um, so for me, it was all about trying to get in front of as, much, as many people as possible. And I think you guys have a great advantage because you know, you're coming from the universities, so you can, you can leverage that. You know, if, you, if you phone up somebody even quite high within a company and say, I'm from the University of Canterbury, we're doing some new research, we're, we're trying to do startup uh, businesses and, and develop new solutions, it's amazing how much people will say to you. You, know, you can really find a lot of information. I, no, I, I agree. It's, I think it's, um, it's, it's vital that you, um, also vital you go in open-minded, and that's what you're saying by, by, by listening, but going in open-minded, not having everything set in stone because it's not going to be the case. Uh, you, you're actually going to prove yourself wrong as many times as you possibly can, and as a part of that, you'll end up being right, and that's really where you're going to get to. And that's where that validation process 
comes. So if you can find uh, friendly customers, friendly people who are happy to share their view on, it could be any aspect of your product or your service or your offering, uh, the better. And, and be really open about it, not come preconceived, it's gonna be like this, the price gonna be that, or I'm gonna do it this way, it's gonna look like that, and so forth, it's gonna be named this. No, no, be open with it, because uh, in today's consumption, uh, on a consumer level, business to consumer, business to business as well, it's, uh, there is a very strong force, uh, if, you don't, if you're not sort of paying attention to that and getting it right from that perspective, you're gone, you don't, you don't enter the market well enough and you won't get the money that you want. Uh, so you can't create miracles like that. The only way you create that miracle is by constantly circling back, constantly validating, constantly be open to hear what is my target audience saying. Yeah, um, completely agree with that. And I think there's, um, it's a nice segue into how it is that you really do get crisp on what the problem is that you're solving, and that's tapping into your potential customers. So I'm actually sort of gonna fire it right back to these guys, and it's almost going back to where Matt was. Um, and maybe just if you can, um, go into a bit more detail, Matt, about the way that you engage with those customers early. Um, there's a bit of a, um, a bit of methodology with, with Lean Startup where you don't suggest what your solution is um, in those early conversations. You really just work with your potential customers just talking about the problem. Um, and the reason for that is that as soon as you give them a solution, you're creating bias. But if you're genuinely talking to them about their problem and it's in a very open way, um, some of the things that they will tell you and some of the, the, the very rich knowledge they will give you, which might actually be that the avenue that you're staring down with your solution is the completely wrong one. Um, there's a lot of value in those early and ongoing conversations. So yeah, Matt, if you could just um, dig deeper a little bit into those conversations that you have with your customers and how you have those conversations to get the best information. Yep, so I think it's worth saying it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, I'm four years into, into my startup company now. We've, we've been paid by customers, but I'm still having new conversations just this week. We're still having new conversations about, about pain points within the industry. Um, so going right back to the start, it was, it's really um, just that the opportunity to dig deep into, into you know, a current trend. You know, we work in the sustainability and, and, and productivity drives that everyone's trying to make to, to feed the growing populations and to, um, and to protect, protect the environment. So it's very easy to get people talking about what they're trying to do. Um, you know, and I'll come away from a meeting with sort of uh, 10 ideas of, of, what a, of what a company's currently trying to do uh, within that space. Uh, and then as the conversations are developing and, and I'm listening, I'm writing some things down and, and sort of validating what customers are doing. Uh, I'm also thinking about how we can, you know, lead, um, lead the customers towards some of the ideas that we've got in mind because it's not always so straightforward that you can just, you know, introduce something and expect them to, to understand it or to, or to, you know, comment on it. So quite often there's, there's a little gap there and you have to be quite subtle about, um, about um, you know, steering a conversation to focus in, in, a, in a place where you'd like to be. As a matter of fact, from a business-to-business -business perspective, this is where that process is very powerful because uh, most corporates have lots of problems and challenges they're trying to solve all the town and uh, time. And if they have uh, an external person like Matt or Chelsea coming, talking to him about a, a potential, not a solution, but about the problem, um, the exposure talk and, and, and the description of how this works and, and what impact it has and, and you know what the solutions they're thinking of themselves uh, actually is a huge help for a company often. 
Um, I know, for example, UCE has, has run a number of sessions with uh, the likes of Redbus and Christchurch Airport and so forth about business challenges and asking students to literally just be open-minded, how would you solve this? And the reason they're doing it because they're getting very, very different view on how can this be done. And, uh, and that's very, very, very important. And so this is where startups are, are really truly cool for, a, for, a, for an established corporate because they're they are very nimble, they're very fast, very open, and they learn extremely fast, right? So that's, that's incredibly vital. Cool. Um, just in terms of the customer, something that I wanted to um, these guys to talk through a little bit with you is the fact that there's very much a difference between a user and your end customer. Um, and that's understanding the difference between someone who is using your product or your service and the person that's paying the bill, because sometimes they're not the same person. So there's a lot of value in going in and really understanding not only who's using your products and the, the behaviors around that, which is where some of that early customer validation comes in, but you might be a completely different conversation with the person who's actually writing the check. So um, whichever of you guys wanted to pick up on the value of, um, I mean, sometimes it's actually quite a process as well, so perhaps the process that you went through to identify who it is that actually pays the bill um, and the value of having that knowledge. I can start. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a big process, um, you know, it's real, and if you've got a structure before you start, I think that's probably key, key to, key to um, understanding the difference between your user and the person paying. So if you've, got a, if you've got a structure in mind where each time you're meeting a new person within an organisation, you're, you're going through that validation and that qualification, you're, you're asking the right questions. And then I think the process is, is really about sort of identifying who the decision makers are within, within an organisation and you know, who people that may object to, to your solution or, or the, the, you know, even solving the problem that you've identified. There's always a number of different uh, priorities for businesses. Um, so really it's that process of trying to, uh, of trying to create a group, you know, get a group within an organization for, for a complex sale and bringing everybody on the journey with you. So the, at the point where you actually start to talk about your solution and demonstrate your product, then you're doing it to everybody in the company that matters at the same time. People get the chance to raise objections, and they, and they will. But you get to answer those questions um, in, front of, in front of everybody else, which basically in a, in empowers the customer to be able to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is a, relates it back to the, the problem where we start, right? So if you identify a problem which is e extremely big for a corporate, so you had uh, classic, almost like share of, 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 of wallet, right? The, the cost of buying the solution and the, the, the problem it solves within the organization has a correlation between who's making the decision. So classic, if you take a business to business, I'm more a business to business person, sort of my sales. So if you're buying a computer mouse today, it costs, I don't know, $15. Probably most people in the organization can do that without having to ask their boss, right? But if they're gonna buy a new IT system or new application, uh, all of a sudden you need to have a lot more people involved. And that's, that's really part of the thing you'll find out about the, the, the problem identification and, 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 and laying out the impact of where it sits in the organization. As you go through from a business to business, through the layers of organization, if this has, for example, the attention of a CEO, uh, like in Matt's conversation here, right, the sustainability, uh, environmental impact for big uh, production uh, um, companies are really important, uh, are becoming more important. So all of a sudden you can, you, your audience changes, the decision process changes. Uh, this is again about being open about it and then in your validation and just keep chasing those validations. Mm. So ours was quite interesting because we have 
business business to business on one side with our New Zealand businesses, but then we have business to consumer on the other side when we then sell in these products to Chinese consumers. So that was a big question at the start because not only are you segmenting that market, but well, you're segmenting both markets and then deciding how you basically approach them to get them on board. So how we, in the very early stages with the New Zealand companies, what we actually did is, because um, having low budget and being a startup, we walked around all the tourist shops in Christchurch saying we had a university assignment that we just like your advice about and said, what are your most popular products brought by Chinese consumers? And we were getting the same response of um, honey and skincare. So that's what initially made us um, segment into the New Zealand, um, small and medium New Zealand skincare market. So and then we went to, had to understand that and specifically find out, okay, what's their specific problem with going to China? And then on a deeper level, so that we like figured out that a lot of skincare companies don't sell into China because of the animal testing regulations. So that our solution was e-commerce. So that's kind of how we did it all on that side. And then on the Chinese side, it's been a little bit more difficult, especially having a lower budget and not being able to be in the place where our consumers live. But that's what I'm doing at the moment. And I guess it's about not just understanding that surface level about you know, their age, their occupation, it's actually about understanding, okay, what are their views on climate change? Are they feminist? And all that kind of stuff and breaking it right down to exactly how you want to position your brand in order to make them decide to buy it. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's actually a, a pretty cool segue, jumping ahead slightly, but um, talking about channels. And sales is one of the areas that we'll tap into today. But there's... Um, something really valuable that comes out from all this customer engagement, and that is essentially them telling you what they want, what they might pay, and even where to find them. So I wonder if you guys want to just talk a little bit about those channels and how it is that you identified the, the channels to sale. Yeah, I mean, I can start sort of from a very generic perspective. I'm interested to hear from, from both Matt and Chelsea because I think they've got very different channels to market. Mm -hmm. So being a business to business, uh, it, it's simple. You can sell yourself, so it's direct sales. So you have your sales force. They go talk to customers and they sell. Uh, the alternative is you find uh, different types of channel partners and there's a whole wealth of them. So there's distributors who will literally stock your product and sell to other resellers who will sell to a client. That's a two-tier strategy. One-tier strategy is you've got a strategic partners, you'll call them, or partners who uh, are, are big enough and have a relationship with a customer that enables them to get uh, like effectively high up the ranks and therefore are able to sell the products at a better price. Uh, that's a one-tier strategy. And then lastly, you have what I call strategic technology partners. Now you're creating, with a technology product, you create alignments between uh, when you sell your product, you can also sell another product, uh, or your partner's uh, sort of technology partner can sell your product as a part of their product. It's a sort of very traditional ways of, of selling. There's also agents around in China, a lot of agents around because it's such a, a specific market. Uh, in Europe, between US and Europe, there used to be a lot of agents, agent sales as well. Uh, and then, of course, there is uh, good old networking, which I think is, is another part we'll come back to. But uh, just a little stat here in terms of sales, right? Uh, uh, in business to business, 80, over 85% of sales in the world is done through a warm introduction. And cold calling is only 7%. Um, so, uh, in, in business to business, that's the way to do it. And the way to get that is through networking. I think I'm sure we'll cover that. But. Mm -hmm. um, 
with us, it was kind of a no-brainer of what channels we would sell through because generally speaking, there's probably three ways you can go with selling into China. That's using Daigo, which is basically the equivalent of agents, um, selling in brick and mortar stores or selling through e-commerce. And like I mentioned before, with having skincare brands on board, none of them would have wanted to test on animals and get rid of their ethics for the point of selling in brick and mortar stores. So that's originally why we were completely all over e-commerce. Also, by going through e-commerce, you're able to bypass a lot of the um, laws and regulations that you'd normally have to face going in through a brick and mortar store. Um, so that was the first decision, but then what e-commerce store, which yeah. if anyone knows anything about the Chinese market can know it's a really, really interesting and beautiful market, but can be quite confusing for someone that's not used to it. So that's what we're going on at the moment. You have Alibaba, which is dominating that market, mm -hmm. but for companies that don't have any brand awareness, like the ones we've got on, it could be really expensive to go on that without that. So we've actually um, came up with the idea to do our incubation phase where we're launching on smaller e-commerce platforms in China that have a more specialised market, especially in the beauty segment, in order to gr grow that brand awareness and build, yeah, build that trust with our consumers and then launch on these larger e-commerce platforms yeah. in the future. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting, Mads. I think we've tried all of the options that you that you listed off there, and we're still we're still working through them. Again, it's still it's all validation. You know, you have to see what's um, what's going to work for your business. You know, what's successful. So don't discount anything at the beginning. You know, make sure keep everything really open. Um, where we've had success, you know, we've started with direct sales. You know, we've literally picking up the phone, uh, using leveraging local networks, people like. Uh, XStart, for example, uh, NZTNE uh, have been really, really helpful to us. Um, so leveraging those networks to get introductions, so they're not, you know, things are not cold, and then direct sales. Uh, one a really powerful approach for us um, that's been successful is um, to try to leverage funding opportunities to get to conferences and, and networking events. Uh, again, those are just fantastic opportunities. Like uh, we, we had a, a, the chance to go to a, a major. Food production conference in the U.S. Uh, and we—it uh, was just one day, 2,000 uh, customers in, in one huge exhibition space. Uh, through New Zealand connections, again, it's all about connections. Uh, we got introduced to about 30, uh, 30 leads that day, uh, and you know we've been living basically dining out on that for the last six months. Uh, through that, we met uh, uh, channel partners um, such as the big food equipment manufacturing companies. And um, you know, we started discussions about whether we could use our products to differentiate uh, their products over their competitors. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're not just a small company from New Zealand. You're, you've got a large channel partner that sells you know, in, in five regions across the globe, um, interested in your idea, and, and, and actually willing to help as well. You know, that's anything that, that you can do to boost their sales, they'll listen to. Absolutely, this is a really important point that when, when you're looking at a channel, but no, particularly in business to business, but I think it has the same impact on a consumer side, right? Because obviously in China, Alibaba is a well-known, well-established, trusted uh, e-commerce platform, so people have no issues buying there. Um, and I think sort of uh, that, that has changed probably over the last maybe 10 years, maybe five years or so. Uh, but, but, but finding the small little niche ones is a great way of finding the little bit of a cheaper way of getting to your, to your endpoint. I think the um, from from what Matt is saying is 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 is, uh, 
if you're selling business to business, uh, Meta selling into big production sites, uh, costing millions of dollars to establish. So any any sort of when production stops, that cost lots and lots and lots of money, right? So if you're coming with a product and you're saying, yeah, this is really great, it works, and I'm from New Zealand, and it all looks great, it, it's for a, for a senior person, it's very risky reality, right? It's super risky. So if you can find an established uh, partner network that can de-risk it uh, because of ex existing relationship with customers or something like that, that's a vital part of, of getting through because of the risky proposition there is traditionally and naturally with a startup. It's also super valuable because you have this agility in coming up with new cool products that they couldn't do themselves. But finding a way of de-risking it is where a channel is often valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. And just actually, on, while we're on that, actually, I think just one thing that I think is important for, 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 for startups to, uh, there seems to be this stigma around sales. Um, and I think my experience, uh, I've done a lot of startup companies, I've been in sales, my pretty much my whole life. Uh, however, I think as a, as a founder of a company, you are the best salesperson for many years until you have a full <laughs> sales team, right? So at the end of the day, if you don't like it, look yourself in the mirror saying, I wanna make this company successful, I've gotta be a salesperson. That's just how it is. So you just might as well get behind that. That's how it's going to be. That's how you're gonna make your company successful by selling. And you are, as a founder, by far the best salesperson for a good while. So. Uh, Get sales books, there's lots of good sales books out there. Read them, talk to other salespeople, get some training, get some insights on how to do it, and just go and do it, right? You're not gonna get it right first, second, and the first 15 times, but you are the best salesperson because you know the product, what it can do, how it can go, how much you're willing to give away in terms of discount, commercial value, blah, blah, blah. Please, just keep that in mind. You are the best salesperson. I think one thing to add to that is don't be afraid to practice, no. you know? Exactly. <laughs> it, it, we've, I've been working with these guys for a while now and we've had some real shocking sessions where we've, we've been role playing and trying to get things done, but don't be afraid to practice. You don't want to be practicing in front of a really uh, hot lead, um, you know, where you've got, you haven't got one chance, but you've, you've got to do well. So, um, yeah, we just spend a lot of time practicing and, and you know, and trying to perfect the process, exactly. yeah. And it's still a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, just picking up on some of the, um, the sales talk there, and I think something that we can um, all agree on is um, something that we've experienced as well, is that a lot of the ability to sell comes from confidence. And so in order to be able to sell well, it's also about digging down and thinking, what can I do to create that confidence? And I think one of the things that we've seen, apart from just practicing, is to be really, really crisp on your value proposition so that it becomes a bit less of a sell and a bit more of a tell, and it's really authentic, and it's because you absolutely, totally believe in what you're saying, and that really comes off. So I'd love for these guys to talk a little bit about the value these, they see in a value proposition and how they find them. Yeah, I mean, if I should start, I mean, from a mechanical perspective, there's some great there's a value proposition canvas out there, just like the lean canvas. Use it, it's extremely simple. And, and just like what we have said all along, is validated, 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 and validated again, right? So you're never going to get the value proposition right first time. On the contrary, you work with work with it all the time to figuring out where does it sit. And to make things worse uh, in, in that perspective, when you, particularly in business to business, it's maybe slightly different, I'm not consumer, so I couldn't say, but in business to business, the value proposition changes because of uh, different events that makes a customer interested in talking to you. Mm -hmm. um, so there could be uh, this called compelling event, we just talked about it, but it's the, uh, it, there's internal pressure, there's external pressure, there's personal things, and there is 
the consequence of inaction, right? So if you don't do anything, what will happen? So those four factors creates a pressure for a company saying, oh, we need to find a solution for this. Right. Sometimes that's something you have to uncover. It takes layers and layers and lots of meetings to find out. But when you find it, you can, you can articulate a specific value proposition to that, to that a solution to that. Right? And when you do that, it, sales become a hell of a lot easier. So very powerful. Yeah, it's um, interesting you say that, Olivia, because before I started this business, I used to work part-time as a brand ambassador, and I hated it because I would have to just sell and promote so many products that I just really didn't believe in and I, yeah, so I hated it. But the sales side of my business is what I cover more and I love it now because it's, I have seen the demand in China and I've seen what this like business model can do for, for our potential suppliers and I just, when I'm talking to them, it's, I don't know, I, I don't feel like I'm having to do a sales pitch or anything. I just feel like by describing what we can actually do for them is that in itself. So mm -hmm. yeah, indicating your exact value proposition. And for a big value proposition that we offer is actually just providing a really trusted service. You know, it's um, a lot of the companies we've talked to have been burned by um, um, agents because obviously once someone takes your product and on in over in China, you have no idea how they're positioning it and what they're yeah. doing with it. So I think having a brand that's doing it for them, who's based in New Zealand, um, and who we've built really strong relationships with, just giving them that trust mm -hmm. has been a huge, um, a huge part of our value proposition. And then on the other side as well, Chinese consumers have also dealing with a lot of mistrust in the market at the moment, especially with skincare. So I think. One of our marketing tools, which it's not my favourite to do, but it's actually Millie and I are influencers for our brand in China because what that does is it adds to the authenticity of these actually being New Zealand-made products. And, yeah, they, they're getting them. So I'd say that's us. I think you mentioned some really good words there about trust and authenticity yeah. and, knowing, and knowing not only having a value proposition, um, which can take you know a long time to develop, but once you've got to the point where you can describe your business in, in seven words, you know, then it's about how you want to portray that value proposition. What what voice are you trying to put across to your customers? What what messages behind behind the value proposition are you are you trying to portray? Um, so then it's sort of understanding a bit about marketing, like you mentioned, uh, and and then also you know just just sticking true to your own values. So for us, it's all about trying to create that element of trust, you know, trying to say that we're a partner that we can work with, we can help. You know, we've worked with other people in the industry to develop their, uh, their sustainability and, and increase their productivity. Um, and we're going to bring our knowledge into, into, that into, into the new different companies to help them on their journey. So that's one thing we've tried trying to develop. It still take, it takes time. But try to develop that voice uh, and that me the, you know, message behind uh, what we're saying. Absolutely, and I think it's just to the point of uh, what we were talking about the channels before, uh, what Chelsea is saying, just making it crystal clear. So the, the value proposition uh, is multifaceted, right? You've got a value proposition to a channel, a value proposition to a consumer. Uh, even to in business to business, uh, you've got uh, technical influencers, financial decision makers, and financial influencers, technical decision makers, and overall decision makers. All of them have specific value propositions. Sounds like a hell of a lot of work, but if you get all that right, sales becomes lots, first of all, a lot more fun because you actually have real good conversations uh, because 
you know a lot more about their challenges and therefore I can articulate a, a solution that makes sense to them. So, yeah. Cool. Um, what I'm really liking um, that we're hearing about the value of your business and how you articulate it as a proposition or, or the way that you tell the world why you're awesome is that it might not just be about the physical product or the differences in your service. It's, um, it's much more than that. You know, words like trust and authenticity and credibility um, are just as important um, as that more practical stuff. So we've probably got about five more minutes for us to just keep talking at you, and then it's going to be a chance for you to ask us some questions, so have those bubbling away. But um, just to reiterate, we've talked about the value of the problem um, and really understanding that up front. That's a really important starting point um, and a great way to get some um, certainty around that problem is to engage with your customers. They're really, really critical um, and understanding the difference between a user um, and a payer, if you like. Um, then we've got the value. How do you extract the value and be really, really clear on what that is? And then there's the selling of that product or service or, um, or that value. But something that we've um, touched on today that we haven't necessarily um, drawn out is, is the power of networking and networks. So I really wanted to spend another five minutes for each of these guys to talk about their experience um, and the value of networks and how it's, um, yeah, how it's worked for them. Yeah, man, I, I, as I said before, 85% uh, of business to business sales has been done uh, through a warm introduction. So that in a, in a, if you're in the business-to-business -business market, your best way of selling is kind of through someone saying, hey, you should talk to this chap because he has a real, real, real good product for you. Um, that's as simple as it is. So if you're gonna sell, don't try and sell yourself. Work with the network and that it's going to events, that's going to reach out as a part of your value proposition. Uh, when you're talking to customers who are interested uh, and you're validating all that, you know, saying, hey, who else should I talk to? Who else should I talk to? You get these warm, get one to give you three, four, five uh, introductions, as many as, as introductions as you can get. And, and even to the point where you say, well, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you more discount. I'm not, I don't like the word discount. <laughs> Matt knows I don't like the word discount. But if it gives me 10 really nice, warm introductions, well, then I actually have to give a bit of discount or give some value back to them. It could be more consulting services. So the, the power of network is essential for survival because you as a single person, um, I'm working with a, with a, with a startup. She's, uh, she's 22 years old. She's phenomenal at networking. If she hadn't done all this networking, she wouldn't be where she is today to be honest with you. Uh, so I, I can only encourage you to do this as a vital part of your, your work and working, creating your solutions, validating every aspect of it from pricing to channels to et cetera is, is, is a chance to validate and create a network. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think the mentors that Millie and I have around us are the reasons our business is at the point it is today. You know, during um, doing programs like the Summer Startup, you get um, introduced to people that have so much more experience and um, contents than you do. And if you really make the effort to get to know them and get them on board, then you know that's vital to a young person who probably has next to no. And um, an example of that is I remember early on in Millie and I's journey, we wanted to have a meeting with NZTE. And um, we got an email back in two month long wait for the next meeting, um, sitting down for lunch with our mentor that day. And he's like, oh, I've got a mate in it. Sort of saw a meeting that following week. So I think it's so important um, to, yeah, really, I, I'm iffy about the word networking. I don't know why, I just think, I think it's 
really important to like get to know everybody on that personal level and actually get to know them in that sense and then the networks naturally flow yeah. um, which is what I found um, but yeah it's been so important especially for someone like me who's not abundant in networks so. and, and I think the so this is this is a, a great example and I think it's exactly what we need to do so one thing I'll say is, is just remember to to recognize the networks that's an important part of the giving back. So they're giving you time, they're introducing yeah. you, they're, they're kind of, they're creating the credibility to, mm. for, for, for you to get to someone else. So giving the, the feedback, hey, that was a great meeting, thank you very much for setting that up. Yeah. Uh, if it's to a customer that leads to a sale, be sure to communicate back to whoever introduced, hey, fantastic, thank you, it led to a sale, I'm really, and, and if you making money at the time, you know, glass of, uh, bottle of wine or chocolate, whatever, whatever, you know, sins they have. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think I'd just say networking doesn't come uh, naturally to everybody, you know, yeah. and it's often really difficult to start, but it's one of those things that just snowballs, you know. You, 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 you know, pluck up the confidence and make, you know, a, a, a call to somebody, like, in, you know, whether it's at university or whether it's at Xstart or whether it's at uh, NZT&E. And then before you know it, there's, there's 10 people in your network and then it goes again and then there's 100 people, you know, that, that you've been connected to. Uh, and I would just say there's so much help out there, you know. If you really do have ideas and you're, you're passionate about them, then um, ask for help and, it, you know, it, that's what happened to us. It just snowballs. Um, so it's really powerful. Yeah. And I think actually as well, is if you have an opportunity to go to a conference or an event, um, just don't rock up. I think we had a little bit of it this morning here. What is what is you want to get out today, right? So if you go to any events or any networking event, could just be local events, you know, actually figure out who is going, figure out who do you want to talk to, who is there. Is there some person you know who might know someone you want to talk to? You know, from my perspective, straight over and talk to them. Could you introduce me to this person? Because that's why you're there. So have that prepared as a part of going to a conference or an event. Don't just rock up. Have looked at who is there, what do you want to get out of it. If you have no particular goal, why go? Right. If there's no one you want to network with, you shouldn't go to that event. But if there are people who want to network on, have it planned, have it measured out. What are you going to say to them? What's your elevator pitch? Uh, and, and again, work those networks. If someone knows someone else, get them to introduce you. Actively do something. That's really important. As, you, as I mentioned before, as a founder, look yourself in the mirror. You're the one who's going to make it happen. And as you go offshore, um, you know, there are organizations like Callahan Innovation, for example, and now putting delegations together for, for every sort of major, uh, you know, event in different industries. And you, if you can get part of that, then all of a sudden you're not one person. There's, there's 90 of you going to, to a conference and, and just the energy and, and being able to sort of work into those networks uh, are really powerful. So, you know, it's actually quite easy to get onto those missions. If, you get, if you've got a little bit of funding behind you, you know, then it's, it's really easy to, to, um, to become part of a bigger group. I guess um, the last thing I'd add to that is that you never know who's in the room. Um, and you know, there might be events that you turn down, they're too big, they're too small, it's not my tribe or whatever. But never forget that every person in that room is a mother or a father or a daughter or a son or a friend or a cousin of someone else who might be totally into what you're doing. Might be your next co-founder, might be your next funder in 10 years time. Um, could just be someone who's gonna buy your product or service. So you know, never disregard. Um, who else might be in that room that you can't actually see. Right, so we've talked for quite a while. We can probably talk for a bit more, but really want to open up the floor to questions. Um, so yeah, pick our brains. Yep. So I might need a mic.
Hi, my name's Erica. I am a co-director of a business called The Pediatric Nurse. And I was just wondering, how do you get yourself over that sort of hump or tipping point of becoming a profitable business? Um, for some context, we sell direct-to-consumer education for nurses and midwives, uh, but we actually just have signed on with a tech startup that they will sell directly to healthcare organisations on our behalf. So we're close, but we're not yet profitable. How much profit you get for each sale, right? So you can do the calculation of that, and therefore you know how many sales you need to, to be profitable. It's always good to have. I like to have a line of sight where I need to go. Um, that makes it easier and it sort of focuses the mind. Um, I think that's one thing. Looking at a channel is, is, is a good way because they can open up doors, have more salespeople on the ground. That's often the challenge. Um, and I think if, if, um, if that doesn't... So channel partners... Uh, first of all, they cost money because they need to they need to have a, a cut of the cut of the deal, right? So they need to make some money, but but also they cost money. You need to give them sales tools. You need to give them presentations. You might give them some sales training as well, just so they can smartly articulate what your value proposition is, and therefore why they should buy. And then on top of that, maybe help them with negotiations around the price. Um, it, it, that there'll, there'll be some things, but so it takes effort to get channel partners up and running. So it's not just a uh, straightforward from there, but it's, it's a good start. You know, again, the, the, the broader base of people who can go and talk to, and sell your product, that's a, that's a good starting point, because uh, if, if you're a small little team and you, you're running around. The other thing is, is kind of push yourself, and this is where the visibility of where do I need to be to be profitable, just keep pushing for that line. I want to be here, and just hold yourself and the team to account to that. I'm not saying that makes it any easier, but it's, it, it makes you prioritize um, Actually, even sometimes administrative things that you sometimes, if you're not a natural-born salesperson, it's quite easy to say, oh, no, I'll just do this instead. But no, I need to do this. And again, it's again that looking yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, I need to be here, I want to be here, and, and, and we're going to drive it hard. And, uh, but definitely ask help, look at help, get, get some support around you as well. It's, it's important. Uh, there's great tools. There's, there's even down to sales courses, uh, not particularly expensive, but well worth doing just to get the, get the tools polished off. We can talk more afterwards as well if you want to. Yeah. Any other comments? I think profitability is quite an interesting topic. You know, we've um, we sort of put together plans saying we were going to be profitable in 18 months. Uh, obviously, we had investment behind us, and then we went out to some of the larger investors in the US, for example, and they and they look at it and they looked at us like we're crazy. We're like, why do you want to be profitable in 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 such a short period of time? You need to be more ambitious. You know. So that's, that's one way of looking at it, but it, it really depends what you're trying to achieve. So maybe you know, focus on profitability is one thing, but think about the ambition of your, of your company as well, and other ways that you can bring in money to, to be more ambitious. You know, that's one of the things, one of the messages I've got quite a lot uh, about from later stage investors is, is, is about ambition. Shy. We've got time for probably two or three more. No question's a dumb question, by the way. It can be simple as you like. Got one at the back. Oh, yep. <laughs> um, how much experience do you think you need to uh, kind of start working on an idea or a, or a startup? 
straight away. Any, anyone is an entrepreneur in my eyes. It could be a five-year-old, it could be a 10-year-old, it could be an 85-year-old. Frankly, in my eyes, anyone has great ideas. Uh, and I will absolutely encourage them to do. So I mean, this is where I like lean startup. You can have a shower in the morning and some smart idea pop into your head. You know, you spend a, an hour over a coffee and breakfast looking and polishing it off a little bit more. Uh, and then by mid, mid, midday, you can be talking to some of your friends and colleagues and say, hey, what do you think about this? And they say, oh, this is brilliant, absolutely. You spend a couple more hours refining it, and in the afternoon, you might have coffee with a couple of um, potential customers who could buy something like that, and they'll say, oh, this is crap, don't do it. Or some will say, this is great, I love it. And so what I'm saying with that is, if you have an idea, within the space of a day, you can actually know if you've got something that's worth maybe saying, I'm gonna spend a couple more days doing this. But again, what I'm doing is driving myself to the, to, the, to the people with the money as fast as I can to understand, is there something here worth looking at? Uh, so I don't think there's any, any age gap, any experience you have to have. You, you, if you have an idea and you think it's good and you're passionate about it and, and you know, it get stuck in. But do those sort of steps. Lean Canvas is a great tool, so look that up as well. Yeah, I would completely agree with you from someone that when I first started uni, I thought starting a business was, you know, a good 30, 40 years away from me. You know, it doesn't seem like something that's that achievable, especially when you're a student and we're not the most financially secure, <laughs> secure breeds. But with the programs that are involved, especially at UC, like we're so lucky to have the Center of Entrepreneurship who does programs like the Summer Startup Program. And they're things that actually enable anyone to give their idea a go. So, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, you know another thing you could do is if you're not quite certain of what to do is maybe just reach out to some of the Christchurch startup companies. You know the ones that have come out of UC, uh, and our Lincoln University is there as well um, that we work quite closely with, and just ask them. You know, if you could spend some time with them, because all we've all had so, so much help. So I think people would be very prepared to pay that forward and help you guys out with all your ideas. Mm -hmm. You know. Absolutely, and as you can hear the way I was explaining it before, again, it's, it's actually fundamentally all about networking, sharing your idea and, 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 and getting feedback on that idea. The other thing I would say, just uh, as, a, as a thing to think about, is if, if your idea after a week of, of being bashed around by a whole bunch of uh, other people and it still sounds like a good idea, um, don't be shy, start a company and actually start two companies. One company to own an IP company, and all your idea sits in the IP company. It costs a couple of hundred dollars to start a company, but I would, if you really have spent the time validating and this way your confidence in why you spend $400 or $100, whatever it costs to start a company, makes it well worth doing. Now you've got a company that owns another company that has all the IP. From there, you can grow into a new Zero or a new Google. Uh, you've got your IP in control, you've got your ownership in control, and you're good to go. Yeah, and as soon as you're incorporated, people will actually start to take you seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I'd love to add um, to answer that question around um, how much experience you need to have is that I think I've seen it work in both regards where people have very little experience and by that I mean domain knowledge which is in a particular area but it's really quite easy, well not easy but what you can do is go out and find someone that does have that technical knowledge or that domain knowledge you know if you're the hustler, if you're the one that can sell well and get things done or if you've got good business skills then finding someone else that's got the technical knowledge. Um, you know, you can very quickly kick off a business. And the other thing is, is that even if you do have that domain knowledge, I've certainly seen people that have get, gotten quite far 
because they know so much about a particular area and they can sell it and grow it, but eventually you're also going to come to a standstill because you can't run a business on your own and then you're going to be looking for those that have the more of the business acumen and the sales capability. So I think the answer is any experience will serve you well, but only to a point. But I think the, the differentiator that I observe is the hustle. It's the people that will just carry on and keep going and sell, even though they don't really know how to sell or find the domain knowledge if they're a good seller. So over and above experience, I think it's, it's hustle. Absolutely, because it's not, I mean, it, it, startups are hard. They're by nature hard. And so you're going to have a real hard time. I mean, Chelsea, she's right in the middle of it and, and Matt is in the middle <laughs> of it. There's a lot of sleepless nights and lots of evenings and, and questions, I don't know how to do this, but we've got to go around it. So networks can help you, talk to colleagues, peers, and so forth, but it's going to be a lot of hard work. But what is also cool, you're creating something completely new in the market and be able to take that to the market. That's really exciting. Um, yeah. Okay. We've probably got time for one more question. In the front. Go for it. Okay. Um, you talked about network a lot. What are your um, tricks and tips for um, network? Like a pickup line and a network event. <laughs> <laughs> What's your pickup line? <laughs> I don't know about pickup lines, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, elevator pitch. Value proposition, elevator pitch. Um, you've got to bear in mind when you're talking to a person, when you talk more than 20 seconds, they're already thinking about an answer. And that means they're not listening to what you're saying anymore, right? So your elevator pitch, if it's any more than 15 seconds, 20 seconds, then it's gone, right? So you want to make that really compelling, really interesting, and very sharp, and something you should be able to fire off in, in, with anyone. That's really important. Um, and that's one of the most important pickup lines, to be honest, because if you say something compelling, then you continue conversation. I think just leverage your... Um your, uh, your background, so UC is really important to you. Even now, I sometimes pick up the phone and it's people that I don't know and say I'm from Lincoln University, uh, so I'm using, using the power of, the, of that brand. And then as soon as we go overseas, it's about, you know, we're from New Zealand and we're everything that New Zealand represents and you know, there's a lot of amazing work going on in, ag in the ag tech sector about the New Zealand story. Uh, and then just use some of, you know, look on, look, like, obviously sector specific, but I look on, on the ag tech story, get something interesting to open a conversation with about you know, the fact that New Zealand's the best in the world at, at ag tech, for example. Yeah, with Entree, we do a lot of work for this with our sponsors about you know, when they're at our events, what do they want people to come up and talk to them about? And they said, to be honest, a lot of the time they've just finished their long work at day, um, long day at work and they just want to have a chat. So. That's what I've heard from a lot of people, that if you actually just go up and start a conversa um, conversation about common interests, it can be this event and why you're here today, did you go to UC, simple things like that. And then once you um, like initially started that, that's when your elevator pitch comes in and that's when you, yeah, continue that. I, I would say no, that's absolutely, that's brilliant as well. And I think it's, the other thing is just very, very, very simple. So you're sitting in a, in a suit, you know, so if you're in a business-to-business -business world and you're talking yeah. about business, you've got a business, I'm sorry, T-shirt, a black T-shirt with a pair of jeans and unshaven, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, unfortunately. And New Zealand are maybe a little bit conservative and it might work in America and all sorts of stuff. But if you're doing business, wear a shirt and uh, put a jacket on. And you can have jeans on, that's fine, that's not an issue. But now you look like a business person. And when you're in the simple thing is when you shake someone's hand, and this is for, for women and, and men, it's very, very important. Get that hand out and shake, show that you want to shake someone's hand and look at them. Yeah. 
-hmm. Now you got an opening to say your value proposition or your, your elevator pitch, done. Right, but just get, it's, it's cool to be all student and t-shirt like, but yeah. when you're doing business, yeah, cool. I've got an elevator pitch. <laughs> um, we are out of time, which is oh, a good we time can talk after that. initial interest. But um, just to say, um, thanks for coming along and listening in. Hopefully you found some stuff of value in amongst that. The four of us will all be around for a little while to come. So if you had some other questions or you wanted to network and uh, practice your elevator pitch, come out and find us a bit later. Thanks very much. Kia ora. How are we? Are we pumped? Woo! Woo! Yeah. All right. Who thought we were going straight to lunch? Me too, sorry about that. My bad. Uh, so, I think that we'll just launch straight into our next couple of speakers. We've got two speakers and then we'll have them both up for a Q&A and then we're gonna have some kai. So, our first speaker is Brad Lake. He is the co, oh no, I've just lost my notes, how embarrassing. Don't worry, I got them back. Brad Lake, take two. Our first speaker is Brad Lake. He's the co-founder of Plant-Based NZ, which is an umbrella company for four hemp-based businesses covering food, clothing, beauty products, and nutrition. Welcome, Brad, to the stage. So uh, my name is Brad Lake. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a co-founder of Plant-Based NZ and actually uh, five companies underneath our umbrella company, Plant-Based NZ. Um, so I guess today I sort of, uh, I really wanted to present to you guys around probably more the journey um, to get to the point where we are today um, and, and sort of how that started for me and then uh, how we're here now. So um, about three years ago, um, I suffered a rugby injury. Um, I had a shoulder injury which required surgery. Um, I went through the surgery here in Christchurch, and uh, I came out the other side of that, and I was on uh, tramadol, um, anti-inflammatories, sort of like a range of pharmaceutical drugs just to sort of, you know, help with the recovery, which didn't really help um, as I thought they were gonna. And uh, so out of that, I, um, I spent the next six weeks pretty much, not in a bit of a haze, but um, wasn't very pleasant and didn't enjoy the experience at all. And uh, so I came out of that, sort of recovered, as such, and uh, came back and played rugby the next year and uh, properly dislocated my shoulder uh, three or four times. And uh, so I needed another surgery. And the experience I'd gone through um, after my first surgery pretty much uh, led me down the track of finding out a way to uh, make that recovery and experience better. And uh, so I started to do a bit of research into food, uh, nutrition, um, how our diet affects our recovery, how it affects our overall health, and uh, pretty quickly realised that we live in a uh, somewhat warped um, society around how we see food, um, nutrition, and sort of how we uh, see the environment. So um, started down the track of you know looking at how the connections between um, you know, some of the impacts of, of poor diet have on our, on, our, on society and, um, and sort of started to see that there was a um, real lack of understanding from, from people, um, particularly uh, our generation, the older generation, um, around what the impact that nutrition has on their bodies. And uh, so what that meant for me was leading up to my surgery, I um, completely radically changed my diet, um, cut out 
um, pretty much all dairy, cut out majority of animal products, um, went pretty much plant-based, um, probably about 80%, and cut out all processed food. And that journey led me um, into the surgery, and uh, I came out of that surgery, and three days later I was back at work and uh, off any kind of pain medication or anti-inflammatories and couldn't quite believe what I'd stumbled upon. So uh, in this change of diet, I was still uh, exercising, still going to the gym, um, and through that, I uh, wanted to still be taking a supplement. So I uh, started looking online for alternative protein supplements. Um, you know, not your typical whey, um, animal-based proteins, but looking at plant-based. And I met a guy who was selling hemp protein powder um, out of his house called Brendan McIntosh, who was a uh, pharmacist. And uh, so this was start, this was about uh, October 2017. Um, when I first met him, um, I'd obviously gone, spent a couple months sort of diving pretty deep in, into diet and nutrition, um, and then sort of the way that our food system um, works, um, or doesn't work. And uh, we sat down that night and we had a pretty long discussion around where we saw the issues and sort of how, how we would deal with them. Um, Brendan's a pharmacist, so he, on a day-to-day -day basis he deals with um, people with a lot of addiction problems. Um, and within that system, there's very little um, support or recovery um, in place for those people. It's more of a maintaining um, kind of like a stable state of mind um, until their next sort of um, methadone um, treatment and then uh, no real sort of emphasis on recovery or how to get out of that. Um, and then from my aspect, I was a rural manager for uh, ASB, so I had a portfolio of clients um, up in North Canterbury who, uh, who were um, ranging from sheep and beef, um, I had a chicken broiler unit, um, dairy farms, and uh, down my journey in, into my diet, I, um, I was also just started out as a, as a rural manager. And um, so I was seeing a lot of the issues that our ag sector is facing. Um, so when I started, we were at the bottom of the dairy downturn and it was the worst drought in uh, North Canterbury in 30 years. So I was having some pretty tough conversations, um, you know, with, uh, with family farmers and, you know, about the future of the business and when recovery was going to happen. And it sort of spooked me a wee bit that in a country where we're perceived to be some of the best food producers in the world um, in regards to quality um, and compliance, we still have an ag sector which, for a lot of farmers, doesn't make them a lot of money. Um, you know, you're talking about businesses with millions of dollars worth of equity, um, borrowing money, working capital just to stay alive. And uh, that, was, that was quite surprising to me, um, that how broadly um, that sort of applied. And, uh, and so I started to look at what other things are out there that we could do to diversify. What else can we get, what else, what are the trends doing? Um, what's sort of available to us that, would, that we could uh, start to tap into in the ag space? And uh, hemp kit coming up is something that was Predominantly um, easy to grow, uh, very low input, doesn't require sprays, insecticides, fungicides. Um, it's a pretty simple crop to grow. It's in and out in three months. We need water when it starts to grow. And the diversity of markets that hemp offered um, was really what attracted me to it. So the roots got incredible benefits um, from a skincare perspective. Stalk for um, a lot of uh, industrial purposes. I'm wearing a hemp, uh, hemp T-shirt. Um, and it's got um, a lot of benefits from um, carbon sequestration, so it's able to absorb um, up to four times more carbon than a typical pine forest, and it can do that in three months rather than 12 months. And uh, so 
Brent and I sort of had a bit of a had a bit of a revelation around the direction that we both wanted to head, and uh, so we uh, started getting into Beefy Green, which was uh, which was our first company, and. Um, so I guess we spent the next few months sort of getting our head around what this business was going to look like. We still had full-time jobs. Um, we were still sort of, you know, not too sure whether it was going to take off. And uh, I guess through that period, um, we sort of um, began to build a bit of a picture around what, what the higher purpose for our business was. So what did we really want our business to achieve at the end of the day? And what we really wanted was we wanted three businesses or four businesses um, that could essentially support people through revenue to put them through a lifestyle retreat. So we wanted to be able to bring people in, teach them how to eat, teach them how to relive their life, about mindfulness, about meditation, about how we can, our relationships with people affect us. And uh, so that was kind of our higher purpose. And I guess um, over the next uh, six months, we uh, developed our business, um, built, um, I guess, a little bit of a product range. We just could sell hemp seeds um, for pet food because hemp wasn't legal at that time, and we could sell oil, um, which, is, which was legal. So we started at the farmer's market about uh, Queen's birthday last year. Um, it, was, uh, it was cold and uh, pretty miserable, and uh, we got a lot of questions about um, whether we could smoke our T-shirts and you know, a lot of misinformation around um, hemp in general, and I guess that sort of awakened us to sort of what our role was going to be with the hemp industry and what, what the job ahead of us was going to look like because it purely came down to education. We've got full faith that uh, the crop and that uh, the products that we, that we, that we use are, are effective and do the work that we, we say they do. Um, so it was really just about convincing them. So we started there. Um, we, uh, over the next, I guess, once we'd, uh, once we'd started there, we quickly realised that we needed to, um, to be wearing hemp clothing. And uh, so out of that, we, uh, we started to look at research um, and find out who was doing hemp clothing um, around New Zealand and if we could just, just purely to buy some. It was costing us just as much to ship it here as it was to, uh, to buy the clothing. And uh, I guess, uh, and it was pretty much like potato sacks and it looked very hippie-ish. It was like flared jeans and stuff like that and not really something you'd want to be wearing um, uh, at any point in time. But, um, but we decided to chin it and, uh, and just get on with it. And uh, we reached out to a, to a young lady. She was doing a fashion degree down in Otago. Um, we asked her if she could make hemp clothing. She said no, that was quite expensive. Um, we asked her if we bought the fabric, could she do it? And she said... Um, no, there's a lot more to making clothing than, uh, than you just buying us some fabric. And, uh, and then we said, well, if we just move you up to Christchurch and pay for everything, can you make us clothing? Um, so she agreed to that. So two weeks later, she uh, dropped her course and uh, moved, up to, moved up to Christchurch. And uh, uh, our, new, our second company, New Zealand Hemp Apparel, was born. Um, so this was sort of about, I don't know, I guess uh, July last year. Um, and through this period with Brennan being a pharmacist, uh, we quickly came to realise that hemp had a lot of cosmetic benefits as well. Um, so we started to do, look into how we could deliver the hemp seed oil, which comes in a 250ml bottle, and convince them that it was really beneficial from a skin and healthcare perspective, psoriasis um, and eczema. And uh, consumers, um, they like to understand their product and they don't really like to uh, sort of vary out with, um, with what that product is capable of. They like it to be pretty simple and uh, easy to use. So um, we started a uh, cosmetic company called Kawaka, which uh, started off with a moisturising serum. And um, 
So that quickly, uh, that quickly took off. Um, Brenda being a pharmacist meant that we could go into uh, pharmacies with quite a bit of credibility and uh, got it put on the shelf. Um, so we're now um, stocking CDC Pharmaceuticals, which is essentially the main distributor for um, the life and uh, retail pharmacies around the country. Um, towards uh, on October um, this year, we're sort of running out of time, but um, we uh, won a food starter competition um, on October last year, and uh, that meant that we had entered a protein snack bar that we'd been making at the market, and the food starter prize was essentially an $85,000 package of full support from foodstuffs with New World, so it was going to be a Class A product stocked on the shelf. Um, it was uh, marketing, it was a business incubation program, and then support from the Ministry of Awesome um, in regards to having a desk in space. And uh, so over the past 10 months, we've been working on um, a snack bar, um, a kid's snack bar, to um, to essentially put on the shelves in the supermarket. And uh, we, once we won that prize, we were told that uh, Beefy Green wasn't a very good name for a product that was vegan and uh, for, for kids. And um, so I don't know why it took us that long to realise that, but um, food stuff sort of uh, implied that we really needed to change our name. So uh, we began Beefy Green, uh, uh, the Brothers Green, sorry. And uh, so that was, we incorporated that January this year. And um, over the past, uh, past Eight months we've been working on the food product and we launched it on Monday. So um, I guess uh, it's been... Uh, yeah. It's been, uh, I guess, the best thing about the hemp industry at the moment, this is what I want to talk to you guys about and, and promote to you guys, is that this is a brand new industry. Um, there's very few industries, I think, that uh, we've got the opportunity to start with a blank slate in New Zealand. And also, there hasn't been an opportunity within um, a single crop or a single product that has so many different uses. Um, incredibly beneficial. And just to give you a bit of context, you know, 12, uh, 10 months ago, we couldn't even sell hemp seeds to adults. And now we're selling, um, essentially, um, hemp in a snack bar form um, to kids through one of the mainstream supermarkets. So it just goes to show how quickly this industry is going to be moving in, in the next few years. And uh, I really want to um, encourage you guys to, you know, if you're thinking about anything in the food space, uh, the fibre space, uh, from a cosmetic perspective, even a medicinal perspective, start to have a look at hemp. Um, it's going to become readily available, and uh, I think it's got a huge future here in New Zealand. So um, thank you very much. Um. What a dude. She's like, oh, yeah, nah, so we just did it, you know? Oh, yeah, cool. That's sweet. <laughs> Love your work. Uh, next up, we have the indomitable Kendall Flutie, who is the co-founder and CEO of a financial education platform called Banker. Banker was the 2018 high-tech startup company of the year. And that year, Kendall herself was named the 2018 Young Māori Business Leader and is currently the 2019 Young New Zealander of the Year. Wahine toa. Keep the bar quite high there, that's cool. Um, it's really nice to be here with everyone today. What an event uh, you're able to, to attend. It's um, quite incredible. I'm a little bit envious that I didn't have something like this when I was at school. So we've got 10 minutes together. I am mindful of time. I know I stand between you and Bacon Brothers and Fush, so I will, be, like, I will stick to time, I promise. Um, but I did just want to share a little bit about my journey over the last five plus years, and also, um, share some of the mistakes I made, sort of in the hopes that, well, you're gonna, make, you're gonna make mistakes, your own mistakes, but hopefully you just won't make the same ones that I did. Um, so if we wind the clock back, in 2013, I was 
working as a software developer at my first software gig in Wellington at a firm called Able Tech. And I absolutely loved it, but I hadn't been back home to Christchurch for a while. So I came back for a weekend and hung out with the family. And I have brothers who are a lot younger than me. They're like 12 years-ish uh, younger than me. So I was hanging out with Geordie, my youngest brother, who was about 11 at the time, in his last year of intermediate school. And this kid just blew me away. I hadn't seen him in a, in a while, three or four months. Um, but this was a kid who, do you guys know what 11-year-olds are like that high? So he usually talked about rugby and cricket and John Cena. <laughs> yeah, cool, nice. I, I usually like if I'm at a suit and tie event, I have to explain who John Cena is, but that's good, you guys get that. Uh, this time though, Geordie just blew my mind. Uh, he said to me, Kendall, uh, business is going really well. Should I employ someone as an, or bring someone on as an employee or a contractor? An 11-year-old kid, and I was like, what? Uh, so we sat down and we chatted for a bit, and business was going really well. So he was raking in $200 a week uh, to stack chairs in his classroom. He put them up every night for the cleaner to do their thing, and then he had to be first at school in the morning to take them down before any other kid arrived. $200 a week, so good. So his plan was to bring on his best mate, Fergus, uh, and pay him $100 a week to do all the work, because apparently it's quite tiresome actually doing the work in a business. <laughs> and Geordie was just going to sit back and, you know, rake in that sweet, sweet profit. <laughs> it's the proudest I've ever been of my brother. <laughs> no, it, it was fake money. His teacher, Mr. Hockard, was running this scheme in their school um, that was teaching his students all about managing money by letting them experience it. Um, so he was letting them create little companies, he was taxing them, he set up a wee uh, investment scenario for them to invest in, and it caught on. And um, that, I believe, was the start of the idea for Banker. But I actually cheated a little bit because my story starts a little bit earlier um, when I was an accountant. So I never actually studied software at uni, I did economics and accounting, um, and I got into my exciting graduate role at a big four accounting firm in Wellington. Um, and on the third week, Monday the third week, I realized I'd made a huge mistake and I had this feeling in my stomach that like, uh-oh, this is not for you. Um, and, and that was a really, really tough time and I think that is probably one of the most piv pivotal moments of my life when I felt like an absolute failure. Um, I was the first person in my immediate family to graduate from uni. My parents, my grandparents, like everyone was super proud that I landed this job and then I was having these thoughts that this wasn't me, this wasn't for me. Uh, took me six months to pluck up the courage to quit. Um, I didn't have any job to go onto. I was sort of um, bludging off my boyfriend a little bit at the time, not paying my fair share of the rent and all those good things that come along with being unemployed. But I knew I had to get out of that uh, situation because it was getting to the point where it was actually quite toxic being in an environment that you don't like um, that really isn't what you believe you should be doing with your life. Eventually, being unemployed, you don't have much money, but you've got quite a lot of time. So I could think a lot about what I actually wanted to do, and I sort of landed that software was for me. I retrained, and then we land up back here. So now we've got this sort of idea bubbling away. I go back to Wellington. Mr. Hockard and Geordie and the students keep doing their thing. 
Um, but we keep in touch, me and Mr. Hockard. He is aware that I think he's awesome, and that I want to sort of do something in this space with his help. And then suddenly, back in Wellington, I see that there's a startup weekend, which is sort of like a weekend-long event where you make a business. Usually, they don't go on to be businesses. It's just an education thing. And this one happened to be education-themed. So it's like all the things happening at once. So I hit up Mr. Hocker. I, I, actually, his name's Micah. I can call him Micah. I hit up Micah, and I was like, this is happening. Should I go along, and should I pitch the idea for Banker? And with his full support, I went along and did that. And I gave a 30-second pitch with our vision for financial education for all New Zealanders uh, that was online, engaging, and could get kids curious and confident with money. And within that weekend, uh, we built this. So this is the first version of Banker. Micah and Geordie and, his, and even Fergus and the whole class were on this on the Monday after we finished. So um, we had our first new users. Uh, and then I had a really tricky tricky situation because Mike is a big mouth and he told a heap of other teachers and then there are a lot of teachers on the site and I'm at my job at Abletech and teachers are emailing me with like bugs in the software and wanting um, help in their classroom. Um, but I have a job I love suddenly, like I, I'm in software, it's totally worlds apart from that sick feeling in my stomach of accounting. Um, but, oh sorry, there's probably some accountants in the room, like it's a me thing, it's not, it's not you, it's me. Um, <laughs> along with the cool idea and the fact my brother was using it, I really bought into the purpose behind what Banker stood for. I think back to Geordie and the conversation I had with him and seeing the changes in that, sorry, this is what I, is 11, this is Geordie. Um, I think back to that and I think like his life changed due to his teacher, um, his teacher caring enough to teach him about money, something that I didn't even do as, a, as an accountant. Um, so I quit again, you know, it's a wee bit of a trend, um, and I committed full-time to Banker, and we've been going for four and a half years now, and we've grown the platform to look a little bit different since that first weekend. And now kids, they get to engage with, yeah, they can start companies, um, they're still taxed online, they can get insurance, they can buy cars or maybe a scooter because it's um, more economical to run than a car. They can invest in term deposits, all the things that you and I should know as adults, um, but you know, maybe no one taught us. They get to learn. It's been a ride. Um, businesses are hard. I don't know. I think you guys probably get that. But we've had some really cool milestones along the way, and I think in the last couple of, couple of years, I've really learned to celebrate those milestones because I think it, we just take a breath to turn to the team. There's now seven of us and just acknowledge the effort that we've put in. And when I think of the wider team, it's all the teachers who took a, took a chance on us and our software and accepted our bugs and all those things. Um, it really is a team effort. So uh, I wanted to impart a little bit of advice around the mistakes I made. But I'm not saying by all means I have all the answers. That is probably very clear that I do not. Um, but yeah, I think if, if one of you cannot make one of these mistakes, I would say that's a win. Firstly, I don't regret being an accountant. I don't. Uh, the path that led me to where I am today was treacherous uh, and not always enjoyable and a little bit um, testing of my resolve at times. But I think it's given me the appreciation for where I am today. I think sometimes you've got to do jobs that you absolutely hate to figure out what you might love. Um, and also it gives you a sense of who you really are and what matters to you. 
So this is something I get stuck on regularly. Uh, I like to do different things. But I've realized that I can do really well when I focus. When I first committed to going full-time at Banker, I did have a bit more free time than I did when I was working my full-time job and then nights on Banker. Suddenly it was daytime's Banker, what am I gonna do with my nights? I ended up starting two more businesses. I wouldn't advise that. You can be anything you want. You are poised perfectly right now to achieve absolutely anything. Um, but I don't think we can be everything. We can't be everything at once. So I just wanna be something and do that really well. Business is hard. The purpose is really what pulls me through and that's what motivates me and it keeps me going when it's stressful and you've been traveling or you know the site's down or whatever it is. The fact that I believe that we can make a difference for the future of Aotearoa, for our rangatahi, for our society at large, that's what gets me through. So if you can find that, I think you're onto a winner. Life's gonna happen. Uh, I really felt that when I was in accounting land. It's gonna happen whether I make decisions or not, and I think it can happen to you where you're not an active participant. I've been there lots of times, or it can happen through you. We can take charge of our own life. Uh, and lastly, this is a little something that I stand by. Uh, it's some advice I was imparted by a Wellington-based advisor. So just as we started going, I went to him, I'm not sure why, I was basically just complaining to him, which wouldn't have been very enjoyable, um, about the world and oh, things are just, you know, it's so unjust, inequality, all of this stuff. And he just turned to me and he said, if you don't like the world, why don't you just build a different world? And um, it's a really simple thing and I think it gave me the permission I needed to think that my little actions could one day, with the help of others, maybe change a little slice of the world. And I think all of you can do and probably are already doing that in spades. I didn't realize that, I'm a slow learner, it took me a while to pick up on that. So um, thanks very much for listening. I didn't actually stick to my promise, I ran over time, but lunch will be delicious regardless, thank you. Thank you, Kendall. Do you want to grab a seat there, bro? So we're going to jump into some Q&A. We've got the Slido. It's, oh. a different, it's a different thing there. No, oh. you're right, you're right. We've got it up there now. Um, but I'm going to kick us off asking each of you, what is the best or the worst advice that you've ever received? I just told you mine, so it's all you. <laughs> um, probably um, to change a system, you've got to be a part of it. Is that the best advice or the worst advice? Uh, probably the best advice I've been given. Um, it's quite easy to sort of like look at a system or, or you know, look at some of the things that are going on in the world and uh, not be a part of it and, and not want to be involved and, and sort of bury your head in the sand. But um, I think to make really effective change, you've got to be a part of the system, you've got to be in it, you've got to be understanding it. Um, is hemp grown in New Zealand or offshore? Uh, it's growing in New Zealand. Um, we, uh, we need a license in New Zealand, so it's still relatively heavily regulated. Um, it's 500 bucks, and uh, we do have quite a large number of uh, growers starting to come on the market. Um, we're setting up a processing plant up in Culverton. Uh, we've got 150 hectares planted, or getting planted this year for a harvest next year. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really growing, um, but yeah, it's growing here. When you sort of figured out what that thing was, what was the first step that you took personally? Um, I guess for me, um, it was probably changing myself. Um, so probably realizing what my purpose was going to be, which was uh, to try and uh, change uh, change the world. And um, I had to be probably the best possible version of myself that I could be. So I guess I started that journey. Um, started with my diet, um, 
not just what I eat, but you know what I consume, what kind of uh, what kind of you know people I hang out with, um, how I treat myself, how I treat my friends and family, um, and then that sort of uh, sort of is going to lead to to me being able to achieve really what we want to what we want to do. So, I think uh, the moment in which I sort of found that purpose and the step that I took that actually really enabled me to fulfil that, there was a bit of a lag between them. Like, I think I realised it early, but I, I wasn't quite honed in on the responsibilities of executing on that and how to best get output, like, the results I wanted from that. So my immediate steps um, weren't all that effective. For example, I kept working as a software developer for quite some time, um, like, no regrets, but I think had I shortened that lead time and just had a bit more confidence in my capabilities, um, where we are today and the impact we could be having today would be would be resonated. Um, but that that's fine. Um, so I think the first sort of most effective step I took was really focusing on on that purpose and ensuring that all my actions spoke to that purpose. Um, like you still have a life, obviously you need balance and stuff. But cutting out all the the frivolous stuff, um, people are going to demand your attention increasingly so over time. So um, saying no became really important to fulfilling what I ultimately wanted to say yes to. That's interesting because what I'm hearing in both of what in both of your answers, it's like when you wanted to do a lot of work out there, first you had to do a lot of work in here. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, some quick fire questions for each of you. Can adults use Banker? Yeah. Cool. Anything yeah. they need to know? <laughs> just... <laughs> I thought it was quick fire. Like it I is quick fire. Um, can they yeah. just jump on and sign up? They can. Um, it's only free for primary and intermediate schools, so there would be a subscription fee. But I mean, if you um, never learnt this stuff, some people can be quite embarrassed by that fact that, like, I was talking to um, a customer, a parent of kids that use it, and she was saying they were sitting around the dinner table and the 11-year-old who used Banker was explaining to the 18-year-old sibling mm. what a term deposit was. Yeah. So like, some of us are quite scared to engage um, in that. So yes, adults do use it, and if you wanted to, there's no shame in that. It's a mm. good thing. Mm. Good. Um, a question for you. Do you plan to move into marijuana should it become legal? Uh, it's, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess for us, we've got... Um, We've got a lot on our plate at the moment, um, so we've got a few different businesses going on, um, and I guess it's uh, it's probably a case of waiting and seeing what the what the regulation regulation's going to look like. Um, I think it's whether or not it um, it goes commercial or not, um, which it, which it probably will if it gets legalised, which it will if it goes legalised. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an open opportunity, I guess. Um, something definitely worth exploring. Um, but um, I guess for us, we really want to focus on, on hemp at the moment and, and really do that well. And I think that's got a far greater potential uh, economically, environmentally, and uh, society for society than uh, than marijuana does on its own. And uh, that's really really our focus. Nice, um, Kendall. How did you get into software with no background in it? Yeah, I did a coding boot camp, a 12-week coding boot camp. They were popular in the States sort of around the time I quit my accounting job with Zero Plan. And my research sort of led me to um, applying for one in San Fran, getting accepted, thinking, how am I going to raise, like, 80K? Um, and then uh, it was announced that one was launching in Wellington, like, 500 metres from my flat. So I signed up for that one. <laughs> And that's, and that's called Inspiral Dev Academy? Dev Academy, yeah. Yep. It's awesome. 
yeah, and Spiral Dev Academy. And there's a couple people here who I think have been involved with it. Um, uh, quick fire, where will the beefy bars be available on Monday? I want in, and that has a lot of votes. Uh, so that's all new worlds, um, all new worlds around the South Island. Um, so we need local stores, and we're also at Rickon Farmers Market and the Hoka Farmers Market as well, and online. And what are they called again? Uh, the Hempy Bar. The Hempy Bar? Yeah, Hempy Bar, yeah. So, um, yeah, we weren't going to hide the fact that we were selling cannabis in a, in a kid's product, but, um, yeah, <laughs> so we're claiming that. <laughs> Lean in. Um, question for both of you to ponder. Either of you can take it first. You have both made waves in, a re in really new and unique spaces. Did you ever experience doubt that you could do it? I still experience doubt, mm. yeah. So, yeah, absolutely, and, like, I had people telling me at the very start that this wouldn't work, um, as I'm sure everyone who starts a business does. I think having a few key people around you who tell you that not to listen to those people and even not to listen to yourself at times is pretty important. Yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, my biggest, um, I guess, pushback came from, from family, um, left essentially, you know, um, a really good salary and a car and a phone and, and a pretty good career ahead of me to jump into an industry which, uh, you know, wasn't even legal for humans and, um, you know, it was pretty pretty hazy on what the future was going to look like. And um, I guess for me it's sort of like trust yourself, like just back yourself. There's no, you know, what's really the worst that's going to happen. Um, if you've got a good network around you um, and you go broke, well, you've got plenty of couches to sleep on and, and usually most people have a family and, and, and friends who, who would support you. And, um, and I guess for us, uh, you know, if someone comes in and, and knocks out our business and, um, and does a better job than us, I think I'd be happy with that. You know, that's mean they've, they've had to do a healthier product. Um, it's got to have be compostable packaging. They've obviously done a better, better job with the hemp industry. Um, and and that's, that's really essentially, that's a win. And uh, so just, just trust yourself and back yourself because... Uh, I don't think there's enough of that, and um, I think a lot of people, you know, let them talk themselves out of anything um, more than anyone else, and uh, that was sort of my big one, you know, going from a, I guess, a typical Kiwi rugby playing, um, pissing up lad, um, you know, to, to, the, to where I am now um, is a real journey and a real shift, and, that's, and it's quite hard for people to sort of see, particularly someone they've grown up living, you know, a particular way and, and doing something pretty mainstream to then, uh, to then taking a big step and and taking a big risk and, and sort of putting themselves out there. And it's, a, it's you know, all, uh, all courage and, and um, motivation for you. It's, uh, it's the best thing you can ever do in your life. Um, I would, don't regret it for a second, but, you know, you've got to back yourself 100%. Um, so, yeah. I think that's what I admire the most about both of you, is that you are both sort of outside of the mould of where you've landed, and you're shameless about that. You're just like, here I am. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, it's very impressive. Um, we've got a couple, we've got lots of questions firing through, but we are going to wrap it up in a moment. Um, someone here has tried a hempy bar and says that it's absolutely delicious, and someone else is proposing that um, there's a banker thing started on campus here. So if anyone's interested in that, why don't you just come meet up over here before lunchtime, because there's probably no reason why they couldn't kick it off as a group, That's right? cool, yeah, yeah, I rate that. So there's a whole new universities market for you, possibly. Sweet. Um, please give a very warm round of applause for these two.
Um, kia ora te whanau. Welcome along. Thank you for coming. Um, it always fascinates me to see where and how people are going to scatter themselves. Um, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, if you two could just move over one, just that would fix so everything. Just that would just balance everything out a little bit better. Um, we are here, thank you for coming along. We are here to talk about harnessing creativity. I was just reading the way Descripitione. Want to use your creativity to embrace impact? Hear from four local entrepreneurs who have made this possible. That's a pretty accurate summary of what's going to be happening for the next 55 minutes in the room. So uh, the four of us are each involved with a bunch of different things that are um, harnessing the creative talents of humans or, or fostering or nourishing. And we're kind of just going to tell our stories very briefly and then have a bit of a chat among ourselves, briefly-ish. Like an hour. Like an hour, you know, give, or take. give it to each. Um, and have a bit of a chat among ourselves about what we found interesting, and then we'll take some questions from the floor, and uh, all will be well in the world. How's how that? How does that sound? Yeah. yeah. You're well, I got one thumbs you're, up here. You're welcome to leave if you like, bugger this, this is what I signed up for. I was expecting tap dancing lessons. Um, so, I think we'll lead off with Rosie. Was that the plan? Yeah, wonderful. Good. Do you want to introduce yourself and off we go? Yes. Hi, I'm Rosie. Um, I started the Nifty Markets, Thrifty Nifty, Rosie Foods, and I also have a blog called Slowmo. It's a big mouthful. Um, so, basically, all of this started a few years ago um, when I had finished a business degree at ARA. Um, I sort of had this desire to start creating my own pieces of clothing. And I didn't have, I hadn't studied fashion before or how to create clothing, so I enrolled myself in some night classes while I was working full time and learned how to create the pieces that I had in mind. Um, and from there, I was making my own clothing, and then I had friends asking if I could make them some of the pieces I was making for myself. Um, and it was sort of getting busy from there, so I created an Instagram account and just popped the pieces all on there. Um, and I named it Rosie Threads, and that's kind of how that started. <laughs> um, yeah, and as I was learning more about the sort of how clothing is manufactured, I was learning more about how the fashion industry is really negatively impacting the planet. So Rosie Threads only uses repurposed materials, um, so we just changed it to have as low of a fashion footprint as possible, um, just trying to use as many pre-loved resources as possible. Um, and then, Basically, a couple of years or so down the track from making clothing, I was toying with the idea of creating a market where I could sell my pieces. Um, I was trying out the markets that we had, but at the time I wasn't having much success because I didn't really feel like there was any kind of market aimed at young people, or at least not one that was happening very regularly. Um, so that was how the Nifty Markets was born. Um, last June, I created the market where it's at Sydney, and it happens once a month. Uh, basically, the purpose is to showcase local creatives and to give them an avenue to sell their products. Um, and all the products sold at Nifty have a sustainable or ethical theme to them. Um, we're just trying to keep the basically um, the minimal, most minimal environmental impact possible. Um, and then alongside the Nifty Markets, I created another sort of subcategory market, which is called Thrifty Nifty. And the purpose of Thrifty Nifty is basically where everything sold there is clothing and it's all secondhand. Uh, so basically locals can come and set up a rack and put all of their pre-loved clothing on there and sell it to like-minded people who have a similar sort of sense of style. 
Um, yeah, the point really is just to create an alternative to fast fashion. Just want to make sustainable clothing that's cool, really accessible and affordable to people in Christchurch, particularly young people who might not have like a big budget to afford sort of higher priced sustainable items. But yeah, that's pretty much Thrifty Nifty. And I also have a wee blog called Slowmo, which is just about uh, consuming responsibly and sustainable fashion. Um, yeah, but pretty much the idea behind all of these things is I just want to create a conversation for how we can support local creatives and, yeah, um, just how we can consume more responsibly as well. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Woo! So there was a question this morning. Um, Shannon talked about fast fashion, and someone asked on Slido what fast fashion is, but we didn't have a chance to answer it. Is there anyone in the room who isn't familiar with what, what we mean by fast fashion? Couple? So it's the notion um, that current, in the current world, you can go to a big box retailer and buy the latest fashionable items at bargain basement prices, and they're so cheap that they end up being essentially disposable. So we have um, products being made off the back of very low wage or slave labor overseas. Um, we buy the stuff and then it ends up in the landfill. And that whole cycle is sort of referred to as fast fashion and um, is enormously problematic in a number of ways for the world. So slow fashion is kind of the antithesis of that. Kate the pie. Good one. Nice. Uh, kia ora everybody, my name is Preston and I am the director and exchange operator uh, at Exchange Christchurch. So for anyone who doesn't know or sees the XCHC, I'm going to lay it down real easy. It's Exchange Christchurch. CHC, right? So, um, and the idea of that is that we can actually start thinking about um, creative spaces across New Zealand uh, like XAKL and XWLG, which would be Auckland and Wellington. So um, yeah, Exchange Christchurch is just a part of my story. Um, I first want to um, be honest, I don't prepare a lot for these things because I often find the things that I connect with the most, most and remember are the things that are really spoken from the heart. So I'm just going to tell you a bit about um, how I ended up in Christchurch and um, what led me to exchange. And I think that it will speak maybe more to where most of the people in the audience are coming from, or at least who spoke earlier on wanting to get started on their journey. And maybe if I just kind of lay mine out really simply, you might see where our intersections might kind of meet, or you might find uh, yourself in that similar space. Um, I guess I kind of wanted to start with saying my parents had a really big um, kind of part of where I, how I ended up here in that um, I was homeschooled, but it was actually um, not the homeschooling that um, made me think differently about education, but it was actually about um, teaching me to teach myself. So it wasn't a matter of going to school kind of, which is a kind of program of memorization, um, it was actually saying, you can learn anything. You can teach yourself anything, which means you can learn anything, which means you can do anything. And I think one of the things that I can appreciate from Rosie's story and most of the stories that we heard today is that everyone started really small. Like, you just started with, like, what you were personally want, like, wanted to do differently. And, um, or with their grandmother and family and learning how to pick up a skill. So um, I can certainly relate to the um, wanting to and, you, and feeling the need to go big and go hard and change the world and, and solve some problems. But often if you just, the more that you tune into like what you're actually more passionate about, the, the faster you'll find your own journey and uh, not to rush that. So um, I left the east coast of the states and left everything behind because I knew that um, the kind of small world that I knew and grew up in in Tennessee wasn't 
uh, enough to, to know and understand about the rest of the world. It's quite insular. Um, we don't have exposure to a lot of culture. And the reason I chose New Zealand is because um, the indigenous culture where I grew up and the Cherokee Indians have nothing left. And I knew that New Zealand still had um, quite a strong tie to the indigenous and the Modi culture here. So I knew that I had a lot to learn. And then when it comes to Christchurch, everybody's, I moved here when I was 23, and that's kind of unheard of. I'm pretty sure most of the 23-year-olds were on their way out four years ago and, uh, <laughs> and had been for a few years. And so when people say, why did you move to Christchurch? I say, well, I knew that I personally just had a lot of growth to do, and I didn't know where in the world I was going to find it. I had moved to San Francisco. I had moved to Hawaii, um, making my way down to New Zealand. And what I saw was that Auckland was like every other big city. Wellington was like a very creative city that I had lived for six years, but still didn't find my purpose. Um, but Christchurch was different. It was different because it was being built from the ground up. And where, those, where there's a lot of these challenges, there's opportunities. And I knew if I was going to grow, I might as well be around a city and a bunch of people that were growing as well. So I invite people to kind of have that perspective of the city with me. It really excites me. And when I came here, it wasn't as easy as just showing up. It took a few months, um, and I started to feel really um, lost. I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember the things that brought me here that were really cool, like the Danso-Mat and the Gap Filler projects. Um, but what do I have to do with any of those? Like, I'm not an architect. I'm not a, you know, an urban designer. I'm not, even, you know, I'm not a creative. Um, I'm just this person kind of lost on this journey, and I had a visa <laughs> to come here. So. Um, uh, I was here for a few months. My work took me all over the country, and I had just really made the commitment to say, you know what, I haven't spent enough time in Christchurch. I've been traveling around a lot. Um, what was it that brought me here in the first place? What is it that really sunk into my bones that, made, that brought me across the world? And I had um, started looking at all these different projects in the city, and one was called Exchange Christchurch. And it, the, the kind of slogan of it was bringing people together to exchange ideas and um, develop their creativity. And I said, no, that sounds like um, something I'm interested in. And they had this event uh, called Chef's Table, and it was just a shared lunch. Twelve strangers got together and had a meal. And I don't know if you know this, but I have had more powerful conversations. I don't know if it applies to you, but I've had more powerful conversations over, over Kai than um, in a business meeting or a business breakfast or something like that, in fact. So uh, I came to this meal, and the person who founded Exchange, Camille, said, um, oh, you look pretty lost. It's quite a, you know kind of crazy place for anyone who doesn't know, Exchange is a big warehouse with a bunch of art studios and a venue and a cafe. And I was just like, yeah, what's going on here? And she's like, oh, we're just trying to create um, an environment where people can be open about what they're working on and not feel um, afraid to take that first step. Um, and what I often find when I look at entrepreneurship or you know, accelerators and incubators is, you know, you have, to, you have to know what you're doing now and you have to take these next steps and learn to fail and fail fast and fail hard. And I'm like, if you're learning, are you really failing? Like, and that was the perspective that I started to really learn from this environment of people working together. So, um, yeah, I loved what I experienced and I started volunteering there. And then after a month, um, I pretty much, they just couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> uh, so they offered me a job um, to be the operations person. And I think, um, yeah, what I'll leave that with is just the um, ability it is to really just, if you can identify the one thing that you feel passionately about, not what other people are doing that they feel passionately about, but what is the one thing for you. For me, it was just knowing where to stand, my own two, where to put my own two feet. And at the time, it was just in a warehouse full of people doing interesting things. Um, and 
now I get to be a part of kind of building the momentum behind what people are talking about, what people are working on. And it's amazing what's come out of there. Um, we have the impact lunches. I know a lot of people, Stephen Moe is here, who hosts Seeds Podcast. Every month he has impact lunches where a lot of social entrepreneurs get together and talk about their challenges and what they're working on. Um, and we learn from each other. It's just part of the kind of environment. Um, we've spiraled a lot of events like Glitterbox, the Conscious Club, um, and other things into the city that makes it a more creative, creative and exciting place. And it's all because these places just had an environment where they felt like they didn't have to be successful at the first go. Um, they could actually just be somewhere where they could talk about their idea, suss it out, flush out maybe what the next steps might be, and do it in a very low-risk environment. So um, for me, I see the value of creativity as um, just what is going to change the tourism industry? Why are people going to visit a city? Why would you visit a city? Is it because of the biggest co-working space? No. Is it because a lot of startups have come out of there? No. It's because it's enjoyable, it's colorful, it's flavorful. And that's the kind of stuff that we believe we have a lot more potential to create in Christchurch. So um, yeah, we'll probably get more into it. Yeah, that's good. Tenakoto Katoa, called Bridget Toka Ingawa, no Otahi Ho, Hikai Mahi Ho, Iti Kamupini, for Bed and Proceed, Himihi Mayoha, Kiakoto Katoa. Kia ora, everyone. Um, my name is Bridget Williams. I'm from Otahi Christchurch, and I'm going to go off the cuff. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote some stuff down this morning, but um, I'm going to be creative and just, you know, say what comes to mind. Um, so I lead a social enterprise called Bead and Proceed. It has to do with the beads that I'm wearing around my neck. Um, and Bead and Proceed exists to educate people about the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals and to inspire action towards them through creativity. So maybe a quick show of hands. Who here has heard or knows what the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals are? Fantastic. Okay, so from now on, I'm going I'm to use the acronym SDGs. Okay, cool. So um, SDGs, I know it sounds like something else, but I just have to, yeah. So, um, For those that don't know what they oh, are, give the two sentences. Yes, okay. So basically the Sustainable Development Goals, so they address the biggest issues in today's society, from climate action to gender equality to good health and well-being, life on land, life below water. And in 2015, all of the world leaders came together to work out what these 17 goals are. And so... In 2016, all UN member states adopted the SDGs, including New Zealand, and these SDGs are to be achieved by 2030. The problem is not enough people know that they exist, and so that's where Beat and Proceed comes in. So we do this through uh, creative workshops, and the idea is really simple. We bring people together to each make a five-beaded necklace or key ring that represents their top five SDGs that they want to work on and commit to. So we do this by, you can purchase a Beat and Proceed kit online, and our kits are something special um, in themselves. I can talk more about them maybe later with this discussion. But then the other, the other service we offer is our Beat and Proceed Epic, which is work, creative workshops specifically for businesses and organisations keen to take their SDG knowledge to the next level. Um, so the other big important thing about Beat and Proceed is that we really want to align with the 2030 Agenda. That's like the founding document of the SDGs, and that document stresses that no one can be left behind. So our model is one for one. For every Bed and Proceed kit purchased, another kit is donated to a low decile school or deserving community organisation, because everyone needs to be a part of this SDG conversation. 
So key to Beat and Proceed, our kaupapa, it really comes down to creativity. We want to make sure that we create a space for people to feel safe to come up with creative solutions to tackle the SDGs. Um, and I think, you know, the SDGs, they're gonna, they do address the biggest problems in today's society. You know, they're massive. So it's going to require out-of-the-box solutions. And creativity sparks creativity, right? So we want to make that space for people. And there's always, it's something about being creative. Um, you see it with, I didn't actually know this, but um, World War I soldiers who were um, shell shock victims, which we now know to be PTSD, their um, therapy was actually art and craft making because it's something about painting and, and creativity to bring you into the present, to really connect with yourself and with other people and solving these global issues is gonna require connection. So I wasn't all, well actually I should take that back. I was always a bit of a creative person, but I, for whatever reason, and maybe society taught this or like made me think this way, to be creative meant you weren't intellectual. It was like right side of the brain or left side of the brain. You were one or the other. And I remember when my dad was introduced, my dad's a, a businessman, he's a real estate, a commercial real estate agent, and he introduced me to one of his business friends, and he said, this is Bridget. That's how my dad talks. This is Bridget. She's a lot like a mum. She's very creative. And to me, I just heard him say, she's arty, not smarty. And I know my dad didn't mean that, but what he said to me, it just made me feel like I wasn't capable to be in that conversation with him and his friend to talk about business. So I wanted to prove him wrong, because that's what we do as kids. And I decided to, I decided to do law. And I um, did law at UC right here, and I was a lawyer for three years. And I was doing litigation. And you know, yeah, I made it, <laughs> I did it. My dad um, wasn't able to practice, so yeah. <laughs> anyway, and he has a law degree. Um, but I was so unhappy, like deeply, deeply unhappy, because I wasn't um, being who I was really meant to be. I wasn't practicing my strengths. I had put this creative side of Bridget away. I didn't want to ever see her again, because, you know. Um, anyway, where am I going with this? I then had a conversation with an amazing friend of mine called James Oliver Roach. And he wrote this incredible article called The Three Dichotomies of Creativity. And, a, and I had an epiphany when I was having this conversation with him. He said, to be creative is to create value out of nothing. I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that is special. Like, to create value out of nothing. And then I kind of realized that there is a spectrum of creativity. And what's so beautiful about us creatives, and to be creative, is it's not that we aren't capable of being logical or being academic. It's that our, what, we work, what we work with hasn't been invented yet because we create it. So that means our potential is limitless. To be creative means to be limitless. So that really gave me um, the inspiration to open up that door of creativity and things just kind of like came to me like a magnet. I was asked to be on um, Christchurch's, uh, well, Christchurch Arts Festival on the board, and then I decided to give Beat and Proceed a real go, and then we got some funding. I quit my law job, and now I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just want to end with, and then my dad still doesn't get it. He says, you're not doing this bead thing, are you? <laughs> but that's okay, because I'm still creating my life 
we're still creating our lives and we are architects of our future. So that's what I want to end on. Yeah. Amazing. Kia ora Bridge, thank you. Uh, so taking off my MC hat, I'm here to talk about things I'm involved with, 36, what is that, 31 months, let's go. Uh, so I've been singing longer than I've been walking. Um, growing up, I was uh, always theatrical. I, I did musical theatre from a very young age. Um, I, was, I actually directed the last musical in the Nio Marsh Theatre, and so the old version of this theatre and the old version of this building, um, and the, the first musical that's now on in here tonight. Um, my co-director is starring in it, so it's kind of this really weird cyclical thing. Um, theatre, music has always been, performing has always been a big part of my life. Um, I studied here, the University of Canterbury did human resource development and psychology. The big quake was the start of my final year. Um, I was really involved with the founding of the Student Volunteer Army, which we ended up running in a tent just outside here. Um, we formed a charity, I ran that charity for three years, came out the other side of that really beaten up and bruised. Um, I was involved with the development of one of the sustainable development goals um, and sort of walked away from all of this stuff going, wow, the world's got some pretty gnarly problems that need to be solved. And I felt this overwhelming burden and responsibility to fix it all and um, was also confronted with my complete inability to do that. Um, because all of, the, all of the, the problems that really need to be addressed cannot be solved by an individual person. And that's a really, really hard thing to grapple with as a 25-year-old. And so I, I was kind of burnt out and exhausted and all of the things that you don't want to be um, when I left Volunteer Army. And the first thing that I did was turn back to music. So I became a full-time musician, um, did that for about 18 months and ended up hating it, actually. Um, I sort of found myself, got to go perform for four hours. Ugh. It's like, well, that's not really the point, is it? <laughs> Um, so I sort of dialed back from music a wee bit and ended up getting involved with an organisation called FELT. Um, Nick, did we happen to get those slides by chance? Here we are. So FELT is an online marketplace for locally made goods. Who's heard of Etsy? So FELT predated Etsy. It's a New Zealand version, essentially. So everything for sale on felt.co.nz was made by the person who's selling it. And my role with them is to essentially support all of the creative people. We've got 4,000 creatives all around New Zealand who like me, have to perform. Like, if, if I don't play enough, if I don't play music, I can feel it in my bones. Like, I'm just, I'm not me. I just sort of have to creatively express myself. And it turns out that lots of us are like that. We have to have some sort of creative outlet. For me, it's music. For others, it's painting or construction. Or it doesn't really matter. And to do that in an economically viable way, as in to make money from creative practice, is not an easy thing to do in the modern Western world. Certainly not New Zealand. So, so my job is at Felt is to overcome that. It's like, how can we make it easier for more creative people to have meaningful, fulfilling lifestyles that also pay the bills through the creative practice? And so the problem that we've got with Felt is that we have too many products and not enough customers. So off the back of that, we said, all right, well, let's start doing some other stuff. So we've just started playing with some, oh no, not that one, this one. Started playing with some other ideas. So we've got this really awesome sustainable supply chain because turns out all of the people who make things in their back garden are also using recycled materials or upcycled this or ethical that. And it's some of the most sustainable products that you can find anywhere in the world and they happen to come from just down the street from a person called Marama. Um, and so we've started finding new and different ways that we can market these same sort of products. And this is just one of about five different experiments that we're running at the moment. Um, but it all centers around this notion that there are lots of creative people who don't have the ability to live creative lives. And 
when, you, when I think about what it means to have a life of um, dignity and of fulfillment, for me, a big part of that is creative expression. But a boy's got to eat. So, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of some of the problems that we're trying to solve. So I sort of got involved with felt in that capacity. Um, and then it turns out that I'm not very good at attention to detail. I pretty much can't do anything on my own, but I'm a really, really good team member. So I've ended up splitting up my time into lots of different slices. Um, so some, you know, Kendall was saying that a bunch of people have said this morning, focus on one thing. And I've realized for me, the one thing is the contribution that I can make to teams. So I'm, I'm actively involved with about 15 different projects and organizations at the moment, which is, it's too many and it's ridiculous. Um, but that's, it's what works for me. Um, and so I, I do a lot of governance. I sit on a bunch of boards, which is a weird thing. Um, but it means that I'm getting to review organizations like the New Zealand Law Society, who are the representative body and the regulator of the entire legal profession in New Zealand. I sit at that board table, and we're currently talking about, well, what does it mean to be a lawyer in the future when we understand that the kaupapa of law is all about um, equality and justice and equity and fairness? whereas the practice of law has manifested in some pretty nasty bad behavior and a lot of profiteering. So we've got this interesting disconnect between the kaupapa and the practice. And those are some of the things that I get to help chew through now. Um, I've gone over time. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is um, this confronting challenge that we all often face. What I'm doing is not what I want to do anymore. What do I do next? Uh, and so one of the things that um, we've worked on is, is this. So this is campus. Um, it's an outdoor, it's kind of like, and what I want to do with my life mashed in with a bit of outward bound. Um, so I run this. We've got a trip coming up in November. Cheeky plug. Bridget and Preston came on our trips last year. Um, yeah, that's me. Creativity's rad. <laughs> there we go. Cool. Cool. Um, I can I pick something up on that? Um, yeah, I just want to share something that I observed. Um, and it's great, because it's kind of 50-50 that um, I think we have a bit of a skewed version of entrepreneurship. Because I, I think it said something about four entrepreneurs that have developed creative stuff. Um, and um, you founded this, but your role with Felt was pretty, um, in, in, you know, very, very important in your steps of your creative growth and exploring a lot of new things and ways of thinking. I didn't start the exchange, um, but you two started your companies. So I think just to acknowledge that there's actually, like, creativity can show up in different forms um, and that when you hear innovation, innovation is creativity, right? You're just, you're taking two things that have never really met and finding a way to merge them together and create something new. C create, you're creating, right? That's creative. So um, I think we've gotten really locked on into a lot of the language that we use from this age of, of production and manufacturing, whereas like your value as a human was how quickly, how efficiently and effectively you could produce a product or a service for someone else, usually making money off of you. And to be an entrepreneur was basically, well, how do you get back to that thing? And we are obviously here because we don't believe that that's a system that works anymore. Mm -hmm. And that maybe even the word entrepreneurship looks a little different. You know, if you look at the Renaissance, it was, it was, it changed the way everyone saw and acted and behaved in the world, and it was around art, you know, and how we experience the world around us. So creativity and entrepreneurship are very closely linked, but it's almost kind of breaking down the way that how we've understood business has been working for a while. It's not all about just trying, like, I feel like in the past, being an entrepreneur means creating a new product mm. that people will buy, and that's mm. it. And it's like, it's just not that anymore. And especially in the climate crisis we're facing as well, you know, it can just be 
an experience mm. or you know something that already exists and making it your own. That's yeah, creating value, whatever that exactly. means. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure when I started volunteering at Exchange, it was like still my the favorite my favorite part of the, this whole journey because it was just like being able to step in and be given permission to contribute to something that I had never discovered or lived in the world was was so important. So even opportunities to volunteer at places like this or summits like this is a good first step. I want to pick up on something else you said, um, how we didn't start some of the things that we're involved with. And actually, that's a big problem, is that we've got too many founders and not enough first employees. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. we, we value being the founder of the thing, but we don't value you know, jumping on someone else's co-papa and, and helping them take the next steps. Um, so if you feel like, oh, I don't have my thing, perfect, go help someone else's thing. Cool. So, um, we don't really have a plan for the next 27 minutes beyond um, we have a bunch of people here in a room. So Hannah's got a roaming microphone if people have questions, um, comments, anything. If not, we can definitely keep coming up with yeah, stuff. I'm a recovering got, American. I can more, talk for like the entire day. <laughs> just bringing it back to generating value. Um, I'm just wondering, can you tell the story, or can one or two of you share the story of um, when you made your first dollar? and what that felt like? I was mowing lawns <laughs> on my dad's property. And yeah, um, I've got the most like standard millennial track record of going from one thing to the next every six months. And it was, um, I was in plaster and stucco work, then I was in, I coached gymnastics, and I photographed weddings, and I ran a marketing team, then I ran a bar. And I worked with charities because that's what I thought was the change that I wanted to see in the world. And I was like, well, charities aren't solving problems faster than they're being created. So now I feel hopeless. <laughs> and then found social enterprise. I'm like, wow. So I definitely would say that, that this journey has stretched way back. And it's been a lot of bouncing off of the things that I was just interested in before finding a way that um, in the place that I could actually grow into the changes that I wanted to see in those, those uh, jobs. Mine isn't super straightforward because as a creative person, and I feel like a lot of people will be able, a lot of creative people might be able to um, empathize with me, is that I have a lot of ideas and not the structure in my brain to sort of figure out how to um, stick to it. So I, since being a kid, have created heaps of small businesses and then got bored of them and started a new one. Um, so there's been quite a few opportunities. Uh, there's been quite a few instances where I've had a business and made a dollar and I got excited and then I thought of a new idea and I left that one and then went on to another one. I was like, no, this, this is the one. That's going to make me money. But um, yeah, I think like this is kind of going off tangent here, but it's really important to when you have that sort of creative personality, um, stick to something or find someone who can help you who has that sort of personality trait, who can help you stick to something. Um, that's just a little piece of advice I thought I would give people, because when you jump from thing to thing, um, you're obviously not going to get very far. So um, yeah, just trying to stick to one thing. And it was really cool when I um, made my first dollar with rosy threads, because you know it keeps happening, and it's, it's a nice feeling when it's just the one thing that I'm, well, two things that I'm doing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, for, so for us, and we got um, uh, the first kit was purchased, 
Um, we got a notification, and um, my partner Luke, he, did, he helps me a little bit with Beat and Proceed, but he emailed, no, he messaged me saying, oh my goodness, someone just purchased a kit, and we like, looked at it, and it was like, it's your mum. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think... Totally yeah. acceptable. Um, yeah. First so, it was, yeah. And then, it, but the thing is, it took like so much, as you know, my own mum has bought a kit, yeah. But the thing is, it was interesting to see like where that support, that early adoption support comes from. So I kind of like, you know, you're going to go through your friends and your family and then you're kind of like, okay, we're like, you know, the other people. And so for me, that was when um, for us, a consulting company in Auckland, um, wanted to do Beat and Proceed for their retreat. So it was at um, Waiheke Island. So it was like amazing and major, major imposter syndrome. Like, I was so scared and freaking out. Um, and so I guess that feeling of making like my first kind of like real dollar from people who weren't giving or doing a favour for me, it was just, yeah, it was, it was super scary. But what was so beautiful about Beat and Proceed, and this comes back to creativity, is they were doing something where it stripped hierarchy. You know, here mm. were these partners who were having to paint beads and they had to ask like their juniors, how did you make SDG 8? Like, what, what did you do to get that colour? And so it was just this beautiful, like, I don't know, symbol of um, it doesn't matter. Like, this, like the SDGs, creativity, like, we are all on this equal playing field. So um, that's the emotion that I got when we, when we made our first dollar, real dollar. Thanks, Brie. I'd like to ask... Um, for some of you to share your experiences when it where it comes to connecting self and value through creativity, um, I really um, connect with Bridget's story in that, um, for instance, you said there came a point where your father's values, i.e., be smart, not artsy, became more important, and you pushed yourself away, and then. You rediscovered value when you um, embraced a part of yourself that you had discarded. And you know, we're all multiple, and we all have many, many different parts of ourselves. Um, how, what parts of yourself did you pick up and re-examine and use in your journey to creativity? For me, uh, when I when I started doing music full-time, it was actually a process, I sort of described it as I was folding myself back over myself. I'd been stretched too thin for too long, like a pizza dough, and I just started to tear. And um, the, only, the only thing that made me feel like myself was singing. And so that was like the tiny little strand that I was able to hang on to and everything else started to build out from there. And um, it's a... I think what you're talking about and that process that Bridget went through of sort of re-embracing that part, to borrow your language, is hard. Like, it, it, it hurts. Um, even now thinking about it, it sort of chokes me up a little bit, thinking about how confronting it is to have to fundamentally challenge everything about either what you've been doing or who you are. I mean, two, our two, speaker, our two panel speakers earlier today, Kendall and Brad, um, both spoke about that. They were trying to do work out there and they found that first they had to do work in here. And that's, that's the same thing, I think. Just on that note, like I, um, I have this like, vivid memory when it was my last day at the, at the law firm I worked at. And it was an amazing law firm, full of awesome people. But I, you, when you 
sit your bar exams and you become a registered solicitor, you get a stamp that says, like, I, Bridget, Susan Williams, solicitor, blah, blah, blah. And um, I thought it'd be real fun to end my last day having a box so it looked like I was fired from my job. So I was like, oh, what a gag. Anyway, so I had this box <laughs> of like, things on my desk and then I remember finally taking a week, it took me a week to clear it, and I had this um, solicitor stamp and I didn't want to take it out of the box because I was so sad, I felt like I was saying goodbye to this person, this like smart person, and I was becoming this creative, this fluffy person who no one knows, and it's so hard. Like, you know, when you say to someone, what are you? You can say, I'm a lawyer. And um, I was just saying to Rosie, like, you're packaged up so nicely. And so mm. now when I have to explain myself, what do I do? I'm like, sometimes I can't even be bothered. I just say, I paint beads. <laughs> and, and people are so confused. But the lesson that I learned is you don't need to explain yourself. Like, yeah. because it's about, like, you know, you, life is not a dress rehearsal. You've got such limited time on this earth. So do it doing things that you love. And you don't need to explain love to anyone else because I know that sounds super mushy. But, mm. yeah, mm. that's, you know, you do have to... Um, I wouldn't say it's about saying goodbye to that person to embrace this new creative person. It's just about being open um, to to learning and developing and growing. Because mm. life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself and adding adding to your toolbox. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like I had a, a slightly. I mean, I'm still learning how to do this. I feel it's um, yeah. great advice, which I'm going to take on. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. It's tough. I had because I had a full-time job and I was trying to manage doing the Nifty Markets and Rosie Threads and trying to fulfil myself creatively while working full-time in a really hectic job. And then I thought they offered me, you know, to stay longer at this job, and I said yes because I was like, well, that's like that's good. You know, you should say yes when you get sort of like a promotion, and that, that's good. That's what you're supposed to do, and this is a good job. And I said yes, and I just felt so sick for days because I was like, this isn't what I should be doing. And I was like trying to really <laughs> shove down the like creative side of me, and I was like, shut up, <laughs> like take the job. Um, and then I ended up a few days later saying no because I was like, I just, yeah, I can't do both at the same time. Um, and I feel like it's really just about sort of listening to your intu intuition. And I know that sounds kind of mushy as well, but like I felt like physically so much lighter when I said no to that job. And I was like, well, I'm going to be like poor now, but, <laughs> mm. but at least I can focus on what I want to do. And um, yeah, I was just honestly just listen to your intuition and follow the gut feeling that you have, because otherwise, like I would hate to think what my mental state would be if I had like given up the snifty market stuff and stayed in the job. Um, but yeah, just honestly listen to your gut feeling. Mm. Is, it, is it my turn to get mushy and stuff? That's fine, but you yeah. Great, yeah. can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think what I'm hearing and can definitely see with um, working alongside of a lot of creatives every day is that it is a volatile process. Um, it is never the same, and as far as you're saying, like picking yourself back up, like where do you find that balance? And you're saying you have this one side and this other side, and really, I think it's about every day you're trying to reconcile the two and make find harmony in between them. And it is, it's just like, do I do this? Don't I? And yet, what I'm hearing is like, your creative practice is the impact that we need the most in the world. Like, it's the most valuable thing in the world right now. You know how we approach these hard conversations and the problems that we're trying to solve. It, re it requires thinking creatively about it, and it requires educating a lot of people about it. And the, I mean, and art is one of the most um, prolific 
um, ways to send a message, a powerful message to people, whether it's guerrilla, you know, street art, or um, you know, just even writing a song about it. You know, like how often do we hear something or poetry on uh, a viral video that makes us just cry because we're just like, oh my gosh, this is what we've come to. This is where it's at. I've never heard it put so so powerfully. So it is funny that on one side we have like, am I good enough? Do I do this thing? And then on the other side we're just like, we need more of this in the world more than ever before. Please don't stop. Um, and yeah, and that's actually probably why I've stuck um, with the, the job that I do running the exchange is because I just know the first thing that people meet on um, you know, what's greeting them when they decide to step into a space and say, I've never put myself out there like this before. I've never shown my paintings, I've never played this song, I've never read this poem aloud. I want them to have people like us who are just like, I'm so proud of you for just acknowledging that you're doing that. And you know, you have no clue where this is gonna take you. Um, just show of hands, does anyone have a handwritten lapel from Lucas? Did anybody get one of those when they came in? Yeah, I walked in and looked at mine and I was like, I'd rather have that, <laughs> you know? Cause I've got like a ton of these laying around and they're all printed on. But to have one one of a kind made by hand, like is, now you actually have something that you actually might keep, and you're like, you know, it's something that was made for you. And doesn't that make you feel special? Um, and it's you know, you got to actually see the process of it being created. It's another powerful thing. A human created something for you, and that's how I feel like when you talk about felt. It's like, yeah, you could go on Amazon and get something that does the job, but how much more powerful knowing that you're actually providing for someone else's livelihood. Right? You have the means to do that. And now, because of things like felt, we have a way to find those people or the markets we have in, in ordering beads. It's like we actually know we have a doorway to, to put our resources. And we, voting with our, doll, our dollar is the most powerful impact we can have. Mm. Okay? It's the tool that we all have, and it's a tool that we all use every day. And um, now, it's, say, I'd say start by just choosing where you put that. The exchange was one of the first bars that sold 27 seconds wine. Right? And we're a not-for-profit, so the, the, money, the money that we get that didn't go to, towards bottles goes back into making things more affordable for artists and our, and our artists in the studios or the people who want to use our venue. So how regenerative is that? You know, your dollar goes so far. Goes out to Hagar <laughs> overseas to stop sex trafficking. Okay? Is this maybe a little bit better than buying a wine at X bar in town? You know? So now we, have that. Now we know we have these choices that we've never had before. So. Yeah, I think there's this educating process of that power of um, our money and creativity where they meet. Yeah, that um, voting with your dollar thing. Mm -hmm. People, there, there's often this perception that buying the more ethical thing is more expensive, um, which is first incorrect um, most of the time. Um, but secondly, it's, when we say vote with your dollar, it's less about buying more ethical stuff and it's more like, well, just buy less in general mm. and <laughs> buy ethical And when stuff. you do buy, yeah. Because that, that's that a big value. part of the problem. Yeah. If we took, take fast fashion as an example, the, the problem is not the clothing in and of itself, it's the relationship that we have with the clothing and the disposable nature of it. Mm. Um, so it's like, firstly, just buy high-quality stuff, like this $50 T-shirt that I'm wearing, which I've had for a year and a half and I wear all the time. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Questions? Hello. Hello, Hannah. Hi. Thanks for sharing, everyone. Very inspiring. Um, my question is related to something that Jason said very early on about being overwhelmed by the problems that the world is facing at the moment. Um, I'm sure you're all kind of passionate, we can see, passionate about different issues. I was just wondering how you kind of deal with that 
being overwhelmed by the problems and realising that you don't really have the ability to solve any of them single-handedly. Um, and just kind of like on a mental health note, like how you deal with being overwhelmed and like thinking about those problems on a daily. When you, Bridget, you'll be thinking about those big issues all the time and how you deal with that. I find um, literally kind of why, and a, a big reason as to why I started these things, aside from the creativity aspect, was I've been very, always been very passionate about making a difference in the world, and um, then this climate crisis whole thing kind of started happening, and... <laughs> Just recently. <laughs> yeah. And I was, Just kind of kicked in. Well, it sort of like really, really kicked, into, <laughs> kicked up a notch. Yeah. And um, I feel better when I'm talking about solutions, and mm. that's why I started a blog, so I could talk about it, and that people then have a resource where they're like, oh my God, I didn't know that, I didn't know about that, and now I can share it. And mm. same with Nifty, is that I'm trying to make the demographic, you know, not people, not like, I hate saying hippies or like tree huggers, you know, it's, it's not, you don't have to be a hippie to want to like save the earth, you know, that's more of a survival mm. thing rather than like a hippie thing. It's just like it's just like sitting in the bar, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I feel better when I'm just talking about it. And I feel like with Nifty, if I just make the demographic regular people, and then they come and they're like, oh, I can just buy this thing made from someone who lives down the road or something like that. And I didn't realise that fast fashion was a thing, you know, because most people are just stuck in this trap of buying and buying and buying, and they don't realise that it's not how we have to do things, you know. They just expect t-shirts to be $12 and stuff like that. But if we can create a conversation where people can find out that that's not how it has to be, um, that makes me feel better. Because I'm like, I told one person, maybe they told another pe a person, and then that's like 20 people who now have that knowledge. And hopefully it'll sink in and create some kind of change. Hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I am incredibly hopeful because of just what people are capable of creating when you give them permission to create. And um, I would say there's, I've, um, English is a very noun-driven language. Everything is external and everything is a thing. Like the deliverable, this is why I love the Maori language because it's, it's all about con concepts. It's all about conceptualization. <laughs> and it's talking about, yeah, a much bigger thing than a physical thing. And um, when I think about you know, like products like Beat and Proceed and, you know, the markets and felt, you know, it has so much actually less to do about the thing, but more about the person knowing that what they're participating in is the right thing to do. Mm. And it's just that little bit, that little inch forward. I mean, how long has this impact thing been a real conversation? Not, not very long. And yet, how many people are all of a sudden, like, inching towards the things that are making those differences? So, um, Yes, it's overwhelming what is going on, but we've already so quickly addressed where the problems are. In Christchurch, personally, I see on one side people gathering um, like at the impact lunches at Exchange um, that Stephen puts together, and the 127, 30, 130 people he's interviewed on his podcast, 90% of them live in Christchurch. I feel like I could walk out of any door in the city and bump into like someone changing the world. It's unreal to me, and I haven't, experience that anywhere else in the world. So not only do I have the sense that here we are working on incredible things, and we actually have the opportunity to do even more incredible things, we're still building a 21st century city, but imagine what every city is doing. We're all doing this like in our own ways. So um, yeah, I think that I just kind of um, get by with that, just knowing that if I do my small part, then hopefully you're doing your small part, and you're doing your small part, 
then we will be there. Yeah. Yeah. Adding to that, I think it's about, um, it's a great question, by the way, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard, so I'm glad I had time to think about it, and you guys can <laughs> talk. But I think, um, for, for me, when it comes to dealing with these big, overwhelming issues and what helps with my mental state is to just um, be gentle with myself and with everyone around me. Just know that we can't do everything and we need to, um, in a way to know that, you know, well, what can I do so I can sleep at night is um, it comes, like, what am I doing to action my five SDGs that I care about? Am I really living and breathing my values? And so long as I do this, um, then that's enough. And just to sit in that and, and be and yeah, be gentle with myself to know that that's all I can do. And you know, as to what Preston, what you said, trust that other people are doing that as well. But um, I urge you to use the SDGs as your framework to figure out where you can, you know, put your impact so it doesn't feel as overwhelming. Yeah. For me, the question really connects with um, mental health and guilt. And the way that I think about it is that uh, we know that the, the systems that we as a society have built over the last several hundred years um, are kind of lighting fires faster than we know how to put them out. And uh, the way that I think about it is I don't have to be putting out fires all the time. I don't even have to be supporting firefighters all the time as long as I'm not an arsonist. So it's like, actually, as long as I can look myself in the mirror and uh, be guilt-free about the way that I'm living my life, then that's enough. And if I can't do that, then that's probably driving a lot of the other stuff as well. Um, from a mental health perspective, uh, I, I studied psychology and HR, so I've got a bit of a bent to look at these things academically. I, I find that stuff quite interesting. But um, the, past, the previous two generations of men in my family have been really tormented by mental illness. And so um, I'm quite conscious of that. And um, I take quite a structured approach to the way I live my life to make sure that I don't slip down into that volcano, but I can dance around the ring. Does that make sense? Yeah. Tafari tapafa, five ways to well-being. Those are my tools. And I think one thing to, just to tie what you guys said um, just then is that you mentioned creativity is like the creation of value. I feel like the most important things um, that we can do, and like my journey was first finding the value that I wanted to contribute towards, and now that I stepped into it, now I have the ability to create within that environment. So again, like going from like, I didn't find the exchange, but now I work around artists every day, I'm inspired every day, and now I'm working on my own things because I finally got to discover what those were, and I have an entire community that supports me every day to play with those ideas and to get feedback on them. And so, yeah, creativity and food, like I look at, the urban landscape here and what Cultivate and all of them are doing, you are, we, are, we can grow value. <laughs> Food is valuable, right? And so there is this very strong mindset of scarcity in the world that when it comes to mental health that we, we, need, to, we need to have things and you know, are we gonna solve this? And it's actually, there's an abundance. There's an abundance of people that are willing to improve things. We just need to yeah, get on with it or get, yeah, get the message out. And it takes working together to do that. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of time. We've got five and a half minutes left, so um, let's take a couple of questions. Wherever the microphone is, yep, Fiona. Uh, hi, guys. How are you doing? Um, okay. Thank you all for sharing, first of all. Um, it's said that we're a combination of the five people we spend most of our time with. And, you know, you've all spoken about having to step outside of your comfort zone and, and do not fit in, you know, in inverted commas, actually more like belong to yourself. 
Um, have you had to make changes to those five, the, the, the people that you do surround yourself with and spend your time with? Or sometimes when you don't have a choice, be more mindful of when you are with those people. So yeah, who do you choose to spend your time with or have you had to make changes in some of your relationships as a result of your choices now and why? Can we take one more question as well and we'll just sort of address one of each? Um, my question is largely based around how you began the creative enterprises that you're involved in and how, for me, when I think about uh, starting something like that up, finances seem like such a big barrier that I keep bouncing off of that and then not pursuing that creative instinct. So I was wondering how the financial side of things was a... How, how it was something that you either got around or maybe it wasn't a barrier. Um, maybe it's just a perceived barrier. Yeah, thanks. So let's just pick one. Yeah. Um, I will answer the second question because I feel like the first, I haven't actually, I've just happened to be lucky and have lots of supportive people around me who are very positive. So I'll go to, I'll focus on the second question. Um, I can understand how that, that is, that does seem like a very overwhelming factor. Um, but basically, I just tried to get as many people as possible to do things with me. Um, so I happened, I just asked around basically. So in terms of the market, I um, just found someone with a venue. Um, I asked a lot of people. Um, and then I asked people to come on board and I offered them a free spot at the market if they would do it for me, were with me. Um, so basically, literally just collaborating with like-minded people who will help you and um, want to achieve similar things. Um, yeah, just ask, pretty much. Amanda Palmer's best TED talk ever, <laughs> the artist that said um, and wrote, I think, the book, Ask for What You Need. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just like, <laughs> it's quite oh, simple, right. yeah, just you can ask. do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I'll just go through the quick first one really fast. Um, I'm constantly finding who, who I'm around and, and um, kind of letting new things in. I'm trying to still continue to grow. It's kind of my journey, and people will be a, along for parts of that. I always try to keep, um, say, 33% of the people, 33, 33, 33, um, people that I can always pass on my learnings to, people that I'm always working with and that I can grow together with, and then people that I'm learning from. And those are always kind of coming and going. And um, sometimes it's really sharp. like. Brene Brown's, you know, Dare to Lead course, we're learning about courage and boundaries. Um, and then uh, other times it takes a year to kind of sink into something else and find it, but I'd say it changes quite a bit. Yeah, and then the other one with money. Um, what Exchange does is we kind of charge things at a corporate and private rate so that we can afford to subsidize or give it to the creative practitioners. So that makes it a lot less risky for them. It, it, it creates this culture of, um, newness and experimentation being allowed and embraced and with very low financial risk. Um, we also have a Patreon account, so if people like what Exchange does for the city or have ever been a part of it, they can throw in five or 10 bucks a month. And to me, I think that's the future of how funding will evolve to. We stop depending on the masses and having to like climb to them, but we actually just be brave and we get, up, get on camera. I mean, look at Alana, you know, their video, they did not have a script, they did not have a high-end camera, they said we have, we're doing something important and we're gonna ask for what we need. And people stepped up and gave it to them. And um, that's definitely the direction exchange is moving in, is we're this small space, but what we, what we are doing um, is really important uh, to the creation of a city's identity as far as just the creativity side is concerned. And if you believe in that, then prove it. Get on board, you have the option to. Yeah. 
Um, answering that first question, great question. There's definitely been people that I've had to say goodbye to, um, like, you know, metaphorically <laughs> um, from my life. And um, I think a really, a question that I'm always asking myself, and I think it's really powerful um, to think about is, you know, to know that, um, ask yourself, is this relationship serving me? Is it feeding um, that fire within and I like to always use the metaphors of sunshine. Like, I know that sounds super lame, but that's just how I roll. You know, like, because like, you yourself are like an organic being. So surround yourself with rays of sunshine to photosynthesize that goodness within, right? Um, and yeah, just check, check within your friends group if, if they are doing that for you. Um, the other point, the other question is um, for, for Beat and Proceed, it was really straightforward. Um, it was making a necklace one day, wearing it to work, everyone wanted one, and then saying, no, 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 you've got to do it yourself so you can feel what it's like to create, because it was that creative process that was important. Um, the funding side of things, so that's when I realised, okay, people value this. So you kind of got to mm -hmm. test the market to make sure there is, people are prepared to pay something, but then um, where it kicked off was getting seed funding from the United Nations Association Trust Christchurch branch. <laughs> so, if um, depending on what it is, and you know, you can seek funding. And um, a great, if this is something that aligns with certainly creativity and sustainability, Christchurch City Council has a sustainability and innovation fund. And simply going there and telling them um, what it is that you're doing is worthwhile because you're, you know, getting the word out there and then also applying for funding as well. So there's heaps of different places that you can get that funding. So. Yeah, to prevent that barrier. Can, and then, can you just write a book so we can and just call it Read and Proceed? Because you've got like all of these words down to, to sunshine. Read and Proceed. Yeah. Sunshine. Yeah. Chapter number two. Um, quickly before we wrap up, so the, the money one, um, people pay for things where value is being created for them. So you, the, if, if money, the way that I think about it is if you can't find money, it's because you're not creating something that's valuable enough or you're talking to the wrong people. Um, and the other way to think about it is that when you're creating value, there's some risk to that. And if the risk is too much, then you've got to find someone else who can take on board that risk. And that's often what it comes down to, is splitting the risk and splitting the value. Um, that's something that we've really been learning at Felt at the moment. Um, and then on the, the five people thing, yeah, I've, I've kind of got the problem of, this is a super first world problem, I know too many people. Um, I've been here for a long time and I'm involved in a great many things and I'm an outrageous extrovert. So um, I know thousands and thousands of people in, in this city alone, so I can't go anywhere without running into people, and that's actually become a real problem for me because I don't have a close group of people who I spend time with. I'm spread too thin too often. Um, so that's something from a mental health perspective for me. It's like, actually, I need to cultivate fewer, deeper relationships at the moment, um, which is really hard because I meet everyone. I'm like, yeah, we should hang out more. I've got a slot between 7.30 and 7.45 and three weeks on a Tuesday night. How does that work for you? Yeah, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, right. It's just it's, it's not good. Actually, don't, don't be an extrovert. Yeah. It's just overrated. <laughs> he says sitting on stage with a microphone. Anyway. Um, thank you for being here. Um, put your hand up if this has been valuable for you. Wonderful. That's all that matters. Thank you. We'll break out for break um, now and then we're back into another group of workshops and then we're back in here together. Please put your hands together for our fantastic panelists. And I think the power of asking social media.
Stay up to date. <laughs> growing every day, not just on a Saturday. Okay, thanks. And if you don't know what you want to do with your life, book into campus, campus.org.nz. <laughs> yes. come, come and have a chat. Everyone, thanks for coming to our panel. Is this working? We're on? Sweet. Um, my name is Elizabeth Yu, and I'm moderating a lovely panel this afternoon, last panel of the day. But first, I wanted to do a bit of an energy check. How is everybody feeling in their physical bodies? Bodies are working? Awesome. Great. Not, yeah. We're not having like the sugar crash? Good. Glad to hear it. Maybe that comes 10 minutes later. I don't know. And then how's, how are people feeling in your emotions? Like, are you inspired? Have you learned some things today that you're excited to put into practice? All right, lots of nodding heads. Great. Well, I hope that you'll be further inspired by our panelists here today. Um, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but we have a little bit of a format. So we have, um, obviously, we all have names. We have ventures. They've been asked to be very succinct in describing what it is that their ventures do. And then because sometimes at the end of a conference like this, it can feel a little bit overwhelming, like, wow, everyone is just like holier than me, and how can I ever measure up? We're all going to also share one of our guilty pleasures. So I'm going to start. My name is Elizabeth Yu. I work with a not-so-small venture anymore known as Xero. Xero makes cloud accounting software that helps small businesses and their accountants find the right numbers anytime, anywhere, from any device. And my guilty pleasure, despite all the packaging and palm oil, is instant noodles, all kinds. <laughs> Hello, my name is Cecilia, and uh, I'm the founder of my Bag. Uh, my business is dedicated to replace single-use plastic it's with sustainable products. And my guilty pressure, um, I don't do this very often, but will be going into my husband's wardrobe and getting rid of all the clothes that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one more question. Um, sorry, if you have anything to do with the goodie bag that all the attendees received, please let us know what that relationship is with the goodie bag. Ah, yes. And, and yeah, all of you will find my prod reusable produce bags in your goodie bags, so please use and reuse them. Kia ora koutou, Anthony Rowan, Tene. I uh, run a small accounting firm called Fairground Accounting and we sort of believe in a world where one day um, purpose-driven business might become business as usual. So we're really passionate about supporting social enterprises and startups. Um, as accountants, we don't really do goodie bags because that's fun. Um, <laughs> don't really do fun stuff. Uh, guilty pleasure is probably... Uh, I, I, sometimes I feel guilty about taking a break and just tuning out. So I think it would have to be just when it, jumping onto Netflix and sometimes binge watching something binge worthy. <laughs> Kia ora, my name's John Joe. I run uh, Flashworks Media, which is a full service video production company based here in Christchurch, serving all in New Zealand. And we're the first video production company to become a B Corp in New Zealand. Um, Thank you. Um, guilty pleasure. I was going to say Netflix. Um, it's probably The Chase, if anyone watches The Chase in the afternoon. That's me, yeah. Sometimes I kill it and sometimes less I. Nice. That's cool. Hey, everyone. I'm Jeff from Liminal. We make uh, bags and apparel, um, and our business is helping drive impact and purpose to brands or events, um, and we're about eliminating poverty um, and its impact um, through transformational business. Um, so we do that in Kolkata, India, um, and we're also part of a, a um, cooperative here, Eddington Coffee Co-op, um, so we're part of that bigger business and looking at more kind of fair and ethical ways of doing business. Um, our part to play, we provided the bags and also uh, one of our other sister companies did the little wristbands that you would have had in the 
the goodie bags, um, and my guilty pleasure, um, much to my wife's um, despise, is stuff comments. Like I'm just a sucker, <laughs> sucker for the comments on stuff. So that's really do you add to me. them or do you reading just them? Reading them. Reading them. Like I'm them, not yeah. like actively right. um, commenting, but definitely I, I enjoy reading. Complete waste of time. That's all right. Maybe yeah. you're one of those trolls. Now we know. <laughs> um, so, of course, by the end of a day like today, you've probably heard a hundred different definitions of impact. So I wanted to start by asking the panelists how it is that you describe impact. So what does impact mean to you? And what are the words that you primarily use? So I know at Zero we talk about social and environmental impact. That's what, how we tend to look at impact, but that means a whole bunch of things. So Cecilia, let's start with you. How do you describe your impact? Um, I think impact is when you influence something that's going to have an outcome, and that outcome could, could transcend through time. So it's just the, the impact or the influence that something's going to have on a certain outcome. And for my business, I think, yeah, I use words like sustainability. We're all about preserving all forms of life. Uh, respecting plants, animals, and humans. And yeah, I think sustainability, restoration, regeneration, that's yeah, the words that I will define as impact. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, what about you? What words resonate most strongly? In uh, for impact, I, I think it kind of can be split into two things. There's like personally the impact that I want to have um, and be impacted, but also as a business or a, or a corporate or whatever we're doing. Um, and I'm probably outside of the, the mold here on the panel today. I don't actually own any of our business. Um, I quit my job to be part of it. Um, and that's kind of maybe I just want to encourage people as well is that um, you can actually be impactful. It's not all about entrepreneurship or startup. They're all good things. But actually being able to do that within the construct or the, the confines of, um, of a corporate as well can actually have impact. Um, and for me, yeah, something that's kind of just really resonated more recently as we work more B2B is just actually the engine of capitalism um, can be used for good and that purpose can be profitable as well. Yeah. And B2B means business to business, so instead of business to consumer, just to define some jargon. Um, and Ants, what about for you? Yeah, um, just going off the B2B uh, thing, getting into social procurement as well. So if you're an organisation or a business, thinking about your spend and where your money is being spent as well. So um, you can have a business that is just being a normal business, but you, know, you can affect some sort of impact by where you spend your dollar. Mm. And I think in the industry that we're in, we get to work with a lot of different clients having a lot of different impact uh, across different sectors. So the sort of words we use is just really about how do we help those organisations amplify their impact and just being that kind of like that support in the background. So I kind of reflect on how we try to have impact and I, I really struggle with that. But then I don't struggle when I think about the impact that all of our clients are having. That's awesome. And then John Joe, so as our certified B Corp on the panel, I was hoping that you could help define for people what a B Corp actually is, and then how, how do they define impact, and how does that relate to how you do? Um, so a B Corp is a corporation or a business that is, um, once they become certified, they are legally obligated to, um, to assess every decision they make and how that affects their workers, 
their uh, customers, the community, and the environment. Um, it's quite a, quite a high standard to, to achieve, so we're really stoked on, on doing that. Um, the B-Lab have the impact assessment, which you can all go and do, um, and that gives you a really good yardstick to measure yourself against. Um, but what, for what sort of things do they measure? Um, things like your financial transparency within the business. Do your lowest paid staff get paid a really small amount in compared to the highest paid member? Who knows that? Who can see that? Who can access it? So at our office, zero is just one of the tabs that's always open and anyone can have a look. Um, they also analyze if you've got you know, decent recycling systems in place. Are you uh, treating your water if it leaves the site? Um, and you know, how much pro bono work you're doing. It's really comprehensive, really comprehensive. Um, so we didn't, we didn't actually get as many points as I would like in the environmental section because we're not treating all of our water as it leaves, but we're a video production company. We use the water for tea and coffee. So, um, but it's, it's a yeah, good, good um, impact assessment tool. And so of all the different ways to define or measure impact, how did you choose which ones to focus on, particularly as a company that doesn't necessarily have, for instance, a large environmental footprint? Well, for me, um, Flashworks was set up with some core values. And number one is to make the world a better place. Number two was always do the best work possible. Number three was to always value and empower and respect our people. And number four was just don't be a dick. So <laughs> with, and those were set up years ago, and even before I heard of B Corp. So I was always wanting to make the world a better place through the medium of video, whether that's telling stories that inspire um, people to make positive social change. Um, so when I heard about B Corp, at first, I only had myself in the business and it didn't really make sense um, but then once we got some staff it was something that is um, and it was really common with all our employees that we wanted to make the world a better place so it's like that's a good framework for it um, but there's still a lot more to do for yeah. sure awesome and then Cecilia what about for you again there's so many ways that you could interpret even your response to how you define impact how did you decide where to focus when it came time to found your own company Yes, yes. No, I think it, it can be quite overwhelming. Like for me, because I come from a terrible country, from Bolivia, I witnessed or experienced directly many of the issues that the world faces. So I always felt, felt kind of responsible that I, I want to do something to help in some way. But it can be quite, quite overwhelming. So for me, the starting point was when my son, six-year-old, came two years ago and said, Mom, uh, how come we're using so many plastic bags? I saw this video and a whale ingesting so much plastic and she died. And why are you using plastic bags? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that really got me. And that was when I started researching. And then I realized that if we keep on at the right we're going, by 2050, our oceans will be completely covered in plastic. The rainforest will be gone. Millions of species will die. The oxygen won't be breathed out. And all these things that are just super scary. So I said, OK, right, I'll focus something, I can do something about pollution, maybe not much because I'm just one person in the huge spectrum of the problems, but what can I do, where can I focus? So I started making some changes at home as a mom, so stop, we stopped using plastic bags, uh, we tried to uh, not buy pre-packaged pre -packaged products with plastic and a few other things, like grow our own vegetables and fruits, but that wasn't very successful, <laughs> still learning. Um, and then uh, I realized I was buying a lot of fruit and veggies, because we, I have three boys. And when I was getting into this fruit and veggie section in the supermarkets, there was no alternative. So we had to use the plastic bags that just come because I have so many different fruit and veggies. And so that was a pain point for me. That was something that was annoying me. And that was something that 
could be a little bit of the solution in the big spectrum of pollution. So I say, right, I'm going to bring a solution to this problem. And hopefully that's going to inspire others to bring solutions onto the many other problems that we're facing. So yeah, just use what you have, whatever is your situation. You don't try to do it all. Just, yeah, what can I help with? Where am I at? And yeah, just start. <laughs> And Jeff, for you, you said you quit your other job to join Liminal Apparel. So there was obviously something about the impact that they were having that really spoke to you. So what, what was that? Yeah, I think for me it was just um, actually being able to be part of something with other people was super important too. Um, and I was probably never going to be able to do that by myself. And actually that is how we're going to see change. Um, so I think for us, impact is actually we're about people. Um, there's that awesome Māori proverb. What is the most important thing in this world? It's people, it's people, it's people, and that's for us what really resonates. Um, we're for people, um, and it's often where um, others aren't, so that's why we've gone into some of the hardest areas in the world, and we do want to see change um, in those communities where people can make good choices and have good jobs and see good communities um, actually prosper. Um, and I think for us, if at the end of the day, if all we've done at the end of this is set up a, a nice manufacturing unit and offered employment, we've kind of failed as well um, as a business. It has to be more um, than just that. Like, we want to see radical transformation um, in people's lives. And how do you measure that? For us, I mean, we're, we're about when we set up, we wanted to make, make money, um, be unashamed about that give it all away, um, provide a, a place of belonging. So whether locally you could come to the cafe or into the shop and buy some clothes or a coffee or whatever it was. Um, and then at a global level, people could come and be part of something too. Um, and then finally, it was about employment. So um, we're working with people here who might be on the fringes. So whether um, you know they're struggling alcohol related or people just struggling, like the battlers in this life. Um, and then. Um, globally with Freeset and Common Good, they're our producers. Um, it was people who generally, um, with poverty, had either been human trafficked or sold into the sex trade. So um, that's where Alana this morning, she's a really good friend. Um, her big impact, that was one of her things, was actually traveling over and just seeing um, the change that, that, that made in those people's lives. Mm. I mean, Ant, as far as visibility into the change, I mean, as an accountant, you are um, really helping businesses look under the hood and to see what is actually happening. But as far as how you define um, impact and how you measure it for yourselves or how you, you know, how you help your clients struggle through that. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult because when the moment you say you want to measure impact, you then think, okay, let's look for a system or a certification and let's go in and, and pick one. But I think last time I looked, there was something like over 350 different sort of impact frameworks you could possibly choose from, mm -hmm. and some of them very industry specific. And then if I pick this one and one of my competitors is doing this one, does that mean that I'm comparable to them or not? Mm -hmm. And you can almost get a bit of paralysis by not just, it's too hard. There comes a time when 
the rubber hits the road and you have to make a really tough decision based upon the values that you've set out for yourselves. So do you have an example of a time when you or maybe one of your clients was faced with this big decision and then had to make a call? Yes. <laughs> just trying to frame up what I can say about this client and what I can say. Um, I'll talk around the, the client has got some very strong um, uh, focus around climate change and they were approached by someone from Fonterra who wanted to be one of their customers and they fought pretty hard internally as to whether that should be a customer that they took on. And what because they didn't necessarily agree with the values of that Yeah, because they thought there's a values misalignment with if we're going to do work for Fonterra, does that then put us into a stage of conflict? But what transpired was that it opened up a conversation. So it, they went back to Fonterra and said, hey, look, you know this is who we are. You know this is what we're all about. Why, why do you want us? And then that opened up a conversation which then got a bit of a deeper understanding, which meant they could actually do some work with them without um, sacrificing the, the, those values or the impact they're trying to have. I love that as an example of evolving your lines. Mm. Because we all draw a line somewhere, but mm. then you know, there's always more information and more ways to have an impact than you mm. might originally believe. Yeah. So John Joe, what about you? Is there a tough decision <coughs> you've had to make? Um, very similar sort of situation, actually. Um, I think there was a period of time where I wasn't really talking and making public my environmental passions. Uh, and then I decided that that's, if I don't tell people I want to work in that space, I won't get that work, right? So I put a big environmental page on my website, put a tree planting that we have on there, native tree planting with Takakano down in Wanaka, um, and made it quite clear that that's who we were. And I think after doing that, um, we haven't really had any tricky situations of, of companies coming up to us. Um, it's been more the other way. My knee-jerk reaction to... Um, someone asked me to go and film a machine that cuts down trees really quickly and really efficiently. And I immediately went, oh, we can't do that. I said, cutting down trees, I'm paying for trees to go in over here. Can't do that. But then when I looked into it a bit more, it was a man-made forest that was planted 30, 40 years ago specifically for this, and it was the largest forest in the southern hemisphere or something. So ultimately it was... I was, I was going to be too quick to not work with them. Um, and then if you ask more questions, you actually find out a lot more. Um, so yeah, I think because we have the environmental stuff quite front and centre, um, it will, the people who are not into that won't contact us. Mm. Yep. Easier. Cecilia, what about you? Any tough decisions you've had to make? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, one I, I can remember, I think, is when I was choosing the fabric for the bags from the a business point of view, the finances, I was offered the polyester bags that were like 10 times cheaper than the actual uh, compostable, sustainable fabrics that we use at the moment. And yeah, it was tough because we were starting the business. The finances were like new. <laughs> and I knew that like, yeah, hard times will come ahead. And, but at the same time, it was the, the environmental values, what are you trying to achieve by bringing a sustainable solution? So it's not, it was not just about bringing a reusable bag, but it was about bring, uh, creating ethical, make, making the bags ethically and creating impact, and then what will happen with the bags after they are like completely gone, like 
how do you dispose of them? So it was reassess all of that and make the decision. And still now, sometimes, yeah, when tough time comes economically in the business, I still think, oh, I should have chose the other ones, but, you know? Yeah, this. So did that mean you also had to adjust your pricing model? Yes, yeah, definitely. And did that, yeah. did that impact sales, or do you think that having made that more ethical decision has meant that you're more appealing uh, to your customers? I think it did have impact in sales, definitely, but we're trying to share the message why, like when you buy a reusable bag or when you make one, why should you make it out of sustainable fabrics? Because if you are using a polyester bag, let's say, once that's gone, it's not going to biodegrade, it's going to stay forever in the environment, so defeats the point. It's made of petroleum-based uh, fabrics as well, so yeah. So it's, it's just informing the people yeah. what mm -hmm. are the options and why. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I was thinking that when, when you, you were describing your experience too, it's like those moments where you have made a decision based on your values, those are really great opportunities to share your process and to share with mm. your, the public on your website or in your blog to your customers or whatever it is. And then they can see that you are actually committed to that. I think it's like these, these moments to me are so interesting and so juicy. Mm. They really show mm. people that you are willing to make that commitment when the rubber hits the road. Yeah. So yeah, what about for you? Um, yeah, I, it's just interesting hearing um, everyone else's perspectives as well. And I think it's, um, we'd often come up with, you know, we sell basics, blank t-shirts, and what if the mongrel mob came up and wanted some t-shirts? Or, you know, it's like, can we work with these guys based on values and everything? But it's also at the same time, um, like you said, it's a really nice point to be able to, or place to be able to actually engage and, and have the conversations with people on why you're doing what you do, but also actually bringing and holding people to account as well. And um, I think we're seeing more and more, you know, big business is actually waking up to the fact that, like we've said um, earlier on today, that um, we have power in the, the place where we spend our money and, and what we do with that. So they are wanting to, to take that money, um, and a lot of people will do that by greenwash or whitewashing. But, um, Actually, hey, I guess for us, we're like, actually, we need these big corporates, and it is going to be through the corporates and probably government that we do see um, really true change. Um, so, yeah, it's cool hearing these perspectives, you know, what you guys are saying. Um, I think for us, we've always found it really tough because we're, we're starting at a point where um, it's not tr we're not starting from a, a traditional manufacturing sense. We're offering people freedom and employment who um, otherwise life is, is pretty tough. So um, that has always been a battle and it has been a really tough one. Um, and there's a cost to that, but that's, that's why we've chosen that as well. We're in it for the long game and we, we truly want to see change um, in those people's lives. So um, yeah, I feel like we've We've been going um, 11 years now and actually being able to navigate, you know, the GFC stuff and, um, and actually see, see growth, which is, is pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the things, especially for new entrepreneurs, that I would encourage you all to think about is how, like, what is your theory of change? Are you, do you believe, well, first of all, it's a spectrum, right? On one side of the spectrum, it's, we are going to be as ethical as possible on as many points as possible. And on the other side, it might be the bigger we can get, the more impact we can have because of our scale. And it's not like one or the other of those is right or wrong. It's mm. just like, what do you believe? And can you communicate that to your staff? Can you communicate that to your investors? Can you communicate <coughs> that 
to your accountant <laughs> as you're trying to find a good match. I mean, there's, there's so many scales that we could be looking at, and there's so many places that you could draw yourself on. And again, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting to try to shift the mindset as like one is not right or wrong, but it's just important to know where you stand. Um, so we're about half an hour left. We wanted to get to audience questions, and I'm going to do something a little bit bizarre. I would love to hear maybe six questions all at once to see if we can see if there's any themes or what we could address that would be of most use to the most people in the audience. So, I mean, do you think you can all hear each other if you just yell from where you are? Or do we need to send the mics down? Someone yell out a question and we'll test that. Silence. Or did someone shout and we just didn't hear you? Yeah. Does anyone have questions for the audience? I can keep asking questions all day. Really? All right, we've got a question here. How do you deal with doubts about your ideas and about the things that you do, um, especially as a starting also along the way? Yeah. I'll just repeat that. So um, the question was, how do you deal with doubt? So not only in the beginning, but mm -hmm. as you go along. Since we didn't seem to have many more, we'll just take the questions as they come. <laughs> Who wants to tackle oh, that one? I'll, I'll handle that one. We'll go first anyway. Um, doubts are all the time, 24 7, 365 for me. I spend my, most of my time is critiquing my own work to the nth degree. And then I get no perspective on if anyone else can see that little thing in the video or hear that little click. But it's that's go, going back to values. Number two is always do the best work possible. So, um, yeah, I always have doubts. And um, certainly when I started the business, my mum, who was extremely supportive, she said, oh, that's, that's a nice idea. But have you thought that maybe you can have a, a, you know, a normal job and then that can be a hobby? Um, <laughs> my dad has never liked, oh, I think he's like one of the videos I've made in 10 years. Um, but ultimately, if you feel that desire that you want to do something, um, I would say go, go for it. And anyone who says, oh, I don't know if that's going to work, they probably haven't thought about it half as much as you have. You will probably be the most um, informed person about your idea. So if you think it's going to work, I would say go for it. And um, if you have doubts, you, know, you should analyze them, but then also look at the flip side. Um, put up a big, I've got a future window, which has all of my goals on. And um, yeah, just keep looking at that and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is a is a massive one, and it is just can weigh really heavy. You're just doubting yourself and um, whether you can do it. Um, and for me, I feel really fortunate. I work with some of my best friends, and um, we're doing that together. So um, there's an, a really healthy relationship where they actually will call me on my bullshit. Um, if I'm not in a good space, they can actually bring it up, um, but also. You know, actually being having people speaking and feeding into you as well is super important um, to to um, to affirm that you are actually you're, you're here for a reason. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's been really good. I think uh, we've heard a few stories throughout the day as well of people who have had had doubts mm. in themselves, but they've also listened to those when they're doubting that what they're doing is in conflict with their values and why the sort of impact they want to have. Um, I think 10 years ago, if you'd said to me, you're going to be an accountant for the rest of your life, I probably would have just like shriveled up and cringed just a bit, going, oh, I can't be. 
I hate this industry. It's horrible. But then listening to those doubts and when you can find that you can, you can, you can actually turn things around as well. And I thought, well, when you can mix what you really want to do, so if you wanted to have impact and you had a skill set in a particular industry, what about if you brought those two things together? So you get out of the, 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 the thing that's being toxic and creating these doubts and you flip it around as well. Yeah, I think uh, doubts come all the time. I think it's a never-ending thing. But it, I think it's important to go back to your values, as you say, and think, why am I doing this? And if you have that voice in your head that it's constantly there, like telling you that you need to do something even though you don't feel up for it, maybe, just keep working on yourself, evolving as you go, listening, learning from others, and take a break sometimes. Sometimes when I feel super doubtful, I just switch off completely from the business, from the impact, from everything, and I just take it easy on myself, recharge, and then start over again. I think the other massive thing with doubt is that it starts you thinking, and thinking is often, can be your greatest enemy as well. Like, nothing, you just end up doing nothing. So thinking is never gonna be better than doing. Just, just do it, give it a go. Um, and if you're at uni, um, if you go out, start something up, give it a go. Even if you give it a go and it fails in 10 years, you've still got, you know, another, your whole lifetime ahead of you. Like, there's just, it's, it's unreal how much, you know, you look back um, when you kind of start getting a bit older and it's like, I had so much time in that post-university first kind of 10 years. So I just encourage you guys to don't think about it too much as well. Just actually get on and, and give it a go. Yeah, how many people have done something that has failed? How many people have done more than five things that have failed? <laughs> yeah, so we're all still here, <laughs> so yeah. that's an important message. Mm -hmm. I think I was thinking about doubt, similar to what um, you two were saying. I feel like sometimes there is something that's true about the doubt, so you can address that piece, like, oh, I doubt that this venture is gonna make money. So what you can do is write up your business plan and crunch the numbers and like, show that, well, I think that if I do this, I will make money, but then stop there. You know, you have your experiment now, then see how it goes for the next few months. If it doesn't make money, come back and crunch the numbers again. But you know, that, that doubt might be telling you something that's true, but don't let it drive. You know, you, you're in charge. And the other piece of that puzzle is there's, because everyone has said there's always gonna be doubt, you need to learn to embrace some part of that and to get smart about discerning <clears throat> what part of it is true and what part of it is just, you know, the monster under the bed that's, mm. yeah. It's gonna be there, but it doesn't need to drive. So I'll try to repeat that. Um, especially when you work for yourself, there can be this um, belief that you have to do everything yourself. And sometimes it can be difficult to know, like, what is it that you can outsource? Um, so the question was, have you had this experience? And then who was it that you talked to that helped you identify where were some of the things that you could let go of or that you could have somebody else do? Is that about right? Um, yeah, 100%. I, I have been called a control freak, but I just thought it was, they just needed to be done right. Um, <laughs> but ult ultimately, uh, I think a really good, um, it was a podcast from a guy called Rob Moore. He's an entrepreneur over in the UK, lots and lots of money, but he's also set up all these foundations. But ultimately, it comes down to what is the best way for you to spend your time? And for me, it, I eventually identified it was talking with clients, 
planning the shoot, filming and um, overseeing an edit. Mm -hmm. Anything outside of that, someone else is probably way better at doing it than me. So that's, um, we brought on someone part-time to um, do anything that wasn't those things and they've been brilliant because uh, we were talking before about Gina who used to work at Ministry of Awesome um, and now is part-time for us and she is super detailed, organized on the next level. And when I, when I saw that kind of thing, I, well, I'm never gonna get there because I don't want to be there. So um, happily hand that over to other people. Um, ultimately, it's what's your biggest dollar earning capacity? What, what is the one thing that you can do and no one else can do? And, and if, if you can work out how much you make in a year and divide that by the number of hours that you want to spend working, you'll get an hourly rate. And if it was, let's say it's $200 an hour, if it costs $199 an hour to get someone else to do something, do that. So I used to mow my lawns on a weekend and it would take me all Saturday. I now have a guy who does it for $17 and that got me four hours back. So it's, yeah, anything that isn't your main thing, get rid of it. Yeah, I think we can all get um, myself as well. Sometimes you, you love so much what you're doing that you wanna do it all. But yeah, definitely run the risk to get burned out <laughs> completely. And as well, we're not experts on every single little thing, so it's super important to let it go. Trust, believe, and yeah, ask for help when you need it. And yeah, identify what you're good at, what you really enjoy doing, and focus on upskilling that, and then yeah, outsource the rest. So I think, yeah, that's super important. Yeah. I. I think when you're creating your own business and and it's your baby, you feel like this obligation. You feel like everything has to be everything has to be perfect. You have to, you know, if it's not right, someone's going to it's going to come back to me. It's going to be a reflection on me. So to be able to grow a team and especially grow a team of people that are better than you at the things you're not good at is so important. Mm. And for us, it took. Um, taking a holiday to go, well, I'm not going to be here, so someone else needs to be here to be able to, like, the real push to get someone on board. Congratulations and for deciding to actually take a holiday as an yeah. entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, I, and the holiday was amazing. Like, you know, four weeks off that you just don't four think weeks. about work. I know. What? And, and I came back so refreshed and so energised and the world didn't fall apart and you're like, oh, maybe we could do this again. Yeah. But the whole... I think the other thing is also thinking about people you can talk to or mentors I found have been really helpful. Uh, I've got a business partner, she's, she's based in Wellington, and I would be constantly be saying to her, is that the best use of your time when she says she's going to be spending four hours doing something, or could we get someone else to do that? And eventually she threw that back in my face and said, is that the best use of your time? I'm like, ah, you got me with that one, yeah. But then also having some external mentors who can give you a little bit of external perspective and you can bounce some ideas and they go, what about we do it this way? And just, just having that, that other voice has been really, really useful. Yeah, I'd say the sooner you can get those other people in, the better. Um, and it's really scary at first and you'll want to babysit them and oversee them and then it's costing you twice as much and no one's getting anything done. It's a, not a good situation, but as soon as you realise that they're really good, possibly better than me at that. You're like, brilliant, don't have to worry about that. Like my stress level in the last six months has sort of done this as everyone else has been empowered and happy in their workplace. So yeah, it's, I will get to a four week holiday at some point. Yeah. 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 
Well, and Jeff, I really was struck by something you said in the beginning about how having an impact doesn't necessarily mean that you need to start your own venture. And I, I think back about, you know, before I joined Zero, I spent five years with my own. I had a nonprofit and a consulting firm, and I did the speaker circuit and was teaching workshops. And I am a total control freak as well, and I absolutely wanted to do everything myself, but I also was super lonely. And one of the things that I knew I had no interest in doing was growing a company and being an employer and you know being responsible for other people. And so that was the point at which I was like, well, if that's true, then maybe I need to start looking at making an impact through another company mm. and through becoming an employee of another company. So mm. did you have similar thoughts yeah. along those lines? I, I just think we're, we can be youthful wherever we are. And, um, I still feel that same fear for you know that you feel as a as an owner operator um, because I'm I'm super invested in what I do um, I believe in it to the core I've kind of given up everything um, and because I want to see that change in in people's lives so even that I mean within wherever you are you, it, it's hard it's t it's going from that fear to freedom and it is actually freedom in hey, you're not taking up your time mowing your lawns or um, just mundane activities to actually be able to go on and, and whether you're a visionary or a creator to actually do those things that are, um, are going to be the best. And that's where, you know, that's your 5% your, your of your just gold that you can actually outwork will, will come from. And I think, John Joe, you spoke to something that's really been strong for me, is that to suddenly then to be surrounded by a bunch of other people who are experts in their field was so inspiring, and it really encouraged me to take my skills to the next level. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, there is something amazing about letting go of that need to do everything yourself and letting yourself get inspired by the people who can do it better. Yeah, I think it was, that was scarier than starting for me in the first place. Yeah. Um, but I just got to a point where I was, um, had, had mental burnout and you know I think we're all many of us are on a, a mental roller coaster throughout life and I've definitely had some peaks and some definite troughs through entrepreneurship and starting up and when I first moved to Christchurch worked seven days a week for probably six months straight and eventually hit the wall and got back up and um, I got to a certain point and thought I can't keep going like this so I could quit which I definitely wasn't going to do or it was level up and once I eventually got there I wish I'd done that multiple years before because it's free it's freeing up my time mm. and reducing the stress and that's if you're going to be an entrepreneur that's something you've got to manage and mental health as well it's a biggie build that into your your framework your <laughs> as well as your meetings and everything your meditation or your run or whatever that thing is for you because mm. I haven't done that and I'm struggling now to fit it into my really busy schedule. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd love to ask the other panelists that as well. I mean, I know that one of the things that was really hard for me is that when I was working for myself and when I was working from home, I had no boundaries between my work life and my whole life. And so therefore, I felt like at every moment I had to be working. But I'd love to hear some of the things that you found have worked to keep a boundary between your mm. work and the rest of your life? Yeah, for me, um, because I have three kids, so when I started the business, I, I said to myself, I'm not gonna sacrifice any time that I should dedicate to them because of the business, but at the same time, I wanna make an impact and make them part of this. So I try to commit to work just on school hours, because the three of them are at school now, so nine to three, that's my time. But sometimes I get super into the business, super into, lots of things that are happening. 
and then they arrive from school and it's like, oops, I really want to be with them, but I really want to get this done. So it's just um, discipline, I think is huge, and it's something I'm learning myself, because, yeah, it's important to separate both. So, yeah, I, I started to trying to get up super early, so work those very early hours in the morning, like from six till eight, then they wake up, get ready for school and all of that, and then they come back from school, stop again, and then start working again at night when they go to bed. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of work sometimes, but it's super important to separate them, switch off completely from one to the other, yeah. I think at the very start, um, when you're just sort of bootstrapping things and you're just working from home, having just some form of physical separation, so whether that's, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have the office in that room there. But for me, it was, it was all good having an office in another room, but then it was also, oh, there goes the dog, and oh, I'll do the dishes, and oh, the vacuuming needs to be. So, you know, distractions. So discipline is so important. But I found I wasn't all that disciplined. So I was like, okay, I need to go somewhere completely different. So I found a co-working space and started working out of there. So that worked really well. Um, phone notifications, hugely distractive for me. And really, are they important? So I've just turned them off. I'll turn off data during the day if I'm busy. I don't have my, my work emails synchronised to my phone anymore because if it's urgent, people will know to call me and I can always attend to emails when I'm on. Because that, that sort of that feeling in the weekend when you see an email and you think, I should be replied to that. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be. <laughs> um, and another thing is just being really um, intentional about the time that you do want to work. So I've worked out now that over the course of four days of the week, I'm doing 40 hours work. So I was doing a 50-hour week normally. So I've just dropped a day. So I'm now working four days a week, really focused in that time, and it just means that when that fifth day comes, if there is extra work to be done, I've got the choice as to whether I want to do it or not, if there's something urgent. But it's just really nice and empowering just having that real focused time. Um, similar sort of story, work from home a lot, and that was great because I'm a, I'm a night owl, don't like early mornings. Well, some of my best editing, I think, has been done from sort of 7 o'clock in the evening to like 3 in the morning, big session, get it done. Because no one's calling you at that time. No one's calling me, there's no emails, no phone notifications, nothing like that, and you just can get in the zone. But um, then the flip side, if it was something I didn't particularly want to, want to be doing, like accounting or you know, something like that, I would end up cleaning the house, making it look awesome and do nothing. Um, yeah, yeah, so then went to Ministry of Awesome and then now have a, an office where we rent out some other space from as well. And that's, it, for me, it's having that accountability of people are expecting me there at a certain time. And if it, that wasn't happening, I would probably start at 10 and work till 8 or something, which maybe I should do. But um, I couldn't get the boundaries at home. I couldn't do it. And so, yeah, having, having the office is great, but now we... Um, now, my fiance works with us as well, or she's a fantastic member of the team. In fact, she doesn't work with us. She keeps me on track. And so we have a rule that when we get into bed, at least that's when the work stuff has to stop. Um, <laughs> because it's, she's, she's so focused on details and getting stuff done that she'll say, oh, have you seen this? And I, and I, having had these mental blips, um, or not mental blips, chronic burnout multiple times, once I get home, I'm, a, I'm off the clock. I'm watching the chase. I'm not... I've, I've done that seven days a week for six months, and it's, I, I can't do that anymore. So, um, yes, make those boundaries, I'd say. 
Um, for me, I, we live in New Brighton and I work in Addington, so my commute to work is actually a, a bike ride, so I bike every day. Um, and that's actually been a really good chill out time, um, pre and post. Um, got just a young family at home, so I've got three young kids as well. So it's kind of a chill out from craziness in the morning at home to getting into work mode. Um, and I've actually found it's a really good way to, to actually choose the way I want to be in the day as well. So um, you can go often just, you know, you're at home and then you jump in your car and then it's just into work. So it's been a really nice way to just actually take some time out. I can think about things or listen to a podcast and actually choose the way I want to go into the, to that day as well. Um, and um, I'm kind of like Ants as well. I've dropped down. I'm doing a um, nine-day fortnight. Um, and some of that was young family. It was, it was really important for me to, to have the family time. Um, but also I've found that, man, I just pissed around so much at work as well. Like there would be a lot of like just scrolling Insta or on Facebook or just stupid, you know, talking to people. Like I have really been able to focus um, my hours. And over two weeks, actually, it's only, you know, it's half an hour a day or something that you're you're really lost, which would easily be taken up in so many other things that um, are probably irrelevant. Yeah. Um, are there any other burning questions? Because we are going to move into sort of an interactive exercise. Oh, we got, is that two or one over there? Yeah. Yeah, so there's the question yeah. is, do you have concerns about, I would call it impact fatigue? Are, are people hearing <coughs> that phrase too much? Are the big corporations taking mm. on that? Too much. I'm uh, I'm healthily cynical of the whole thing, and I hold it in a good tension. Um, I totally hear what you're saying. We, um, for the last four or five years, have filled out the um, tier fund um, ethical fashion report, which kind of comes out um, earlier in, in the year, and we've always received like an A plus grade for that. Um, but my my issue with it is that slowly everyone's it's just this race to the top where everyone gets an A. And then what happens? Yeah. Um, so not only is it bad for potentially our producers, and not specifically ours, but producers in developing countries, but also it waters down any meaning it has for, for us as a truly values-based organisation. Um, I don't have an answer to that, but it is, it's happening more. I guess my, my thing is, hey, let's work in the system um, while it's there. Um, and our pivot is always going to be, hey, you know, fair trade, organic, whatever, is probably just, that should be what is done. For us, it is still always going to be about people at its heart, so um, that's always going to be uh, our unique thing that we do have. Um, I also wonder if it's going to start bringing in a new evolution of, of transparency and onus, because you can go out and impact wash or green wash and talk about all the great things you're doing, but I think as consumers, we're going to start pushing back as well and saying, well, actually, can you prove that you yeah, did that? Show us. <laughs> yeah, show us. And, and hold on, you just, we just saw that factory burn down and all those workers. Were you actually looking after them? So I think mm -hmm. we're going to start seeing a lot, more, uh, a lot more information, but a lot more transparency and some organisations becoming a lot more vulnerable and opening up about what they're doing. Because impact isn't all isn't just about talking about the positive things you're doing. You've actually got to talk about the bad things. You've actually got to talk about the weaknesses you've got, and talking about the journey on how you're going, yeah. and making those bad things less bad. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah. yeah. 
I definitely think there will be lots of greenwashing happening. Um, people ultimately, if their business was built on um, particularly US companies, if they have a legal responsibility, which C corporations over there do have, they have to maximize returns for their shareholders legally. And so if it's cheaper to put something in the landfill than recycling, maybe they'll do that, um, which is where the B Corp thing came along. So. Um, yeah, there will be a bit of that, but as you say, if we all as consumers ask for more information or you know, look on their website and see what their environmental impact um, assessment is or see if they have an environmental page. Um, and hopefully, I mean, for me, as, yes, we've just got B Corp certified, but this is just, that should be business as usual. Is, although their phrase is it's not business as usual, it should be. You should just take care of your own stuff. Everything that you do in that business should be... Um, thought about from start to finish, cradle to cradle rather than cradle to grave. And if you guys are starting a business, great, you can build that in from this point up. It was quite hard, well, it was reasonably, it was a bit challenging for us to do it and we're running me going sort of 10 years or something, but um, you know, Kathmandu have just done it. That must have been hugely difficult to go through their supply chain. So if you guys can do it early and do it, build all that stuff in now. Um, and just, you mentioned the social enterprise element as well. I think, you know, the charities didn't, uh, the idea of charity setting up Flashwix as a charity didn't appeal to me because I, I knew we would need profit to be able to buy decent cameras and, and I wanted us to be able to make money but then choose how we use that money which actually just equals time and ultimately we could do more pro bono work from that. So the social enterprise is an interesting space but I think um, you can make money and profit mm and then do good things with that and your time and your people. So I don't, for me, social enterprise wasn't a do or die thing. Yeah, I think there is a lot of information now these days, like at your fingertips. So whenever us as consumers were deciding to buy something, then we can look it up, find information, ask the questions. So I think it's really important that we demand transparency and that we don't just believe anything, just see a product and okay, this is sustainable, this is, good for the environment, so we have the power in our hands to demand transparency and through social media, through our networks, through everybody, we can make sure these big companies that are claiming they are doing good things for the planet are really doing it. So I think we all have a part to take on it. Awesome. Um, so I'm changing our agenda a little bit on the fly because we don't have enough time to do the entire interactive exercise that we had imagined. but. What I would encourage all of you to do right now, I think you all have notepads or something, but I was gonna have all the panelists do this, but I think instead I'm gonna ask you to do this for yourselves and then um, so you can take that out to the rest of the day and the rest of your entrepreneurial impact life. Um, but I'd love it if you took a minute, maybe two minutes, to think about what you might ask the other attendees at this conference. Um, what, in what ways they could help you, and also think about what is something that you might offer to the other attendees that would help them. So does that make sense? What is something that you could ask as far as help that you might need, and then what is some help that you might offer the other attendees? And then we'll just popcorn do a few after a couple minutes of thinking. Do we have some elevator music to play for two minutes? <laughs> Turns out I don't know how to push buttons. That's embarrassing. It's like, oh, just push the button. Yeah, I did. No, 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 but push the button. I did. Now you push that. Oh, yeah, it's on now. Good. Hmm.
Probably none of you saw that, and I'm just unnecessarily embarrassing myself. Kia ora koutou, how are we feeling? Woo! It's amazing. It's almost like there are some people in the room in front of me. I could just about like hear them. There's some energy. Do we still have some energy? Yeah! That's the response I'm looking for. Did we enjoy the workshops? Good. Good. This is what we like to hear. So we're very much on the home straight now, team. We have two incredibly, incredibly amazing people to hear from this afternoon to add to the long list of incredibly, incredibly amazing people that we've heard from today. And then we're going to start heading out into the evening. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce very briefly Mr. Tim Bateman, who's going to come up and blow your minds. Put your hands together. Have fun. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Alrighty. Let's do it. If 101 is the answer, what's the question? Dalmatians. Dalmatians. <laughs> Spot on. It's not the one I'm looking for, though. Anyone else want to have a crack? 100 plus one. 100 plus one. Super smart guy down here, eh? <laughs> no, it is 101 as well, but no, it's not what I'm looking for either. But we'll come back to this at the end. All right. I know for a fact that every single person in this room knows a whole heap more than I do about probably most stuff, actually. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people in this room that know more about business, that know more about entrepreneurship, that know more about success. I by no means have it all sorted. Um, as you can see, this was me two nights ago planning for this. It actually wasn't. This is a stage photo. But, you know, you get the point. <laughs> uh, as I say, there's, there's, this, I just want to share with you guys today the things that I've learned um, for the last oh, 14 years um, in professional rugby and the last four years in business. And I do want you to take one key thing away from today. The thing I want you to take away is the importance of finding your intrinsic drivers. All right, so um, I was 18 back in 2006, um, and I was picked in the Crusaders, um, which for me was massive. Um, it was a team that I'd grown up watching. I had so many idols in the group, and I couldn't really believe that I'd been picked in there. Um, still sort of pinch myself every now and then thinking, you know, I don't know how I've been picked over so many of the other guys that seem to have a lot more talent than me. Um, uh, to be honest, things up until that time had been pretty easy. I felt like I'd had a pretty awesome, awesome childhood on the west coast of the South Island, the best coast. Um, yeah, as I say, it, it, I felt like things were pretty smooth. But what I didn't really realise that is that um, this sort of easy upbringing, I suppose, um, this sort of combination of a little bit of success and not too much sort of work ethic um, to, to create success. I sort of didn't have the best attitude around that. It was going to set me up for some pretty sort of difficult years. Um, like, I, I was terrified of failure. I was terrified of making mistakes. I still remember um, for the first couple of years of, of, of professional rugby with the, with the team, I wouldn't even practice tackling or kicking in front of the group because I knew that I was not naturally that good at it. And it was just a, a, a terrible mindset. Um, I suppose I sort of came to a sort of tipping point um, four years in, and I didn't get selected for a team that I felt like I should have been selected for. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm done. I'm leaving. So I actually, um, I left New Zealand rugby uh, for Japan with my wife, and we had two wee girls. Uh, they were three and one at the time. So, yeah, we, we took off. I, so I gave up. Um, so I spent 18 months in Japan um, and then came back to New Zealand. I, I really wanted to give rugby a proper, a proper second crack. And it was probably... I walked into probably the, the most difficult years I've ever had. Um, it was three years of, of just genuine, real struggle. That, that's what it felt like. It felt like a punch in the face. Um, 
I actually reckon my eyes speak a little bit more to how I felt through that time. I felt like I was in this sort of daze for a few years. It all sort of started, like rugby was going pretty well for a start. When I got back, I was back in the all-black frame. I was meeting with the coaches regularly. I felt like I had sort of a pathway to, to get to that next level. Um, and my wife came home from a run one day, and she was pretty active. Um, and she couldn't see properly, um, was the first symptom. And then um, over the period of a few months, uh, she lost use of one of her arms, she lost use of one of her legs, she couldn't control her bladders and her bowels, and she had this, this debilitating fatigue uh, where I sort of had to take on this sort of mum and dad role. Um, it, was, it was genuinely tough, um, tough time. She had multiple sclerosis. Um, it's funny how things happen sometimes, um, like this, this massive challenge that we were facing sort of every day sort of forced me to sort of look long and hard at myself, like, what was I doing? You know, like, there were so many things I, I wanted to, to do better. Um, like, I, the thing, the big one for me was, like, I, I, didn't, I couldn't let the challenges that I was having at home, I couldn't leave them there. It was take, I was taking it everywhere else with, with me. My performance in rugby was suffering. Um, my friendships, um, just, just my performance in general was no good. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't really know what to do about that. Um, and it was, it was, yeah, as I say, it was, it was a pretty tough time. Um, what, what I did do, which was, for me, single-handedly, the, the best investment I've ever made in time, money, effort, is I put a lot of time into finding like, what made me tick, like, what were my intrinsic drivers, what were the things that got me going. And this is how I did it. So it's a pretty sort of interesting way to do it, but because <clears throat> everyone talks about like, how do you find your passions, you know, find your purpose, find, what, find, find your why, I didn't really know how to do that, but this is the process that I went through, and it, and it worked out really well for me. As I listed all the things that I enjoyed doing, so I enjoy going for coffee with friends, I enjoy being out in nature, I enjoy listening to music, I enjoy the challenge of being in a team or, or, or playing sport. And then I thought, I mean, this is one of the, one of the pages, but there was a few of them. <laughs> um, and I, underneath each of those sort of passions or enjoyments, I listed the reasons why I enjoyed doing them. Like, why did I like going out for coffee with a mate? What did I like about being out in nature? What did I like about listening to music? And it was pretty crazy, um, but it, it makes a lot of sense. They could all be boiled down to two really distinct things, um, two real clear drivers. I liked rugby for the same reason I liked, I liked music. <clears throat> so this was my first driver. Um, so I've got a real strong sense of, like, I've got one chance at life. I, I genuinely want to be the best I, I possibly can. Um, and best is an interesting word, it's not just successful. Best in terms of like being grateful for the things that I have. Um, best in terms of like accepting when I'm no good at something and just getting on with it. Um, like understanding that this was, this was one of the things that made me tick, it changed so many of my decisions that I made. Like what type of people do I want to be around? I want to be around people that help bring out the best in me. I don't want to be around people that, that suck me down and, and, and create sort of that negative energy. Um, like, what, what type of business do I want to pursue? I want to pursue something that challenges me to get better. Do I want to take on risk or do I want to play it safe? Like, if I'm genuine about wanting to be my best, I want to take on risk. Like the real interesting thing that happened like, by understanding this is it actually changed the way I looked at mistakes. It changed the way I saw failure. Like, all of a sudden, I realised, actually, to get better at something, I've got to make mistakes. If I wasn't making mistakes, I'm actually not pushing myself. I'm not, I'm not getting any better. So I started actually trying to make a lot of more mistakes, and I probably I live that way a wee bit too much at the moment because I'm still playing and I'm making too many at the moment too. Um, but yeah, as I say, it changed the way I saw mistakes, and I started pushing myself. 
The second real clear driver for me was helping others be their best. Um, yeah, this was, a, this was a really interesting one because for me in rugby up until that time, I was pretty selfish. I was sort of, I, I wanted to get somewhere myself. But it was probably, yeah, as I say, five years ago now, I under, when I understood that I actually genuinely help, like helping others, like it changed the way I saw rugby. I, like a lot of my time now in rugby is actually trying to make sure us as a group we're as, as good as we possibly can. It's, and it makes, it gives me a lot of fulfillment. Like why did I enjoy being a dad? I've got two girls that are solely reliant on me and I've got this opportunity to grow them into, you know, them being the best that they can possibly be. Um, yeah, it also, the big one was like, understanding that I wanted to be my best, I wanted to help others be their best, and, and, and the, in light of knowing the struggles that I'd had mentally, it, it, these, these things, understanding these things, helped shape the, the businesses that I wanted to create. So... This is Laura, it's my wife. I think you saw her earlier, actually, sorry. Um, so we created Cloud9 Float Club because we wanted to find something to help other people, and this is what we used. Um, so we found flotation therapy in Singapore, and she got her stem cell transplant, and it was, it was amazing. Um, she, she loved it for herself, and I probably loved it a little bit more than her. Um, and, and it was, yeah, for me, flotation therapy is all about taking one step back so I can take two steps forward. We have so many people float at Cloud9 for all sorts of different reasons, whether it be stress, pain, anxiety. But the underlying reason why everyone floats is they're trying to get better at something. They're trying to, they're trying to be, have more patience with their kids. They're trying to be more focused at work. They're trying to, I don't know, see things a little bit differently so they can appreciate life a little bit more. And that, having a business that reflects that is just, it's really, really fulfilling. So this is... Um, a new business we're opening up in about three weeks' time, or four weeks' time, if the build comes on time. Um, and this is just really an extension of these, of these two drivers. Um, o Studio, own the moment. So own the moment for me is how you get better, and it's how you help others. It's not about the big one-hit wonders, you know, the, the quick fixes or the hacks. It's about literally doing the small little things, the mundane stuff, time and time and time again. Um, that's where the improvement really happens. So it's about owning that moment, whether it be good, bad, ugly, amazing, owning it and getting better and better. So O-Studio is sort of like Cloud9 on steroids, I suppose. It's, um, it's sort of a little bit bigger and offering a few more things. We're going to have more float rooms, but we're going to have yoga, meditation, and sort of relaxation, recovery room, massage, ice bath and sauna, which is going to be pretty cool too. But the thing I'm really, really excited about with, with O-Studio is is we, we're building these programs with a guy called Sam Thomas, who's, who's on our team, um, psychology background, and we're able to build um, tailored programs for people to, to work on specific parts of their mindset, whether it be confidence, whether it be gratitude, um, and all the things in between, um, and, and sort of help shape the things that I really struggled with. So, if 101 is the question, then what is the answer? The answer is, there's 101 days from now until the end of the year. So my, my, my challenge to you is that you go away, you find what really makes you tick. Because I guarantee if you can find those drivers, find what you really are passionate about, then all the big decisions that you'll have are so much easier. And all the challenging times that you're bound to come up against are going to be so much more fulfilling. Thanks. What do you say, right? What a dude.
what a dude. Um, we're going to have Tim back up shortly for a Q&A. But first, we have the indomitable Brienne West. Now, last time I saw Brienne, she put me in a wheelie bin. Please welcome Brienne West to the stage. I'm not even lying either. That's like 100% fact. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my name's Brienne, and I've already pushed forward too early. Right, we're good. That's me. Uh, about six or so years ago, when don't I look young and not stressed and relaxed? It's a change. It's really depressing. Um, so I started my first real business, my real business, when I was 19 years old. I had just started right here at university. And I was super excited about what I was studying. I was going to go and, I think at that point, I was going to go and be a virologist or something. Uh, and I came home for my first day, and the flat was empty. I had no one to talk about the exciting day I'd had with, because everyone was at their part-time jobs. And I thought, nah, that's shit. Sorry, I know I can swear, but it still feels weird. Nah, that's shit. I don't want to work for anyone. I am the single worst employee on the planet. Unfortunately, I have no real appreciation of authority. It's not a very good part of my character. It doesn't appear to be one I can change. So I'm going to roll with it. So on that very first day of university, I started my first company, which was a cake decorating company. Now, that company lasted for 15 minutes. And unfortunately, I did get one order in that period of time because I cannot decorate cakes at all. My mother's fantastic. I am not. So 15 minutes later, that one was canned. I guess that's my first business failure. Uh, but my first real business was a product called Pure. And it was a bog standard cosmetics company. I, I taught myself while I was here, obviously I had access to some labs and some very clever people. So I taught myself cosmetic chemistry and just made some stuff and put them in bottles, plastic bottles, and slapped some labels on. And actually it sold quite well. I built the website you can see, which is unfortunately on the website, on the, the web forever. So. That's embarrassing. But we were kind, it was kind of a victim of its own success because it grew really fast. I ran out of money. I also ran out of love for it. Orders slowed up, and it was sort of a snowball of doom. So like any normal person, I started a second company instead of actually focusing on one. And this one was a spoonable fudge. So it was like a cross between mousse and well, fudge, I suppose, something you could buy on a race to a dinner party if you were late, because there wasn't anything really in the market. Uh, it was a super creative business. You can see Sir Tubbington. We were, I wanted to call him Mr. T, but I was scared of a lawsuit. Probably would have got one, so that's Mr. Tubbington. Uh, and again, it, it, was, it was really fun for a while, but that one really was a victim of its own success, because people really like products that are equal parts chocolate, sugar, butter, and cream, like really like it. <laughs> And I couldn't keep up with demand. My mum and I were forever in a commercial kitchen. We leased and we made 150 kg batches of this stupid stuff, which I still can't stand, stand the smell of now. And we just couldn't keep up. So I sold both of them. Really, I think what was pretty evident for me was that whilst I really liked the creative side of things, I got really bored with a business that was only about money. What I needed was a company that had a point to it, something that not only you could talk about, but that I would feel good about rather than just getting up just to make money. It just, it isn't my driver. 
So the third time around, I thought about what it is that I'm passionate about, very much what you spoke about, Tim. I thought about what it is I cared about. And ever since I have been that tall, I have been weirdly, probably, obsessed with animals and the environment. I still pick worms out of puddles now and put them on the grass so they don't drown. I am... I forever rescued dogs and cats and all sorts of... I had a pet detective company when I was eight. Like, I'm, I was a weird kid. So I thought I'd combine this with my science background and the environmental thing that I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something. And environmental issues really were piling up at that time, although they're not as, they weren't as widely known as they certainly are now. So I knew that 40% of all plastic ever made is packaging, so it is used once and then thrown away. And I know that 9% of all plastic we've ever made is recycled. So a lot of you out there will probably think, meh, I can use what I like because I throw it in the recycling bin. Well, bad news, it does not get recycled. The average woman uses 14 jars, bottles, containers, whatever, every morning when she gets ready, and statistically, just one will be recycled. And that is clogging up our oceans. I also knew that shampoo is 70% water, 70 to 75. A conditioner is even higher at 90 to 95. And you use these things in a room full of water. Does it not seem completely mental to make something up, mostly water, package it in plastic, ship it around the world, and then use it in a room full of water? I just thought that was crazy. So I thought, sod it, I'm going to create the world's most sustainable cosmetics company. The number one thing, of course, that Atik stands for is we save the world from plastic bottles. And I set out in uh, the goal back then in my little kitchen with my little plastic bowl and my little microwave was 1 million by 2020. And it is currently 2019, I'm pretty sure. And we've done 4.3 million. So that's very cool. So we do this by producing solid bars. And everyone's like, ah, oh, so you just make soap. Whoop-de-doo, everybody makes soap. It's not soap. It's literally everything you'd find in your bathroom except toothpaste, which we're working on but with the water removed. So it isn't going to dry you out, it's not going to burn you, it's not horrible, it's literally what you have in the bathroom just without the water and without the plastic. But we're not just a plastic company, or a plastic-free company, I should say, not a plastic company. Obviously, we're cruelty-free and vegan, and frankly, that's really the bar minimum now for companies. We, are, we use only sustainable, naturally-derived ingredients, and we are certified palm oil-free, so our products themselves are as sustainable, biodegradable, compostable as humanly possible. But probably the stuff that gets me more excited is the way the business itself is run. And that's why we call it a social enterprise. So we are a certified B Corp. God, I hope there's someone in this room that knows what that is. Good, yes, because honestly, I do quite a lot of talking and no one even knows, and it's really depressing. We are New Zealand's highest scoring B Corp. Just going to throw that out there. I'm not competitive at all. Um, so they just released their honours for the world and we were in the top 10% of all B Corps around the world, which is fabulous. We're also a living wage employer. Oh my God, I'm running out of time. We're a living wage employer and we also use a lot. Um, we work with fair trade suppliers, so we work directly with a lot of producers of, say, coconut oil, for example. Because to us, we can't do everything. We cannot protect the environment everywhere, but we can empower other people to do so by paying them a fair price for the product they produce. My favourite bit, however, is that we donate 20% to charity of profit. Most companies will have a CSR program. They will donate on average 1%. We do 20 We don't do 100% because if we did, we wouldn't grow and have the impact from a plastic perspective because we wouldn't get investment. But 20% is a lot higher, and I'm pretty proud of it, actually. So 
I started in my kitchen and I got a lot of good feedback, but then I sort of hit a, a wall. I didn't really know what to do. So I entered what maybe some of you are doing right now, which is the 85K competition. Does anybody, does anybody know what it is? Anybody in it? Cool. So um, yeah, I entered the, the entree competition, genuinely blown away when they selected me as a finalist. Uh, super stoked to get my mentor, who's currently my business partner, and has been throughout the journey. Um, we, we got to do a business plan and a pitch, and I learned a lot about myself throughout the process, and then at the end of it, we didn't win. I don't know if anybody in the, is responsible for that decision in this room, but I'm just, just saying. We're, I think we're the only business still standing, so it feels like we're fine. Picked the wrong team. Anyway, I'm totally fine about it. I'm not petty at all. But I did, get, I did get my first investor out of it, but we ran out of money. So we had to do a bit of crowdfunding. So who knows what equity crowdfunding is? Awesome. We did, we've done two rounds of crowdfunding. Our first round was a little bit smaller. It was $200,000, which was so much money back then. $200,000, and we did it, I think, in 10 days. So we brought on 152 shareholders. We did a second raise, quite a lot quicker. I was actually standing on the stage at the Social Enterprise World Forum as we went live, and we raised uh, half a million in 90 minutes, and it was probably the most exciting 90 minutes of my life, which is sad to think that that's over and done with. From a scale perspective, Atikas now stops in 14 different countries, so two and a half thousand retailers around the, around the world, um, and I really didn't see that coming, to be honest. I always wanted Atik to be a billion dollar business, but you know, you say these things, you don't necessarily know how that works or what it looks like. So how do we grow so quickly? Because we have a story and a genuine purpose and we have people behind the brand who actually give a shit. My team are so on brand, it's not funny, to the point where sometimes it's a little annoying. Uh, that is why people like our product. We, we barely even, we don't ha have any salespeople in the company. We don't go out and sell a product. We go out and sell our story, and that makes all the difference. So my tips, very quickly, because I am running out of time, is number one, don't forget the power of purpose. Having something you can talk about that's not, this product has got this in it, and it does this, and it'll make your hair look shiny. Nobody cares. They really don't care about products. They care about what it's going to do for them and how it's going to make them feel. And that isn't just from a product perspective. It's from a story. So build a story around your product. Hell, invent one. PR companies do it all the time. Be different. I get quite a lot of people who come up to me and say, um, would you do a little bit of mentoring for me? Or would you, would you help me out? And I'm, I'm totally happy to. But my first question is always, what makes you different to every other company out there? And nine out of 10 people can't tell me. That is terrible. If you can't tell me what your unique selling point is, how is a customer going to? So be different. And number three, and this is something I got caught up in is a lot, was you'd see these magical unicorn companies out there and they were having these huge valuations, you know, worth 1.3 billion, they were turning over this and they just raised this much money and it would just look like the world was on fire for them. It's all bullshit. And unfortunately, I think very shortly, people are going to find that that is all gonna come crumbling down. You are not successful if you raise loads of money. You are successful if you run a financially sustainable business that actually cares. So don't look at these magical companies that are held up in Forbes and whatever as something to aspire to be because they're not worth it. They are absolutely not doing anything 
if they're not doing anything sustainable from a financial perspective or an environmental or social perspective. So they're not to be envied. Those companies out there doing things on a smaller scale, but things that actually matter, they are the ones you should aspire to be. Now I've officially run out of time, so that was a very quick rundown of my last seven years. Thank you. All right, we are uh, very thin on the ground in terms of time, but we're going to do a quick bit of Q&A. Um, do we have a Slido link? I believe we do. There it is. So if you have questions for these two, feel free to jump in and chuck them there and do a bit of an upvote and a downvote. I'm going to kick off with a um, possibly a difficult question. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> Just because here we are. Uh, what was the... At what point did you have the greatest challenge to your confidence? And what got you through it? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I don't know what... Uh, there was no specific point. Like, my confidence sort of got eaten away at it, I reckon, uh, over, over a large sort of period of time. And, like, what I spoke about a little bit earlier, um, it was genuinely around, like, stuff that was going on at home. It was just beating me up, you know. It was it was just it was so tough that I'd I'd turn up to training and I'd just feel sort of a little bit empty, and you can't be empty and not full of confidence when you're trying to perform every single week. So I suppose it was just lots of little things. I don't know if there was one specific moment, but um, yeah. Probably <clears throat> about a year ago, um, uh, a lot of women in business. Not exclusively a female problem, but it is certainly more common among women is imposter syndrome, and it's this, this feeling that there is 400 million other people out there who should be in your position, but you definitely shouldn't be because you suck at everything. And I had, well, I still have it to a degree, but about a year ago, all I ever hear is constantly people saying, I'm too idealistic, I don't know enough about money, I don't know how the world works, the world isn't gonna change, what is the point in trying? I always hear all this negative stuff and it really got to me, and for a while I thought, right, well, I'm gonna quit because I'm not doing nothing but a disservice to the company. Um, it goes away, but it takes a bit of work. But it's definitely still there in the background. Um, I was busy loading up the Slido questions when you were answering, Tim, and I, I didn't pay attention for a moment. Did you say um, how you worked through the challenge to your confidence? Um, yes, yeah, for me it was around, as I, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it was around sort of finding my drivers. Like, <clears throat> finding my drivers for starters and then having like a really clear plan as to how I was going to sort of build those back. Like, the interesting thing about confidence is just like anything physical, you can, you can grow confidence. Like, that's one thing that we really want to sort of try and do at O Studio is people understand what physical fitness is, they understand the framework, there's, there's strength, there's speed, there's power, there's aerobic capacity, but what is the framework of sort of psychological fitness? Uh, what is, and, and what are you doing to work on it? Like, and, and the science tells us now that there's some really amazing stuff that you can do and there's some really cool things that I reckon we're going to be doing. As I say, tailoring programs and, and honing in on specific skills that people want to develop or take further, like the things that hold them back, confidence may be one of them. And maybe the ability to, to get over sort of adversity or, or resilience to change. These things that people can choose and, as I say, go through these programs and make some, some genuine lasting change. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. That's fascinating, eh? Because at the end of the day, we're kind of all plagued with the same sort of stuff, right? I mean, you, Brian talked of imposter syndrome. I could see you nodding along. Even here on stage today, I get off and I go to people, oh, how was that? Was that okay? And people are like, yeah, you're doing good. I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. You know, it's, it's interesting. We've all got the same sort of shadows hanging over us, don't we? Mm. 
Um, we have some questions coming through. Oh, my phone's just reloading. We have some questions coming through on Slido. Don't you love how it's always real fast <laughs> when you want it to be real fast? Um, <laughs> the first one says, Willybin? Question mark. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, someone said, I love both of your products, but can't afford Cloud9 or Atik. Do you think you'll expand to include low price options? That's, that's awesome. That's a great question. Um, so we've just, we've just done that with Cloud9. So we've, we've brought in like a low pricing, which is $60 a float. So the pricing sort of ranges between 75 and 95 and that's always the thing that I come back to. I feel like I'm cutting out so much of the market already. Um, like hopefully in time that we, we can do that. Like through O-Studio we're trying to sort of build um, a model that can sort of cater for that. And so rather than having um, lower prices, it's going to be around, we're keeping the price the same, but we're able to gift in, in a lot of different areas and a lot large sort of proportion of, of um, of that extra, you know, goes into areas that, that I feel need it most. For me, mental health is just so important, and uh, I mean, there's been some changes over the last wee while with the government, uh, the latest mental health report, um, so hopefully there is gonna be a little bit more support that goes into that area, but the reality is at the moment, it's, it's really hard to drop prices, you know, to, to, to cater for everyone. I think it's so awesome that we live in a time where we can have a powerful man, a sporting icon, stand, sitting on stage talking about the importance of mental health. Um, isn't that a wonderful thing? I'm not that powerful, but... <laughs> um, Brianne, other than toothpaste, where do you see your product developing to? And do you see affordability as a priority? Uh, affordability is an interesting question because when you look at it for on the shelf, they look expensive, but when you go on a per-use basis, they're exactly the same as a supermarket shampoo with vastly better ethics. But the upfront cost is the problem for a lot of people. So there are, uh, if I told you I'd have to kill you all, but there are a few things we're working on from an affordability perspective, but there's also, I fought against the likes of Afterpay for ages because it's a little bit... It's very predatory, but we had a good chat, and really is it any different to a credit card? But Afterpay allows people not to have a credit card, but to afford things that are better for the environment, so that is a way we're looking to try and increase its, I guess, more from a cash flow perspective. Mm. The other question was, oh yeah, innovation. Uh, yeah, we've got, uh, this is a product idea, the, the concentration and removal of packaging that would translate to so many industries. So household is an area we're looking at. We're also looking at, at traditional cosmetics. Um, but there is scope for it. Uh, again, I can't really tell you a great deal because I have lots of things on the boil that are sort of aside from a teak. Um, but we put water in stuff to make it cheaper. So what would happen if we took it out of a lot of things it doesn't need it in? I mean, there is huge scope for that idea. It's very basic. So you're saying not cosmetic? Well, you're not saying not cosmetics. I don't know. What am I not saying? I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'm very confused. So what am I? What am I asking? <laughs> um, well, this is an interesting question. So, so we're all the three of us. We're all in our early thirties. Um, how do you manage being a young person in business who traditionally would be seen as inexperienced? It's my favourite topic. I quite like it actually. It used to drive me mental. Do you know? I walked into a hotel once with my COO. And, oh no, actually I was walking out, we were checking out. And he said, and turned to the bloke on the right and said, I hope, you, uh, I hope your business was, was, I don't know, successful or something, business meetings were successful. And then he genuinely turned to me and said, I hope you enjoyed your shopping. Wow. 
I was so shocked. I didn't say anything, and I just left. And I don't think I, I smiled for the, like a week. Um, you didn't light a fire on the way out or anything. I about it. Yeah. <laughs> I I, I'm not quick-witted at times when I'm full of rage. Unfortunately, I couldn't. Yeah. He was trying to be nice, but man, did he get it wrong. Uh, so I face that pretty frequently, but I quite like being underestimated now. Mm. You, I used to let it get to me, and now I just say, sod it, they don't know what I'm capable of, who really cares? Mm. I'll just go on and, and surprise them from behind. Mm. That sounded weird. <laughs> <laughs> Brianne West, I like surprising people from behind. <laughs> that sounds like a slogan. That's, yeah. For me, it's a, it's a funny one. Like, I feel anything but young. <laughs> I mean, my roommate last weekend was nine, is 19 years old. I'm 32, and so like I'm the old man in the team. Um, I'm like the granddad, so I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, I don't feel young in an experience. There is, I suppose, a little bit of correlation, though. I, I, um, I feel that there's massive stereotypes around rugby players, um, and I often find that people, when people hear that I'm a rugby player doing something, it's sort of oh, okay, you know. But and and much like yourself, I, I like surprising people and. From behind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like. I like. <laughs> he didn't wow. say no, did he? <laughs> I'm not even. Gonna, I don't even Sorry. know where to go with it. <laughs> it's dangerous ground. Um, um, no, yeah. As I say, I like. Um, none of that bothers me. Like, I, I, for me, it's just getting awesome people around me. I don't care if they're. 50, if they're 20, if they're, if they're really good people and they have the right reasons for doing something um, and we're aligned in our sort of purposes and our, and our vision, then experience, I mean, experience will come with time, obviously, but it's all about can you do a good job or not, that's all that matters. I think it's really easy for people to confuse knowledge or experience with wisdom or foresight. Mm. It's a um, stupid little thing I remember. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that it doesn't go in the fruit salad. Mm. Hmm. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, here's a good question. Do you have any root? Well, they're all excellent questions. Here's one that's got lots of votes also. Uh, do you, either of you have any routines that contribute to your sort of ongoing success or performance? God, no, I hate routine. No, I really don't. Can't answer that question. I have oh, a cup of tea in the morning. Cup of tea, oh, yeah, cup of tea in the morning. I'm expecting you're the exact opposite. <laughs> I'm a little bit. Um, I sort of, well, there's one thing that really works for me, and that's meditation. Um, I, I know it sounds a little bit cliche, but I know that when I'm meditating regularly, and when I say routine, I'm not the best at this. Like I said at the start, like, I'll go weeks sometimes without meditating, but I notice it. Um, so I'm not like I'm meditating every morning and I'm just blazing every day. I'm far from that. But I know that I'm, when I'm operating at my best, I'm meditating regularly. Uh, I, I'm so much more focused. I train way better. I'm way more present with my kids. Um, I take way less time to do something work-wise when I'm able to sort of, yeah, when I'm training my mind to be in that, in that moment. It's, it's a hard practice to build because it feels like you're doing nothing. Um, but it's something for me that when I know I'm nailing it, um, when I'm operating at my best, I'm doing that regularly. Cool. All right, we are, I think, out of time. I'm looking to Hannah. Yeah. One more question. It is so good. Um, It's hard. Should we tell the Willie Pin story? No, 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 no. We should. said the wedding should story, and I thought, whoa, what? <laughs> okay, Let's watch so, the so I was sitting in my lounge one night. Sorry, Tim. I was sitting in my lounge one night, and a friend of mine from university came over because my flatmate is a, is a really good cartoonist, and he was like just drawing some storyboards for an ad. And he goes, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing this concept for a TV commercial for Atik. 
It's like, oh, that's funny. I'm just writing a blog post and using a teak as an example, talking about social enterprise. Ha, ha, ha. Three days later, hey, bro, um, I've been thinking about this ad, and I just keep seeing you acting in it. Do you want to come in for an audition for this teak ad? I was like, righto. Flick Brianna message to say, ha, 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 you know, they've just asked me to come in and do this thing. They end up casting me in this ad, and this ad has me following the journey of what a plastic bottle does. So I still... <laughs> I start in the supermarket, she shows up next to me, clicks her fingers, I'm in the shower fully dressed, and then drop the bottle into a rubbish bin, I end up in the rubbish bin, and then we wake up in a dump, and then suddenly I'm on a hill and there are llamas. Alpacas. Alpacas. And, oh, that was actually in the thing, that's amazing, whoa, that was meta. Um, yeah, and that was the last time I saw Brienne, it was when we were filming that. And so we're standing up in this beautiful hill in Akaroa, and she's like in her, you know, lovely dress, and, Makeup, and I'm like topless getting sprayed with a, um, a, weed, a weed sprayer with water so it looks like I'm it fresh out of the really shower. Cold. And she's going, I'm so cold. And I'm like topless getting sprayed with water in the wind. I'm like, <laughs> so heartless, except when it comes to animals. Uh, Tim, Brianne, you've both been very generous with your time, been very generous with your experiences and very generous with your um, vulnerabilities of, of your journeys. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, and I think we all are. Please show your gratitude. Thanks, guys. Well done. You did very well. Can you see uh, what Tim's shirt says, by the way? Float is my second favourite F word. <laughs> What's the first? It's Friday, you know? Friday. Friday. Oh, there we go. Friday. I thought it was going to be family. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> what? What are you laughing at? Um, so, team, we have uh, come very close to the end. I think what we're going to do is invite Hannah Rhodes up on stage. Is that correct? And then we'll wrap up. So, Hannah, do you want to start making your way up? If you're not aware who Hannah is, uh, Hannah has been the program manager for UCE for a bunch of, in a bunch of different capacities, and this is actually her final act. Um, she's, she's leaving UCE on Monday. So please give a very large round of applause for Hannah. Yeah. 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 Thanks, everybody. Oh, thanks, Fran and Tim. Um, first of all, I actually just want everyone to give a huge round of applause to our MC for the day, Jason Pemberton. Um, it's actually a really tough job getting up in front of like on a Saturday morning in front of a group of students who are like pretty sleepy and probably went out last night and trying to give them energy. Um, so well done. It's been great to have you on your expertise um, and to all our speakers as well. Um, it's just amazing the work that you've put into this event. It's not easy getting up here um, and to our facilitators. So we're just so grateful that you've all put um, the effort into today um, and the effort into like our mission, which is to um, help upskill all of you with the tools, connections and experiences um, that you need to go out and make impact in the world. So I have the pleasure of um, thanking um, all the people who have come together today to make this event happen. Um, so first of all, the Christchurch City Council, who are our core partner for the event. We actually um, just had a two-day social enterprise challenge um, with the council, which we had 50 students from around the country competing and coming up with social enterprises that can help um, tackle the climate emergency, which was super, super exciting. So put your hand up if you were involved in that. 
There's quite a few people here. So go and talk to them about what their ideas were. There was a whole awesome range. Um, so thank you, Christchurch City Council, for believing um, in the co-puffa of this event and really helping us to make it happen. Uh, we also have um, a whole range of other partners. Um, Entree, uh, a student club here at UC that Brianne talked about. Um, Zero, our accounting partner. UC Business, who have been with us from the start to make this all happen. Um, Hummingbird, who had a coffee this morning. If you had a coffee this morning, that's why you've made it all through the day. Um, and Tunesock, who have provided all the music. And there'll be a band outside after this as well. We also have a whole range of people who have come together to provide workshops, food, um, basically everything else that's made this day happen. Um, our Kina, who provided an awesome workshop, our food from Bacon Bros and Fush, who were just amazing and have come to this event two years in a row. Um, workshop partners, Boma, Ministry of Awesome, um, O Studio for the Epic Meditation at Lunchtime, Exchange, Xstart and YMCA. And our goodie bag partners, Liminal, Atik, um, and my Vita bag, and Rewired as well, who provided the awesome coffee cups. They're um, part of Zero and run their startup space. I also um, wanted to give just a quick rundown of the goodie bags because I don't know if you all actually know about what went into it. We put a lot of effort and we partnered with some really awesome people. So the bag is made by Liminal Apparel. Who knows what Liminal Apparel is? A few. So Alana actually mentioned them at the start. These bags are made at Freeset in Kolkata in India. Um, they're made with organic um, cotton. They're all ethical and 100% of the profits go back into communities there. Um, my Vita bag, Cecilia, is an awesome woman who um, actually went through UCE programs and provides sustainable produce bags. So go out and buy them for Christmas presents and birthday presents. They're an awesome gift. Hummingbird coffee, um, rewired the coffee cups I just mentioned. Um, and also, Atik, thank you, Brianne, for um, giving us all some samplers in our bags so you can try that shampoo and conditioner for yourself. I'm very excited about the samplers. I love all your products, so I'll be right into that one. And most importantly, I want to thank all of you for being here. It's a Saturday. Um, it's a really big, long day, and it's really intense. And the fact that you're all here just shows that you want to go out and make an impact. And what we really want to do um, is be able to actually support you as well going forward. So I have a few quick things to run over. Um, so if you came up with an idea today, we have a whole bunch of programs at UCE. We have a hatchery program, which is year round, um, a scholarship, some a startup program. And we're actually in a couple of weeks going to run a five hour boot camp. If you came up with an idea today, um, you can also come to that if you're not a student. So just watch out on our Facebook and um, Instagram pages and you can come along and we'll help you workshop your idea and take it to the next level. If you want to just learn some more skills, today was a lot about skill building. We run two-day um, hackathons like the Social Enterprise Challenge I just told you about. Um, we have runs in the marketing space, in health space, travel, a whole range of different topics. Um, and you can also now do your idea for credit. So um, we have a course that you can sign up for um, and you actually get to get credit for just working on your venture, which is a pretty good deal um, and kind of avoids that thing of like, um, oh gosh, I want to be at uni, but I also want to be working on my idea. And we also, the last one is a whole range of clubs. So we have the amazing new Women in Business Club, Entree, Global China Collection, 180 Degrees and Landsock. UCE support these clubs and lots of them are running out of our space um, on campus. And it's just a really awesome way to just get some confidence. Go out there, give it a go, get some speakers in. Um, most of our volunteers today are from, from one of those clubs. So huge thank you to those guys. Um, and yeah, definitely get into it. Clubs for me was completely transformative and such an important 
important part of my university experience. So definitely encourage you to get involved there. Um, also connect with us on our UC Centre for Entrepreneurship pages because that has a whole range of broad things. So there's the Impact Summit um, social media and that will give you information about Impact Summit. But if you're interested in masterclasses, boot camps, a whole range of other things, make sure you connect in with UCE. This is my last slide, and I know that people have grown a little bit at this, but please, please, please do our survey. We're going to email it out. Um, and it would be awesome if you could just take five minutes to really think about what you want to put in that. Like, we want to know if there's a workshop that you love so much you want us to bring them back to UCE. Like, we want to know if um, there was something that you maybe didn't like or some sessions that weren't quite right for you or um, any feedback. So please do. It takes, like, hardly any time. There's just basically one question. Um, and take that time to fill that out. Who's going to do the survey? Put your hand up. Yes. Awesome. We would love that. Um, and yeah, just a huge thank you to everyone here. Um, we're so grateful for your support. Um, the UCE community is just awesome. And I'm going to miss all of you so much and very grateful to be part of this journey. So, Jason, welcome back. We'll do logistics. Second. So at the start of today, I asked you a question. What was that question? Why are you here? What are you trying to get out of today? And you wrote down some notes. And you talked to someone who was a new friend. You might have fist bumped them, or maybe hugged them, if you both consented, because consent is king, as discussed. So now, now what? Turn to the person next to you and talk about what you've learned. Did you actually achieve what you were here to achieve today? And if so, or if not, what next? What are you going to do as a result of being here today? You've got three minutes. Never know who's paying attention, do you? <laughs> Team, we're, uh, we're desperately over time. Um, who found today valuable? Put your hands together, particularly for Hannah and Jessica, who put so much effort into making today happen. And for the entire team of volunteers, Hannah, come up. Jess, come up. And I will close us out now with a karakia. Our work has finished here for the moment. Bless all of us, our colleagues, our families. Peace to the universe. Thank you very much, and we hope to see you again next year. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that episode, and congratulations if you're actually listening to this. I have a feeling that only a small percentage will have listened to the entire thing. But if you did like it, then consider checking out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And remember, there's a bunch of content at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Mm -hmm.